Pearl Harbor, The Seeds and Fruits of Infamy Written by Percy L. Greaves Jr. and Bettina B. Greaves Narrated by Million Quinteros Editor's Preface No one can plan history. Every one of us, rich and poor, powerful and not so powerful, famous and infamous, important and unimportant, plans his or her actions in the hope of accomplishing some goal. History is the outcome of countless such purposive actions, intertwined, interconnected, interrelated. Although each action is planned by the individual actor in the hope of achieving some end, history itself is not only not planned, but unplannable. And so it is with the Pearl Harbor disaster which launched the United States into World War II. It was the unplanned, unintended consequence of countless separate pre-attack planned actions on the part of the principals concerned. And the post-attack cover-up and revelations arose as the unintended consequences of the purposive actions of the principals concerned. The goal of the historian of any historical event is to try to discover how it happened as an unintended consequence of the purposive actions of individuals. And that is the goal of this book, as it was also the goal of the post-attack investigations, to determine how and why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and how and why Washington officials responded as they did. My husband, Percy Greaves, became interested in the pros and cons of the December 7, 1941 attack, from the moment he learned as research director of the Republican National Committee during the 1944 Roosevelt-Dewey presidential election campaign, that the United States had decrypted the Japanese diplomatic code in August 1940, and since then had been reading many of Japan's secret and super-secret messages. That secret, of course, could not be divulged so long as the war continued and we were continuing to decipher Japanese messages and learn their secrets. After the war ended in August 1945, Congress established a joint congressional committee to investigate the attack. As chief of the minority staff of that joint committee, my husband researched the pre-attack background, the earlier investigations, and the available documents. He helped brief the Republican committee members in questioning witnesses as to what was known in Washington about Japan's plans before the attack, what intelligence and material had been furnished the Pearl Harbor commanders, and whether or not they had responded appropriately, given the available intelligence, material, ships, planes, and men. The hearings lasted almost a full year. The majority report continued to place considerable blame on the Hawaiian commanders, Admiral Husband E. Kimmel and General Walter C. Short. A lengthy minority report held that the blame must be shared by higher-up Washington officials. Upon the conclusion of the Congressional Committee hearings, my husband continued to research the Pearl Harbor attack. He interviewed surviving participants, wrote and lectured widely on the subject. My husband completed this manuscript and wrote the sideheads. We proofed it together and checked all the quotations and footnotes against the original sources. But then he was stricken with cancer, a particularly virulent variety. He died on August 13, 1984, just over a month after the appearance of his first serious symptoms. By the time my husband died, his efforts had yielded a massive manuscript. When I reread that manuscript after his death, I decided that, although the names, dates, and documentation were all there, it was difficult to follow the sequence of events. Events alternated with revelations gleaned from the investigations, and revelations alternated with events. Also, Percy had included many lengthy supporting quotations within the text itself, interrupting the flow of events. In the hope of making the story easier to understand, I have arranged everything in chronological order and paraphrased the quotes, from FDR's inauguration and his early active intervention in international affairs 
Through the Japanese attack on December 7, 1941, the post-attack investigations, the obstacles placed in the path of investigators, down to the final reports. He and I often talked about this book. As usual, I made suggestions, some he accepted, others he rejected. He would say, if anything happens to me, then you can do as you please. Of course, he fully expected to finish it himself, but time was not given him to do so. Although I have reworked my husband's manuscript, it remains his book. The research and documentation are his. The decision to present events primarily as they were viewed from Washington was his. My contribution has been to reorganize, revise, and rewrite his manuscript so as to present the events chronologically. Throughout, however, I have tried to keep the book true to his research and faithful to his interpretation. My guiding principle has always been to present the results of Percy's years of research as faithfully and accurately as possible, and to describe the truth about Pearl Harbor as he saw it. Although I am sure Percy would have had some criticism of the way I have finished this book, on the whole, I believe he would have approved. I only wish he could have lived to see the research of his lifetime published in this form. Any errors or omissions in preparing his work for final publication are, of course, my responsibility alone. Signed, Mrs. Percy L. Bettina B. Greaves, Jr., May 2007. Author's Preface When the attack on Pearl Harbor was announced on the radio, my sister phoned. I was outdoors playing touch football with my nine-year-old boy and some of his friends. I went inside immediately and turned on the radio. From that moment on, I have followed Pearl Harbor developments closely. At dawn on December 7, 1941, the Japanese had attacked the United States' U.S. fleet stationed in Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands. Hawaii was then a territory of the United States, not yet a state. Nevertheless, that blow brought the United States into the war that had been started in Europe by Hitler's attack on Poland in September 1939. The war then exploded worldwide with fronts not only in Europe and in the Atlantic, but also in Asia and the Pacific. The generally accepted explanation for our entry into the war was simply Japan's unprovoked and dastardly attack on Pearl Harbor. However, the responsibility for the extent of the disaster was attributed to a considerable extent to failures on the part of the two commanders at Pearl Harbor, Navy Admiral Husband E. Kimmel and Army General Walter C. Short. To many, this settled the matter. The two commanders were to blame, held up to public shame, relieved of their commands, and forced into early retirement. The first hint I had that there was more to the Pearl Harbor story came in 1944. The then-Republican candidate for president, Thomas E. Dewey, was trying to unseat President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Several service personnel came to the Republican National Committee, of which I was then research director, with reports that U.S. cryptographers had deciphered some of the Japanese codes and that Washington officials had been reading, even before the attack, many of the Japanese government's confidential communications. Dewey proposed to make a speech on the subject, but was requested in great secrecy by Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall not to do so. Our ability to decipher and read Japanese messages, he said, was still playing an important role in helping us to win the war in the Pacific, and thus to save the lives of U.S. soldiers and sailors. Dewey honored that request. When Republican Senator Homer Ferguson of Michigan, unaware of the reason for Dewey's silence, also scheduled a speech on the subject, Dewey asked him not to. Thus, the public was prevented from learning any of the true Pearl Harbor story at that time. And the voters gave Roosevelt a comfortable victory over his Republican rival. After the election, I resigned from the party and turned to freelancing as researcher and economic columnist. 1945 was an eventful year. 
On January 20th, Roosevelt was inaugurated for an unprecedented fourth term. He died a few months later on April 12th. The war was not over yet. Vice President Harry Truman took office. The fighting finally ended in Europe when Germany surrendered on May 7th, and the war in the Pacific came to an end with the surrender of Japan on August 14th. Rumors had surfaced from time to time in spite of efforts to maintain secrecy, to the effect that the attack on Pearl Harbor might not have been such a complete surprise to the officials in Washington as the public has been led to believe. Several fact-finding inquiries were set up during the war in the attempt to learn more. A great deal of information was unearthed, although it was not then made public. Pressure continued to mount for a full-fledged investigation of the responsibility for the Pearl Harbor disaster. Finally, when the war was over, Congress responded. A Joint Congressional Committee for the Investigations of the Pearl Harbor Attack, JCC, was set up in the fall of 1945. The Democratic majority named six of the committee's ten members, the Republican minority four. The Democratic majority controlled the appointment of the committee's counsel and staff. The Republican minority was not given funds for an adequate research staff. As I had earned some respect as a researcher when working with the Republican National Committee during the 1944 presidential campaign, a few persons interested in having the Joint Congressional Committee conduct a thorough and unbiased investigation arranged for me to head a small staff to assist the minority members. The JCC's reports issued in July 1946 answered some questions but raised others. My serious interest in Pearl Harbor stemmed from my work with that committee. For almost a year, 1945 to 1946, I had spent day and night studying Pearl Harbor documents and exploring Pearl Harbor leads. From that time on, I read everything I could find that bore some relevance to Pearl, and I tried to keep current on the subject. Then, thanks to a small grant arranged by Harry Elmer Barnes, I was able to travel back and forth across the country to meet and interview surviving principals. When further funds were not forthcoming, my serious study of Pearl Harbor was sidetracked for the more urgent demands of earning a living. Only in semi-retirement have I had time to concentrate on the subject again. History is a record of step-by-step -step progression from the past. Any event is always the end result of a long sequence of events stretching back endlessly into the past. The historian investigating a particular incident must always decide where to start, how far back to go. And so it is with Pearl Harbor. The Japanese attack in 1941 was the final outcome of complex, interconnected occurrences that had their origins many years before. For the purpose of this book, I have chosen to trace the conflicting forces that led the Japanese to attack Pearl Harbor in 1941, back to the 1894-1895 Sino-Japanese War. Events happen. Once they are over and done with, they are irrevocable. Learning after the fact what actually occurred is not always easy. History needs to be written and rewritten constantly in the light of newly revealed evidence and newly acquired knowledge in other fields. As previously classified and secret World War II documents have been released in recent years, considerable additional information has become available. To reconcile the conflicting testimony of the many witnesses before the several Pearl Harbor investigations, to keep abreast of new material as it becomes available, to integrate new data into the previous body of knowledge, and to separate the wheat from the chaff so as to make it all intelligible and meaningful, calls for painstaking research and analysis. The task of the historian is to try to reconstruct and report the facts as accurately as possible. As historian, I have acted as sleuth or detective trying to determine the truth. The Pearl Harbor story is like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle, the parts coming from many different sources each part alone being of little value until fitted into the mosaic.
Hopefully this book will supply a few more pieces to the gigantic Pearl Harbor jigsaw puzzle and thus make a small contribution to this period in history. Signed, Percy L. Greaves, Jr., Summer 1984. Forward. On October 28, 1944, in Washington, D.C., I attended a birthday party given by a friend of mine, the Russian-born foreign correspondent Isaac Don Levine, for his wife Ruth. October 28th is my birthday, too, so it became a double birthday party. At that party, a loquacious colonel, assuming apparently that he was speaking off the record, confided that the United States had decrypted the Japanese diplomatic code a year or so before the attack on Pearl Harbor. From that time on, the top U.S. administration and military officials had been intercepting and reading many of the confidential messages that passed between the Japanese government in Tokyo and her emissaries in the United States and other countries. Thanks to this source of intelligence, the administration in Washington had been privy before the attack on Pearl Harbor to many Japanese secrets. Republican presidential candidate Thomas E. Dewey had also learned this administration secret. But out of patriotism, he was not exploiting it during the election campaign that was then underway. It could be that the Japanese were still using the same code, and Dewey did not want to run the chance of alerting the Japanese to change their code and thus destroy an extremely valuable source of U.S. intelligence. It would have been a real scoop to report this news on the pages of Life, my employer at the time, but should I? I lost no time in sending a memorandum to Henry Luce, publisher of Life, about the colonel's disclosure. He reacted as Dewey had. He told me to file the information away. It would be useful after the war. Right after the Japanese surrender on August 14, 1945, Luce sent me to upstate New York to interview Dewey. After an all-night train ride, I caught up with him at the Elmira Reformatory, where he was on an inspection tour. He asked me to join him in his limousine for the ride to Geneva, his next stop. We drove along scenic Lake Seneca, but I didn't glance at the beautiful Finger Lake scenery. I was enthralled with Dewey's story. In September 1944, a tall, dark, and handsome colonel, Carter Clark, had delivered to Dewey a letter from Army Chief of Staff General Marshall. The letter told Dewey that we had cracked the Japanese diplomatic code. We were still deriving enormous military advantages from reading and decrypting coded intercepts. American lives would be lost if the Japanese changed their code. Therefore, it was of the utmost importance that no word about that should leak out that might reach the Japanese. As a result, Dewey was persuaded to keep the issues of Pearl Harbor and the Japanese code out of the campaign. Dewey told me I could use the story of his gagging, but he warned that I must not reveal my source. My article appeared in the September 24, 1945 issue of Life. Luce then gave me the assignment of attending the hearings of the Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack, just then preparing to get underway. The congressional hearings ran from November 15, 1945, until May 31, 1946, when the last witness appeared. Those hearings revealed a great deal, but probably even more significant were some of the things that they didn't reveal. It was obvious from the testimony of some of the witnesses that they were trying not to tell everything they knew. I recall to this day the dissimulation of one key witness, Captain Alwyn D. Kramer. As Japanese translator and Navy courier, he had played an important role in the weeks before the attack on Pearl Harbor. He had distributed to the top Washington officials many, if not most, of the secret Japanese messages intercepted during that period. He was asked at some length what he recalled about the messages he had delivered and to whom. 
Kramer had testified in 1944 before the Navy Court of Inquiry. Between then and his appearance before the Congressional Committee, his recollections had been refreshed, he said, as a result of his having been questioned by military personnel conducting other Pearl Harbor investigations. The members of the Congressional Committee noted several significant discrepancies between his testimony to them and his frank and open statements before the NCI. Two were especially notable. One dealt with a famous East Wind Rain message, a false weather report bearing a coded meaning, and the other concerned the Japanese government's instructions to their Washington ambassadors, asking them to deliver their reply to the U.S. State Department proposal at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time on Sunday, December 7th. According to Kramer's testimony before the NCI, East Wind Rain indicated impending trouble, perhaps even more, between Japan and the United States. Concerning the 1 p.m. message, he had reported to the NCI that, when delivering it on Sunday morning, December 7th, he had called the special attention of some of the recipients to the fact that 1 p.m. Washington time was about dawn in Hawaii. However, he denied to the Congressional Committee that he had intended to imply that either of these two messages carried any serious implications. When pressed by committee member Senator Homer Ferguson of Michigan, he sidestepped. His earlier recollections had been faulty, he said. His memory had since been refreshed. Moreover, he flatly denied that anyone had asked him to change his testimony. Percy Greaves was hired privately to help the minority Republicans who had no funds for a research staff. He attended every session of the congressional hearings. In the course of fulfilling my assignment for life, I saw him there regularly. He listened intently to all the testimony. Occasionally, he would whisper in the ear of a Republican committee member or write him a note, calling attention to some particular point to pursue in his questioning. Percy's serious interest in Pearl Harbor dated from those hearings. He continued to pursue the subject after the hearings closed. He interviewed participants, read everything he could find on the subject, and researched all leads. Thus, this book has been many years in the making. I talked with Percy about Pearl Harbor several times over the years. Percy had completed a carefully documented draft when he died in August 1984. His widow, Bettina Bien Greaves, has done a noble job of reworking his material, fleshing them out, and preparing his manuscript for publication. His revelations, as they are presented here, should help future students interpret the ramifications of the seeds that led to the Japanese attack, and of the fruits of that attack, namely the investigations and the attempted cover-up. Signed, John Chamberlain, January 1991. Acknowledgements As my husband notes in the preface to this book, his interest in Pearl Harbor stemmed from his year-long association, 1945 to 1946, with the Congressional Joint Committee to investigate the attack on Pearl Harbor. As director of the committee's minority staff, he studied all the documents furnished the committee and attended all the hearings. After the hearings ended, he received a small grant from Harry Elmer Barnes to seek answers to some questions raised but not answered by the several investigations. With money from the grant, he traveled back and forth across the country in the early 1960s, interviewing individuals who had an interest in Pearl Harbor. Here they are, listed in alphabetical order. Admiral Walter S. Anderson, General Carter W. Clark, Curtis Dahl, General Bonner Fellers, Admiral Thomas L. Hart, Admiral Royal E. Ingersoll, Captain Thomas K. Kimmel, Captain Robert A. Lavender, Admiral Arthur W. McCollum, 
Commander Charles C. Miles, Admiral Ben Moriel, Admiral Joseph R. Redman, Admiral F. W. Rockwell, Captain Lawrence F. Safford, Vice Admiral John F. Shafroth, General Albert C. Wedemeyer, and General Charles A. Willoughby. Captain Safford deserves special mention. Percy talked with him many times on his frequent visits to Washington, and Safford described to him in careful detail the Navy's pre-war system for keeping secret the very existence of the Japanese magic intercepts and the information they revealed. When Barnes's funds ran out, Percy's serious study of Pearl Harbor was sidetracked as he returned to the more urgent demands of earning a living. However, he continued reading and lecturing on the subject. Only in semi-retirement did he again have time to actually start putting the results of his research on paper. As I have written, Percy died in 1984. His manuscript was practically finished. After his death, however, I took over the task of editing it and readying it for publication. I physically chopped up the typed manuscript and reorganized chronologically his accounts of pre-war events and post-war revelations. I also put the entire manuscript on the computer. I interviewed several persons, radio man Ralph T. Briggs, the Navy code clerk who had intercepted the elusive East Wind Rain message, Admiral Kemp Tolley, commander of the Lanakai, one of the three small ships ordered by Roosevelt to be commissioned just before the attack and to take up positions in the South China Sea, in the path of the southbound Japanese convoys, and Admiral Kimmel's son, Captain Thomas Kimmel, whom my husband had also interviewed. As a result of my editing, the manuscript plus its footnotes became much too long for any publisher to consider. Sheldon Richmond, editor of The Freeman, helped cut it down. Daniel Bazikian spent many hours with me proofreading the manuscript. Two Japanese friends, Toshio Murata and Kentaro Nakano, translated for me the passage in a book by Japan's chief intelligence officer in Washington, indicating that a wind's execute, east wind rain, had actually been received before the attack by the Japanese embassy in Washington. This Japanese account was in contradiction of the position of U.S. intelligence officers who refused to admit during the congressional hearings that such a message had been sent by Tokyo, which could have been intercepted by Safford and his crew before the war began. And Leo Bloom, nephew and friend, visited me several times in Irvington, encouraging me and helping with the manuscript. I have profited also from the comments made and the questions asked by many of Percy's friends and students, who had been fascinated by his account of Pearl Harbor whenever he spoke on the subject formally in lectures and informally in our living room. I can only hope he would have approved of what I have done to transform his lifelong labor of love into a manuscript suitable for publication. Signed, Bettina Bien Greaves, Editor, Mrs. Percy L. Greaves, Jr. Part 1. The Seeds of Infamy Chapter 1. U.S. International Policy, 1933-1940 Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Elected President March 4, 1933, Inauguration Day, was a gray day in Washington, a depressing day like the economic depression that then enveloped the nation. The sun broke through the clouds only occasionally as President-elect Roosevelt, exuberant over his victory, and outgoing President Herbert Hoover, gloomy and distressed, not only at having lost the election, but also at not having been able to stem the economic downturn, rode together up Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol from the White House. Roosevelt took the oath of office, promising 
to the best of my ability to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Hoover and his entire cabinet went out of office when Roosevelt was inaugurated, and the new president appointed an entirely new cabinet. The Democratic Party platform on which Roosevelt had run in the presidential election of 1932 had been conservative, calling for drastic economies in government expenditures and a sound currency. The economic crisis sparked by the 1929 stock market crash had deepened between Roosevelt's election and his inauguration. Cooperation between the outgoing and incoming presidents during the interregnum would have been in order, but considerable antagonism existed between the two men. They had one inconclusive meeting. Roosevelt was apparently unable or unwilling to cooperate any further. He didn't want to share the credit with anyone for what he was going to do. For a time, the new president's energies were devoted largely to domestic economic problems. All banks in the country were closed down on March 6, two days after Roosevelt took office. It was a low point in the country's history. However, it wasn't long before the international situation would claim Roosevelt's attention. The idealism that had produced the League of Nations and the Kellogg-Bryan Pact intended to outlaw war was eroding. Adolf Hitler had come to power in Germany, assuming dictatorial powers and beginning to undo the terms of the Versailles Treaty. On November 16, 1933, the United States recognized the government of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR. The professed purpose of recognition was so that our nations henceforth may cooperate for their mutual benefit and for the preservation of the peace of the world. Roosevelt named William C. Bullitt to be the first U.S. ambassador to the USSR. Bullitt considered communism a harbinger for the world and was an enthusiastic proponent of the Soviet system. U.S. Far East Relations The Asian situation was of concern. Japan had occupied Chinese territory Manchuria. Many Japanese farmers and businessmen had moved there to settle and make it their home. Moreover, the Japanese and Chinese were fighting in northern China, and Russian communists were helping the Chinese and pestering the Japanese. Asia was not peaceful. How had conditions reached this pass? Japan had been almost completely isolated from the civilized world until 1852, when U.S. Navy Commander Matthew C. Perry sailed into Edo, Tokyo, Bay, on a mission from the United States government to open Japan up to trade. After some time and a proper display of diplomacy, Perry succeeded in his mission. Japan westernized, industrialized, and her population increased. Looking for resources to power her new industries, she expanded onto the relatively empty wilderness of the Asian mainland, which China and Russia had previously claimed. Japan went to war with China, the Sino-Japanese War, 1894-1895, in order to bring Chinese-controlled Korea into Japan's sphere of influence. Then, after the Boxer Rebellion in China, 1899-1901, Japan cooperated with the international force of British, French, Russians, Americans, and Germans that lifted the siege of Peking. Some Japanese remained in northern China, and in time, Japanese traders developed a substantial textile industry there. However, Japan found herself in frequent conflict with Russia, whose vast territory extended east to the Pacific, and who wanted a warm water port. The Russo-Japanese War, 1904, was sparked by Russian intrusion into Manchuria and ended with Japan's gaining control of that province. Japan's rule brought law and order to Manchuria, and in time it became one of the most peaceful and stable parts of China, attracting thousands of Japanese, Chinese, and Korean traders and settlers. Japan was bringing civilization and stability to the region. Japan had been an ally of Britain and the U.S. during the Great War, 
1914-1918, and she was included in the Washington Naval Conference, November 12, 1921 through January 12, 1922. When the Allied military powers sought to reduce the worldwide arms race, the resulting naval limitation and non-fortification treaty cut the British-American-Japanese navies down in size to a ratio of 5 to 5 to 3 for capital ships. In the hope of maintaining peace in the Far East, an open-door agreement was reached, providing that the participant nations have equal commercial rights of entry into China. Although China was not then a united nation, she was to have her integrity preserved. Japan was to be restrained from mainland adventures and to have no military planes or ships in the mandated islands. Japan resented the second-rate status to which she had been reduced by the Naval Limitation Treaty and also the racial slur inherent when Japanese immigration was banned by the U.S. Exclusion Act, 1924, and Australia's anti-Oriental whites-only policy. Moreover, Japan's relations with the rest of the world deteriorated in the 1920s. Her markets for her chief export silk suffered as a result of worldwide protectionism and the Great Depression, and yet her dependence on U.S. oil and raw materials increased. There was an explosion on the Japanese railroad line at Mukden on September 18, 1931, which was blamed on local Chinese. One faction in the Japanese military had been pressing their government to take a more expansionist role in Manchuria. The Japanese responded harshly to the Mukden explosion, fought the bandits, and seized several of China's northern provinces. Manchuria gained its independence and then on September 15, 1932, became a protectorate of Japan, Manchukuo. U.S. Secretary of State Stimson held that Japan's intervention in Manchuria was a violation of international treaties and proposed, in place of the Open Door Agreement, a non-recognition doctrine which would deny recognition to any nation which had acquired territory by aggression. Stimson wanted the U.S. to impose sanctions against Japan for her aggression in Manchuria. President Hoover vetoed the idea. He was opposed in every fiber of his being to any action which might lead to American participation in the struggles of the Far East. In this view, he had the support of the American people. The League of Nations investigated the Manchurian incident and issued a report blaming Japan. Japan and Britain disagreed with the League's report. However, it was accepted, and in 1933, Japan withdrew from the League. After the death in 1925 of Sun Yat-sen, revolutionary leader and president of the Southern Chinese Republic, Chiang Kai-shek assumed the presidency. Chiang began trying to unite the country. The communists intervened, sometimes for, sometimes against, Chiang's nationalist forces. There was almost constant fighting by and among Chiang's nationalists, the warlords, the Chinese communists, and the Russian communists. When the Chinese boycotted Japanese textiles, the Japanese retaliated by bombarding and sending troops to the Shanghai International Settlement, January 28 through March 4, 1932. Many were killed. U.S. sympathy was with the Chinese. The Japanese were portrayed as the aggressors. After fierce fighting, the Japanese retreated temporarily and the boycott was brought to an end. Another time when Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces threatened Japan's economic and industrial interests in Manchuria, Japan called up 5,000 troops to protect her merchants there. The Russian communists and the Chinese communists were both heavily involved. Finally, after communist leader Mao Zedong told Chiang that if he stopped fighting the Red Army, the Chinese-Soviet government would help Chiang against Japan. Chang finally agreed. The Kuomintang Communist Agreement, July 5, 1937, called for the nationalists and communists to cooperate in driving the Japanese out of Peking 
and the rest of North China. Peace prevailed there for a time, but not for long. Official U.S. Foreign Policy During the 1930s, U.S. opinion opposed involvement in foreign wars. Congress responded in 1935 by passing neutrality legislation prohibiting trade in arms or implements of war with any belligerent nation. As FDR signed this legislation, SJ Resolution 173, on August 31, 1935, he explained that it was intended as an expression of the fixed desire of the government and the people of the United States to avoid any action which might involve us in war. The purpose, he said, is wholly excellent. Emphasizing U.S. neutrality in international conflicts still more emphatically, Roosevelt added, the policy of the government is definitely committed to the maintenance of peace and the avoidance of any entanglements which would lead us into conflict. In spite of FDR's professed neutrality, however, he was apparently already considering the possibility of conflict with Japan. The Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, whose duty it was to collect and analyze pertinent information for the Navy, was then assembling material about potential Japanese and communist espionage agents. For instance, the ONI carded Japanese residents in the New York area for use in corralling the individuals for internment or breaking down any system of espionage or sabotage in the event of a conflict. In an August 10, 1936 memorandum to Chief of Naval Operations Admiral William D. Leahy, FDR sanctioned this operation. He expressed his support for locating all Japanese for possible incarceration in a concentration camp during a crisis. FDR was a charming, charismatic, and convincing speaker. From 1935, when he signed the Neutrality Act, until the attack on Pearl Harbor, he reassured the American people from time to time of his steadfast commitment to peace. He delivered one of his most eloquent anti-war speeches in Chautauqua, New York, only four days after signing the August 10 Memorandum about the possible incarceration of U.S.-Japanese residents. I have seen war. I have seen war on land and sea. I have seen blood running from the wounded. I have seen men coughing out their gassed lungs. I have seen the dead in the mud. I have seen cities destroyed. I have seen 200 limping, exhausted men come out of line, the survivors of a regiment of 1,000 that went forward 48 hours before. I have seen children starving. I have seen the agony of mothers and wives. I hate war. I wish I could keep war from all nations, but that is beyond my power. I can at least make certain that no act of the United States helps to produce or to promote war. I speak from a long experience. The effective maintenance of American neutrality depends today, as in the past, on wisdom and determination of whoever at the moment occupies the offices of President and Secretary of State. During this period, Germany and Japan were being driven together out of fear of the expansionist and disruptive policies of their common enemy, the Soviet Union. Both Germany and Japan recognized that the aim of the USSR-sponsored Communist International known as Comintern, is to disintegrate and subdue existing states by all the means at its command. They held that the Comintern not only endangers their internal peace and social well-being, but is also a menace to the peace of the world. So Germany and Japan decided to cooperate against communist subversive activities. On November 15, 1936, they signed the German-Japanese Anti-Comintern Pact. Prospects for Peace in the Far East there was a turnover in the Japanese cabinet on June 4, 1937. Prince Kanoye became prime minister. Kanoye desired and sought peace with the United States, but there was still turmoil and little prospect of peace in the Far East. 
1937, the USSR led nationalist China to understand that if it would undertake to offer armed resistance to Japan, it would confidently expect the armed support of the Soviet Union. Not long after receiving this assurance, the Chinese did resist the Japanese. On July 7, 1937, a Japanese soldier was missing at the Marco Polo Bridge in China. The Chinese not only refused to search for him, they also refused to let the Japanese do so. Japanese troops resorted to force and soldiers from the two countries clashed. The inclination was to blame this incident on impetuous Japanese soldiers at the scene. However, the fault may not have been entirely on the Japanese side. The U.S. ambassadors in France, China, and Japan all cabled Secretary of State Hull, denying this anti-Japanese contention. Reports had come to their attention indicating that the Chinese had the encouragement and support of the Russians in fighting the Japanese, that the Russians had been very generous, that they had furnished China with munitions, costing 150 million Chinese dollars, and that they had even shipped some munitions before China had promised to pay for them. U.S. Ambassador to Japan Joseph C. Grew wired Hull that there was not sufficient evidence to justify the hypothesis that either the Japanese government or the army deliberately engineered the Marco Polo Bridge incident in order to force a showdown. Grew also found that communist agitators contributed to the crisis by disseminating misinformation with regard to the concentration of both Chinese and Japanese troops. Sino-Japanese hostilities broke out. Tokyo announced a punitive expedition against the Chinese troops who have been taking acts derogatory to the prestige of the Empire of Japan. This was the beginning of the undeclared Japanese-Chinese War. Bombers struck three cities and shelled others as ground troops attacked Chinese forces all over the Peking area. The outbreak of fighting between the Japanese and the Chinese aroused strong feelings among many in the United States who had emotional ties to China. The Neutrality Act, then in force, prevented the U.S. from using U.S. ships to send arms to either side. On September 14, acting under this act, FDR forbade the shipment of arms on U.S. government-owned ships to either China or Japan, thus averting the possibility of a Japanese blockade of U.S. shipping had aid to China been allowed. Throughout this entire period, U.S. and British trade was continuing, in accord with China's agreement to open the country to foreign traders. In Chicago, on October 5, 1937, President Roosevelt spoke out against nations that were engaging in aggression. The peace, the freedom, and the security of 90% of the population of the world is being jeopardized by the remaining 10%, who are threatening a breakdown of all international order and law. It seems to be unfortunately true that the epidemic of world lawlessness is spreading. When an epidemic of physical disease starts to spread, the community approves and joins in a quarantine of the patients in order to protect the health of the community against the spread of the disease. War is a contagion, whether it be declared or undeclared. It can engulf states and peoples remote from the original scene of hostilities. We are adopting such measures as will minimize our risk of involvement, but we cannot have complete protection in a world of disorder in which confidence and security have broken down. Roosevelt had not mentioned Japan, but a State Department release the next day made it clear that he had been referring to Japan's attack on China. Since the beginning of the present controversy in the Far East, the government of the United States has urged upon both the Chinese and Japanese governments that they refrain from hostilities and has offered to be of assistance in an effort to find some means acceptable to both parties of the conflict of composing by Pacific methods the situation in the Far East. In the light of the unfolding developments in the Far East, 
the government of the United States has been forced to the conclusion that the action of Japan in China is inconsistent with the principles which should govern the relationship between nations. The Nine Power Treaty of February 6, 1922, and the Kellogg-Bryan Pact of August 27, 1928. On December 12, the United States was brought close to war when the Japanese sank the USS Panay, a U.S. gunboat, and three standard oil tankers in the Chinese Yangtze River. Several Americans were killed. However, sentiment in the United States was strongly opposed to war over the loss of a few American lives in the Far East. Therefore, when the Japanese apologized, demoted several top military officials, and paid several million dollars in indemnity, the matter was considered closed. Serious fighting continued in China, however. In December 1937, Japanese forces took Nanking, committing mass murder and rape. Over 50,000 Chinese men were killed, many thousands more women raped, 200,000 to 300,000 civilians slaughtered. Japan was clearly the culprit. Anticipating War in the Pacific In late December, FDR ordered Admiral Royal E. Ingersoll, Director of the U.S. War Plans Division, to London for conversations with officials of the British Admiralty. According to Ingersoll, it was generally assumed in military circles at that time that sooner or later the United States would become involved in a war against Japan in the Pacific, a war that would involve the British, the Dutch, the Russians, and possibly the Chinese. This London meeting was to explore U.S.-British arrangements in such an event for command, communications, ciphers, intelligence, etc. The conference took place during the first two or three weeks of January 1938. No firm commitments were made. On November 3, 1938, Japan announced a new order in China, a tripartite relationship of mutual aid and coordination between Japan, Manchukuo, Japan's name for Japanese-occupied Manchuria, and China. Prime Minister Prince Kanoye pointed out in a public statement that the Chiang Kai-shek administration in China was little more than a local regime. Kanoye declared further that Japan wanted the development and cooperation, not the ruin of China, and that she wished to establish stable conditions in the Far East without prejudice to the interests and rights of other foreign powers. However, Kanoye went on. The world knows that Japan is earnestly determined to fight it out with communism. What the common turn intends to do is Bolshevization of the Far East and disturbance of world peace. And lest there be any misunderstanding, he added, Japan expects to suppress in a drastic manner the sources of the evils of Bolshevization and their subversive activities. Kanoye's position was that Japan's conflict was not with China so much as it was with the common turn that was backing China. Japan compared her Manchurian venture to the way England had acquired her empire, India, Hong Kong, etc and to the way the United States had wrested its western territory from the Indians. And Japan thought the United States Monroe Doctrine protecting the western hemisphere from foreign intervention was similar to Japan's wish to preserve Asia for Asians. According to Japan's foreign minister Yasuke Matsuoka, 1940-1941, Japan was fighting for two goals, to prevent Asia from falling completely under the white man's domination and to save China from communism. In the United States' view, Japan's new order was violating the rights of Americans in China. In a note to the Japanese foreign minister, November 7, 1938, Ambassador Gru objected to actions Japan was taking on the mainland. He could see no reason why U.S. shipping on the Yangtze River should be restricted, since hostilities in that area had ceased. Gru also claimed, November 21, that there was no real excuse for the frequent accidental incidents in China involving not only the loss of American property, 
but the loss of American life and the desecration of our flag. The Japanese continued to win in China. They took Hankow and Canton. They were preventing China's access to the coast and thus making it increasingly difficult for her to obtain supplies. As a result, Chiang was forced to move his government inland to Chongqing. But the Japanese were conquering territory, not people, and by the beginning of 1939, they were still far from final victory. They had lost thousands of men, millions of yen, and incurred the wrath of the Western world, and Americans in particular. In 1937 through 1938, the Chinese built the Burma Road over rugged mountain terrain, a remarkable feat of engineering. The Burma Road was opened on December 2, 1938. War supplies could then be landed in Rangoon, British Burma, shipped by train to Lashio, then over the Burma Road to Kunming in China's Yunnan province, and then to Chongqing. Although most Americans did not want to become involved in a war, by the end of 1938, FDR was beginning to resent the Neutrality Act. His sympathies in the Far East lay with China in her struggle against Japan, and the act prevented the United States from lending support. Out of his desire to aid China, FDR sought an end to the blanket embargo on shipping arms to belligerent nations. So in his January 4, 1939 message to Congress, he launched a campaign for the act's repeal. Our neutrality laws may operate unevenly and unfairly, may actually give aid to an aggressor and deny it to the victim. Congress rejected his reasoning, and on March 20th, the Senate turned down Roosevelt's proposal for repeal. FDR repeated his request. Hull also asked for its repeal. Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's view of the Far East situation differed from that of U.S. officials. Chamberlain did not want to prevent Japan from obtaining the military supplies she needed for her campaign in China. He recognized the actual situation in China where hostilities on a large scale are in progress and noted that as long as that state of affairs continues to exist, the Japanese forces in China have special requirements for the purpose of safeguarding their own security and maintaining public order. His Majesty's government have no intention of countenancing any acts or measures prejudicial to the attainment of the above-mentioned objects by Japanese forces. Chamberlain urged that British authorities and British nationals in China refrain from such acts and measures. The United States and Japan had been trading partners for years. A commercial treaty permitting and encouraging trade between the two countries had been in effect since 1911. Under its terms, if one party wanted to terminate the treaty, it was required to notify the other party six months in advance. In accordance with that provision, Hull gave the Japanese ambassador notice on July 26, 1939, of our intentions to terminate. This dealt a heavy blow to the Japanese economy, also to world trade, and it represented a significant deterioration in our relations with Japan. War Breaks Out in Europe On September 1, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Britain and France immediately notified Germany that unless it withdrew its forces, they would honor their agreement to defend Poland. Hitler did not pull out. Two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. World War II had begun. At this juncture, FDR again reassured the country of our neutrality. He went on the radio on September 3 and announced in his very convincing manner, this nation will remain a neutral nation. Two days later, on September 5, President Roosevelt issued an official proclamation of neutrality prescribing certain duties with respect to the proper observance, safeguarding, and enforcement of such neutrality. It called on all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States to exercise an impartial neutrality. 
On September 11, only a very few days later, FDR initiated a secret correspondence with a former naval person in belligerent Great Britain's cabinet. This former naval person was Winston Churchill, newly recalled by Prime Minister Chamberlain to serve as First Lord of the Admiralty, the same position Churchill had held during World War I. Churchill did not become Prime Minister until May 1, 1940. Roosevelt, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I, had visited England and been entranced by the British Espionage and Intelligence Services. But he hadn't then met Churchill. FDR's first letter to Churchill began, I want you to know how glad I am that you are back again in the Admiralty. He continued, What I want you and the Prime Minister to know is that I shall at all times welcome it if you will keep me in touch personally with anything you want me to know about. You can always send sealed letters through your diplomatic pouch or my pouch. This expression of warm friendship was hardly the impartial neutrality he was asking of all persons within the jurisdiction of the United States. U.S. Neutrality Patrol in the Atlantic On September 6, Roosevelt announced that the Navy would start a neutrality patrol of the Atlantic up to 200 or 300 miles offshore, ostensibly to protect U.S. merchantmen. The patrolling ships were to report all belligerent warships except convoy escorts by radio. In the event of a submarine contact, the movements of the submarine shall be observed and a surveillance patrol maintained in the general area. And then on September 8, he proclaimed a national emergency. Disturbed at the delay in getting the neutrality patrol underway, FDR sent a secret message on October 9, 1939 to the U.S. Navy Department. When any aircraft or surface ship sights a submarine, a report thereof will be rushed to the Navy Department for immediate action. This report was to be submitted in English, permitting anyone capable of monitoring the patrol's English-language transmissions to benefit from the sightings. The plane or surface ship, FDR continued, will remain in contact for as long as possible. Planes or Navy or Coast Guard ships may report the sighting of any submarines or suspicious surface ships in plain English. Loss of contact with surface ships cannot be tolerated. Signed, FDR. Most Americans were, of course, very much concerned about the war going on in Europe. To many, it looked like a repeat of the 1914 through 1918 World War. Some wanted the United States to join England and France immediately against Germany. But the majority were still anxious to stay out of the struggle. FDR, always sensitive to public opinion, again reassured the people of our neutrality. At a New York Herald Tribune forum on October 26, he stated most emphatically, In and out of Congress, we have heard orators and commentators and others beating their breasts and proclaiming against sending the boys of American mothers to fight on the battlefields of Europe. That I do not hesitate to label as one of the worst fakes in current history. It is a deliberate setting up of an imaginary boogeyman. The simple truth is that no person in any responsible place in the National Administration in Washington or in any state government, or in any city government, or in any county government, has ever suggested in any shape, manner, or form the remotest possibility of sending the boys of American mothers to fight on the battlefields of Europe. That is why I label that argument a shameless and dishonest fake. Finally in November, after German Chancellor Adolf Hitler had attacked Poland, and after Great Britain and France had declared war, Roosevelt's campaign against the Neutrality Act met with some success. Congress repealed the arms embargo, which had prohibited all sales of military supplies to any belligerent nation, and replaced it with a cash-and-carry policy. The Neutrality Act of 1939 permitted cash-and-carry transactions. 
Arms and other military supplies could be sold to belligerent nations if they were paid for in cash, not credit, and if they were not transported in U.S. vessels. Our neutrality patrol had not been in operation two months when the U.S. heavy cruiser Tuscaloosa, on patrol in the Atlantic, trailed and greeted by radio the German ocean liner Columbus. Columbus, on a cruise in the Caribbean when war broke out in Europe, had managed to reach Veracruz, Mexico. Her captain wanted to dispose of his ship there because he did not believe he would be able to run the blockade to return to Germany. However, Berlin ordered him home. He set out on December 13 and soon found his ship accompanied in relays by two U.S. destroyers. As Columbus sailed eastward, Tuscaloosa took over surveillance. In accordance with FDR's directive, it announced in English every four hours the position of the German ship. The British destroyer Hyperion heard the announcement and investigated. She located Columbus on December 19 around 425 miles off Cape May, New Jersey, and fired two shots. The Germans scuttled their ship. Two of her crewmen were lost. Tuscaloosa picked up the 555 German survivors and brought them to this country as distressed mariners. At the president's request, little publicity was given this incident. Admiral Harold R. Stark, U.S. Chief of Naval Operations, radioed Captain Harry A. Batt of Tuscaloosa, asking that he give the impression his ship had come upon the German liner by accident, and fortunately just in time to pursue her humane role. Captain Batt was to state that the British ship had not appeared ready to commence an action. Stark noted, We do not desire you to make public the details of the work of our patrol. Nevertheless, accounts of the event did appear, although they caused little excitement. People apparently approved, considering this consistent with the patrol's ostensible purpose, to protect U.S. merchantmen and to keep hostilities from invading our shores. FDR again professed devotion to neutrality when he addressed Congress on January 3, 1940. The first president of the United States warned us against entangling foreign alliances. The present president of the United States subscribes to and follows that precept. The next day, he appointed Navy Admiral J.O. Richardson to be Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet, Sincus, replacing Admiral Claude C. Block. Richardson was an old Navy hand, well-equipped through training and experience to take over the operation of the fleet. Command was transferred on January 6, 1940. U.S. Relations with Japan The six months' notice we had given Japan of our intention to terminate our 1911 commercial treaty expired on January 26, 1940. With the cancellation of that treaty, uncertainty prevailed with respect to U.S.-Japanese trade. The Japanese were more or less assured by U.S. officials, however, that they could expect trade to continue about as usual. But the abrogation of the treaty meant that tariffs, quotas, or embargoes could be imposed at any time. The President and Congress were thus in a position to dictate the terms under which Japan might continue to trade with us. Japan at this time was trying to establish the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Scheme, New Order, that she had announced in November. On February 1, the Japanese Foreign Minister invited other nations to join in this effort. Japan, he said, welcomed foreign trade and investments, and he asked us to participate. But we turned a cold shoulder on him and on Japan. British Military Procurement and Politics 1940 was an election year. FDR decided to break all precedents and run for a third term as president. For most of FDR's time in office, his Treasury Secretary was Henry J. Morgenthau, Jr. Morgenthau was Jewish and thus, understandably, strongly anti-Hitler, eager to help England and to get the United States into the war against Germany. 
Morgenthau served as Roosevelt's designated agent from September 1939 to April 1940 for dealing with the Anglo-French purchasing mission, newly established to handle British and French procurement. His sympathies clearly lay with the Allied cause. He felt frustrated by the Neutrality Act, which put all purchases on a cash-and-carry basis, thus limiting the assistance that could be given England and France. It was his, Morgenthau's, intention to help the democracies as much as possible. He was making an unparalleled effort to supply the Allies, and he encouraged the British and French to make purchases as large as possible, for he believed they were not arming fast enough. Although the United States was still officially neutral in the conflict between Germany and Great Britain, Morgenthau, as FDR's intermediary, was seeking for the Allies some of the newest superchargers developed by the U.S. Armed Forces, but not yet released, as well as certain engines and designs classified as secret. Secretary of War Harry Hines Woodring, who had assumed that post in 1936, and Commanding General of the Army Air Corps Henry Harley, Hap Arnold, refused the necessary permission. Morgenthau had therefore once again to take the Allies' case to the President. At a White House conference March 12, 1940, he told the President if he wanted me to do this job, the Anglo-French purchasing mission, he would just have to do something to halt the opposition coming from the War Department and the military. Roosevelt then announced that, in Morgenthau's words, there was to be no more resistance from the War Department. Uncooperative officers would find themselves assigned to duty in Guam. Well, FDR said, if Arnold won't conform, maybe we will have to move him out of town. The president continued, Arnold has to keep his mouth shut. He can't see the press anymore. Morgenthau was delighted. He reported to his staff later, oh boy, did General Arnold get it. At that White House conference, FDR revealed that the British and French were not his only worries. He was also concerned about the U.S. economy. The New Deal programs had not solved the unemployment problem. There were as many people unemployed in 1938 as there had been when he took office. The only way FDR knew to provide jobs to U.S. workers was by government spending and the European cash-and-carry war orders were putting people to work. These foreign orders, he told Morgenthau, mean prosperity in this country and we can't elect a Democratic Party unless we get prosperity. Secretary Morgenthau agreed, and he's right. In May, FDR asked Congress for more funds, over a billion dollars, to pay for 50,000 planes. He was impatient. Only two weeks later, he urged Congress to hurry up with the funds. Thus, in that election year, FDR sought to solve his political problem by putting workers to work on war orders. The manufacture of 50,000 planes would create jobs. FDR probably gave little thought to the fact that the cost of these 50,000 planes would be added to the federal debt and thus to the problems of future presidents. On April 17, 1940, Secretary of State Cordell Hull warned Japan that the U.S. would oppose intervention in the domestic affairs of the Netherlands Indies or any alteration of their status quo by other than peaceful processes. British procurement of military supplies from the United States in that election year was precarious. FDR wanted to help, but the American public did not fully approve of the administration's partiality for the British and French. Since Roosevelt was anxious to avoid arousing the opposition of the voters who wished the United States to remain neutral, the administration's non-neutral agreements had to be made in secrecy. This was the dilemma that was continuously in the mind of the President and of the Secretary of the Treasury. The Anglo-French Coordinating Committee was thus made aware that in the then state of American public opinion, the administration could not give the Allies all the help it would wish to give. 
the assistance Morgenthau could give the British fluctuated with public opinion. European War Impacts Asian Situation At this time, the Battle of Britain was in full force over England, with German planes flying hundreds of sorties almost nightly over London, British airfields, and airplane factories. She was also losing ships to German submarine attacks in the Atlantic faster than they could be replaced. Her situation was desperate. She had no ships to spare for the defense of Singapore and could not afford to expand the war into the Far East. So when pressured by Japan to close the Burma Road, she agreed. Thus, the main route by which China's Nationalist Army had been able to receive war material was closed for three months from July 18, 1940 to October 18, 1940. Upon the defeat of France in June 1940 by the Nazis, the Japanese began negotiations with the Vichy government of unoccupied France to obtain permission to send troops to French Indochina in order to prevent aid from reaching China by that route. The weak Vichy government, in no position to protest, finally gave permission on September 23rd. The Japanese occupation of French Indochina then began with the arrival of 6,000 Japanese soldiers. Japan joined the Axis powers on September 27, 1940, when she entered into a tripartite pact with Germany and Italy. All three nations pledged total aid to each other if any one of the three were attacked by a third party, with which they were not then at war. German and Japanese relations with the USSR were not to be affected. The British were anxious to avoid war with Japan at almost any price. They realized their territories in Southeast Asia were vulnerable if Japanese forces should move into Indochina. But rather than trying to appease Japan into not striking, which they felt would be interpreted as weakness, they determined to show firmness. Both the United States and Britain decided that the best way to oppose Japan was to strengthen and encourage China. Britain decided in January 1941 to enter into closer relations with Chiang so that if war came, Chiang would help Britain in Burma and Hong Kong. The U.S. government made $100 million available to Chiang in December 1940 and promised him also a supply of up-to-date fighter planes. Britain, even though strapped financially, contributed £5 million to the Chinese Currency Stabilization Fund and granted export credits to China up to a maximum of £3 million. U.S. Fleet Stationed in Pearl Harbor On April 2, 1940, the U.S. fleet left the West Coast for maneuvers in Hawaiian waters. Since the fleet was scheduled to return in early May for war games, the families of the Navy personnel remained on the U.S. mainland. Then on May 4, the newly appointed Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet, Admiral Richardson, received a dispatch from the Chief of Naval Operations Stark. It looks probable but not final that the fleet will remain in Hawaiian waters for a short time after May 9th. Then on May 7, Stark again cabled Richardson from Washington asking him to issue a press release saying, I have requested permission to remain in Hawaiian waters to accomplish some things I wanted to do while here. The department has approved this request. Richardson was told to delay the fleet's departure for a couple of weeks and to carry out regularly scheduled overhauls and movements. At the end of that time, he could expect further instructions. Richardson was disturbed at being asked to make a request for which there was no logical reason. As he explained later, the fleet had just completed its annual fleet problem, the culmination of a year's tactical training. Further, although tactical training of senior officers could be accomplished in Hawaii, Training in air and surface gunnery, which was also necessary, needed large-scale facilities not available there. To use the extra two weeks to advantage called for making adjustments that would result in losing three to six weeks out of a tightly scheduled training year.
Richardson felt that the Navy Department had placed him, the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet, in a completely false position, with a requirement that he announce to the public something which, on its very face, every Tyro ensign would recognize as a phony. He was even more disturbed by the cable he received from Washington a week later, reporting on the war in Europe and concluding, present indications are that fleet will remain Hawaiian waters for some time. Richardson was very much opposed to retaining the fleet in Hawaii. He went to Washington several weeks later to explain his reasons to the president in person. From OPNAV, Office, Chief of Naval Operations, to Sinkus, Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Fleet. Some British authorities feel that Italy may join Germany in active participation in immediate future. This feeling is not shared by other close observers. Our State Department inclined to disagree. Regarding Dutch East Indies, Japan has made two statements which have taken at their face value state they wish status quo preserved. Great Britain has stated she has no intention of interfering with status quo, and there is an unconfirmed report that the French Foreign Office has issued a similar statement. Present indications are that fleet will remain Hawaiian waters for some time. Hope to advise you more definitely next week. Chapter 2, Foreign Relations in an Election Year U.S.-British Cooperation On May 10, 1940, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of England. He wrote Roosevelt on May 15, Although I have changed my office, I am sure you would not wish me to discontinue our intimate private correspondence. The two men continued to enjoy the close relationship begun shortly after Britain and France went to the defense of Poland against Hitler in September 1939. Also, about this time, Roosevelt established the first hotline telephone in the White House, enabling him, president of an officially neutral nation, to communicate privately with Churchill, head of government of a nation at war. The hotline left no paper trail, no printed record of their conversations. Churchill's May 15 letter pleaded to the United States for help. I trust you realize, Mr. President, that the voice and force of the United States may count for nothing if they are withheld too long. All I ask now is that you should proclaim non-belligerency, which would mean that you would help us with everything short of actually engaging armed forces. Churchill listed Britain's immediate needs. First of all, the loan of 40 or 50 of your older destroyers. Secondly, we want several hundred of the latest types of aircraft. Thirdly, anti-aircraft equipment and ammunition. Fourthly, to purchase steel in the United States. Churchill continued, We shall go on paying dollars for as long as we can, but I should like to feel reasonably sure that when we can pay no more, you will give us the stuff all the same. Churchill's fifth need was to have a U.S. squadron visit Irish ports, where there had been reports of Germans dropped by parachutes. Then Churchill added, Sixthly, I am looking to you to keep that Japanese dog quiet in the Pacific, using Singapore, in Southeast Asia in any way convenient. Roosevelt assured Churchill the next day that he was most happy to continue our private correspondence. I am, of course, giving every possible consideration to the suggestions made in your message. Then he took Churchill's several requests up one by one. With respect to the destroyers, FDR was not certain that it would be wise for that suggestion to be made to the Congress at this moment. As for the aircraft, he wrote, we are now doing everything within our power to make it possible for the Allied governments to obtain the latest types of aircraft in the United States. Concerning anti-aircraft equipment and ammunition, the most favorable consideration will be given to the request. And with respect to steel, he understood, satisfactory arrangements have been made for its purchase. 
FDR was also willing to consider a visit of a U.S. squadron to Irish ports. To the request that the United States keep Japan quiet, FDR responded, As you know, the American fleet is now concentrated at Hawaii, where it will remain at least for the time being. Churchill's letter was dated May 15, British time. Given the 10-hour difference between London and Hawaii, some 15 to 20 hours could have lapsed by the time, late on the 15th of May, when Admiral Richardson, commander of the fleet in Hawaii, received the OPNAV, Chief of Naval Operations, cable advising him that the fleet was to remain in Hawaiian waters for some time. In view of the timing, it is not inconceivable that the OPNAV cable was prompted, at least in part, by Churchill's urging. The European situation worsens as France falls. William C. Bullitt, whom FDR had sent to the USSR in 1933 as the first United States ambassador to that country, left Moscow in 1936 to become U.S. ambassador to France. By the spring of 1940, Britain's troops were being hard-pressed on the continent by the Nazi military forces. In May, they were retreating to Dunkirk on the English Channel. From there, they were evacuated to England thanks to their heroic and dramatic rescue by a hastily mobilized British fleet of 850 ships, large and small, military and private, tugs, yachts, fishing smacks, launches. Thus, more than 200,000 British, French, and Belgian troops eluded the encircling Germans, May 26 through June 4. By June, the German Blitzkrieg was bearing down on Paris. Raynaud described France's desperate plight to Roosevelt on June 10. For six days and six nights, our divisions have been fighting without one hour of rest. Today, the enemy is almost at the gates of Paris. Bullet wrote Roosevelt, May 31, 1940, on behalf of French Foreign Minister Paul Reynaud, that the French were most grateful for the presence of your fleet in the Pacific. Without firing a shot, it is keeping the war from spreading to the French and British empires in the Far East. We hope it will stay there. Reynaud requested that the U.S. Atlantic fleet be sent to the Mediterranean. By keeping the enemy at bay there, your Atlantic fleet, he said, can play exactly the same role in the Mediterranean as the U.S. fleet is now playing in the Pacific. Incidentally, FDR wrote Reynaud in longhand, further strong steps were taken yesterday by me in regard to the Mediterranean threat. Roosevelt again on June 13 appeared to hold out hope to Reynaud. This government is doing everything in its power to make available to the Allied governments the material they so urgently require, and our efforts to do still more are being redoubled. When Churchill saw a copy of the secret message, he wired Roosevelt that he considered it absolutely vital that this message should be published tomorrow, June 14, in order that it may play the decisive part in turning the course of world history. Then, Roosevelt must have realized that he had exceeded his authority in giving such an assurance to a belligerent nation. He wired Ambassador Kennedy in London. My message to Reno not to be published in any circumstances. It was in no sense intended to commit and does not commit this government to the slightest military activities in support of the Allies. There is, of course, no authority except in Congress to make any commitment of this nature. German troops entered Paris on June 14, 1940. On June 17, the French sued for peace. France and Germany signed an armistice five days later. France had fallen. FDR moves toward a third term as president. Since February 1940, FDR had been hinting to various friends and confidants that he might run for a third term, thus breaking with the precedent set by George Washington and followed by all succeeding U.S. presidents. He made no public announcement, but he had apparently settled the matter in his own mind by June. 
Because of the international situation, the fall of France, and his unannounced intentions, FDR considered it important to have a united country. He decided to replace the two cabinet officers who had obstructed some of his foreign policy initiatives and make his cabinet bipartisan. Roosevelt maneuvered the resignations of Secretary of War Woodring and Navy Secretary Charles Edison, who had opposed FDR's proposal to transfer to England some army planes and 50 destroyers, and offered their posts to two Republicans, Alfred M. Landon and Frank Knox, the 1936 Republican candidates for president and vice president. Landon turned down the offer, but Mr. Knox accepted, agreeing to serve as Secretary of the Navy. Roosevelt then looked for another prominent Republican who shared his views on foreign policy. He turned to Henry L. Stimson. As Hoover's Secretary of State in the 1920s, Stimson had long wanted the United States to take a firm stand against Japan's operations on the Asian mainland. His position recently set forth in a talk to some of his fellow alumni at the Yale University commencement was that the United States should reject so-called neutrality and take a stronger stand against Japan and Germany. The next day, June 18, he expressed similar ideas in a radio talk, and his remarks were reported the following morning on page one of the New York Times. FDR phoned him that very day, offering him the post of Secretary of War. When Stimson asked if the president had seen the story in the Times, FDR said he had, and according to Stimson's diary, he agreed with it. Thus reassured, Stimson accepted the position. He was sworn in as Secretary of War on July 10, 1940. These two new cabinet officers soon began to influence U.S. foreign policy. Some Navy officials even dated our commitment to war from about July 1, 1940, when Roosevelt dropped Edison and Woodring and replaced them with two men more willing to follow Roosevelt's lead. Stimson, the new Secretary of War, began almost immediately to push for compulsory military training. His efforts were soon crowned with success. The Selective Service Act of 1940 was passed, and the president signed it into law on September 16. British Secret Agent in the U.S. By the summer of 1940, England's plight was desperate. Germany controlled most of Europe. Her planes were being readied for nightly bombings of Britain's cities. Her U-boats were preparing to attack British shipping in the Atlantic on a massive scale. In June, the British sent to New York Sir William Stevenson, who opened offices in New York in Radio City. Ostensibly a public relations man, Stevenson was actually a British agent known as Intrepid, a secret envoy of Churchill's and chief of British security coordination. Intrepid's express purpose was to get the United States into the war. FDR reportedly told Stevenson on one occasion, apparently he wasn't kidding, I'm your biggest undercover agent. Stevenson met with Roosevelt in Washington. Secret arrangements were made for U.S.-British cooperation and for sharing of confidential information with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI. In retrospect, the foreign policy decisions made in Washington from that time on seem to have been aimed relentlessly at taking the United States down the road to war on the side of England and against Germany and Japan. U.S. Encourages British Military Purchases Britain's and France's cash-and-carry purchases permitted under the 1939 Neutrality Act were a stimulus to U.S. producers of arms and other military supplies. Those huge sales had relieved much of the mass unemployment that had plagued this country since the Depression and that FDR's New Deal had failed to solve. But with the fall of France, only the British were still in a position to buy, and they were fast running out of cash. Roosevelt feared that if their purchases came to an end, mass unemployment would return. He was looking for ways to keep workers employed when the British could no longer pay cash. On July 3, Lord Lothian, 
British ambassador to the United States, presented to the State Department a formal statement on the status of his country's finances. Britain was overcommitted. The United Kingdom would pay as long as she could, but, in all frankness, it will be utterly impossible for them, His Majesty's government, to continue to do this for any indefinite period. This was not a request for credit. The United States ambassador in London had warned that such a request would be unwise. Rather, it reflected British concern with their need to enter into long-term contracts so as to feel confident of their sources of supply. The British were reassured by Washington officials. Lord Lothian was told informally 10 days later not to worry too much on the score of dollars. According to U.S. Treasury Secretary Morgenthau, the president personally charged him with the responsibility of seeing that everything be done for them, the British, so that they could not quit fighting. Morgenthau asked the British for a detailed explanation of their finances. In mid-July, a representative of the British Treasury, Sir Frederick Phillips, was sent to Washington to report. The British were then placing orders for aircraft, and Morgenthau thought, the scope of British purchasing plans would probably leave England short of gold within six months. On July 24, Morgenthau gave Arthur Purvis, head of the Anglo-French Purchasing Mission, bold advice. You've talked about how the British would like 3,000 planes a month. Say to William S. Knudsen, chairman of the Council of National Defense, you're ready to order them. Don't worry about the authorization. You'll get it all right. You've got to bluff. Stick to the 3,000 planes and put it up to Knudsen as though it were an offer you had been thinking about for weeks. Tell Knudsen you want 3,000 planes and I'll back you up. As he recalled later, the tactic worked. On July 25, when reporters asked Morgenthau whether the British were able to pay for the planes they were ordering, he replied he was not worried about a lack of funds. They have plenty of money. Plenty. To the British embassy, this implied ultimate financial assistance by the United States. No promise of any kind, however, had been given. The British war chest was emptying faster than the Treasury had expected. It was clear that only the United States government was left. Without its aid, purchasing from the United States must cease. Yet according to Morgenthau, the present temper of the country was absolutely opposed to making loans or anything like that to the British. Phillips, the British Treasury officer sent to Washington to discuss the liquidation of England's dollar assets, told Morgenthau the British plan to sell gold and securities to meet their deficit. That would have two healthy effects, Morgenthau said. It would help to finance the purchase of necessary war materials, and it would demonstrate to the American public that England was doing everything possible in her own behalf. And the demonstration that Britain was doing everything she could might in time bring American opinion to support a loan or gift. 1940 was an election year in the United States. The British realized that no aid could be given before the November presidential election. Moreover, the British recognized that any commitments made should not become public knowledge. Nevertheless, the financial talks with Phillips in July were not too discouraging. They ended with an invitation for him to come again in the autumn after the election. Because the British were running out of dollars so fast and because exposure of London's plight might threaten negotiations with the United States, British Treasury officials tried their best to follow U.S. advice. If the British were to expect financial assistance from the United States, and if the critical U.S. legislation was to go through as speedily as possible after the election, the American people had to be persuaded that the British were doing their best to help themselves, that they were in fact liquidating all their assets in gold. Throughout the summer, 1940, the American administration had been by no means backward in telling the British how they could get by until massive aid was forthcoming. 
Spokesmen for the United States offered many creative and ingenious suggestions as to how the British might economize, scrape together as much gold as possible, liquidate assets in the United States, and even how they might borrow by offering the British-owned railroads in Argentina as collateral. Secret U.S.-British Staff Conversations At the suggestion of the British Ambassador Lord Lothian on August 6, FDR sent to London for staff conversations three U.S. military officers, representatives of the Navy, Army, and Air Force, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations Rear Admiral Robert L. Gormley, Chief of the Army's War Plans Division Major General George V. Strong, and Commanding General of the GHQ Air Force Major General Delos C. Emmons. They sailed on what was supposed to have been a secret mission, but the news leaked out. One outcome of their conference was an agreement in principle on methods by which the sources of information at the disposal of the United States might be placed at the disposal of the British government. By agreeing to share our information with the British, we were taking one more step away from neutrality. The British were anxious that such an exchange of information should be placed upon a regular basis. Lord Lothian later revived the proposal. Trade Treaty with Japan Ended As the United States' commercial treaty with Japan had expired on January 26, 1940, Roosevelt was able, on July 5, 1941, to prohibit the export without a license of aircraft engines and strategic materials to Japan. Then on July 31, he embargoed aviation gas. From that time on, U.S.-Japanese relations deteriorated as artful diplomacy alternated with concerted acts of harassment. The international situation both in Europe and in the Far East was becoming increasingly ominous during the summer of 1940. Our ambassador to Japan, Joseph C. Grew, warned FDR that an oil embargo might cause Japan to institute sanctions against the United States, and that sanctions could lead to war. In spite of his warning, however, we banned the export of aviation gasoline to Japan. Japan resented this move. To compensate for the loss, she began to build planes that could operate on ordinary gasoline. Japanese diplomatic code broken. In August, the U.S. Army and Navy communications experts succeeded in breaking the top Japanese diplomatic code. Japanese messages at the time were encoded on an extremely intricate kind of typewriter, actually two typewriters connected by wires with complex coding wheels and switches. When a message was typed on one machine, the words were printed out mechanically on the other in code. Every few days, the arrangement of coding wheels and switches was altered so as to change the cipher. To break this code, it was necessary to build a machine that could do what the Japanese machine could do and that would give the same results as the Japanese machine would give whenever it was adjusted. And this task had to be accomplished without having any clues as to the nature of the encoding typewriter or of when and how the switches and coding wheels were altered to change the cipher. It was thanks to a suggestion by Navy communications expert Captain L.F. Safford that one of his subordinates in the Army Signal Corps, who had been struggling with the problem for some time, was finally able to solve the puzzle. But note 27 notes. Captain Safford spent many hours with this author, sharing insights gained from his pre-Pearl Harbor work in communications and security, and talking about his experiences and his knowledge of the Japanese intercepts. He played an important role not only in deciphering purple in 1940, but also, as we shall see, in the post-Pearl Harbor investigations. According to David Kahn, in The Code Breakers, The Story of Secret Writing, London, Wheatonfield, Nicholson, 1967, pages 10, 388, and 503 to 504. Commander Lawrence F. Safford founded the Navy's Communication Intelligence Organization. 
One of his principal accomplishments before the outbreak of war was the establishment of the Mid-Pacific Strategic Direction Finder Net and of a similar net for the Atlantic, where it was to play a role of immense importance in the Battle of the Atlantic against the U-boats. He, Safford, built up the Communications Intelligence Organization into what later became OP-20G, and by adding improvements of his own to Edward Hebern's rotor mechanisms, gradually developed cipher machines suitable for the Navy's requirements of speed, reliability, and security. He is the father of the Navy's present cryptologic organization. Thanks to Commander Lawrence F. Safford, head of OP-20G, and father of the Navy's communications intelligence organization, the United States had, upon its entrance into the war, an Atlantic arc of high-frequency direction finders to exploit the U-boat garrulity. After the Japanese diplomatic code was deciphered, the U.S. government was able to read all of Japan's diplomatic messages to and from Tokyo and her representatives in all the capitals of the world. We refer to Japan's diplomatic code as purple and to the information derived from reading it as magic. Destroyers for Bases Deal The first of Churchill's several requests in his May 15, 1940 letter was for the loan of 40 or 50 of your older destroyers. FDR had replied that he was not certain that it would be wise for that suggestion to be made to the Congress at this moment. However, he talked with Chief of Naval Operations Stark about the possibility of making such a transfer. Stark was a serious, well-rounded naval officer. His manner was genial and courteous, not at all gruff or rough. He had graduated from Annapolis in 1903 and had risen up through the ranks. He and Roosevelt had known each other since 1913 when FDR was Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Woodrow Wilson. Stark had then been in command of a destroyer on which FDR used to travel in Maine waters when visiting his family's summer home on Campobello, a small Canadian island just across the border from Maine. The two men had become good friends. Roosevelt liked Stark personally and trusted him as a loyal aide. In 1939, FDR appointed him Chief of Naval Operations. FDR wrote Stark at that time that it would be grand to have you here as CNO. You and I talk the same language. My only objection is that if we get into a war, you will be a desk admiral. But I cannot have you in two places at once. Stark took over as CNO on August 1, 1939. When the question of releasing U.S. destroyers to the British came up, Stark was opposed. A law prohibited the Navy from disposing of anything that the Chief of Naval Operations could not declare unnecessary for the defense of the country, and Stark believed those destroyers were necessary. They were then being used by the Atlantic Patrol. In spite of his geniality, Stark was no doormat that FDR could walk over at will. At times, he spoke up frankly, and he must have on this occasion. FDR was apparently reluctant also, but nevertheless, he decided to acquiesce to Churchill's request and let Britain have the destroyers. He told Stark to make the arrangements. Stark was depressed by FDR's orders. That evening, as Admiral Ben Morial, chief of the Bureau of Yards and Docks, was leaving his office for home, he just happened to stick his head in Stark's office to say goodnight. He noticed that Stark appeared downcast and went in to cheer him up. Stark unburdened himself to Morial. The president had just asked him to give some of the United States overaged destroyers to England. Stark felt that, in ordering him to arrange the transfer, FDR was asking him to do something illegal, thus placing him in a hopeless position. Footnote 31 notes, This high-handed disregard for legal procedure on the part of FDR was not an isolated incident. Stark mentioned a similar incident respecting a dry dock at Pearl Harbor. 
Interview with Author, December 10, 1962. This was long before December 1941. Moriel, whose Bureau of Yards and Docks would be constructing the dry dock, asked for written authorization. When the president refused to authorize the transaction in writing, Stark went out on a limb and provided it himself. Moriel completed the dock 10 months ahead of schedule, some 10 days before the Japanese attack. According to Fuhrer, Administration of the Navy Department in World War II, page 426, this battleship dry dock proved invaluable in repairing damaged ships after the attack. The final deal agreed upon exchanged 50 U.S. destroyers for 99-year leases on bases on the Grand Banks, Newfoundland, Bermuda, the Bahamas, in the Caribbean, Jamaica, St. Lucia, Trinidad, and Antigua, and in British Guyana. Stark reasoned and then certified that the exchange would strengthen the total defense of the United States, and that by this standard, these destroyers were not essential to our defense. We needed the destroyers. We needed the bases more. The Destroyers for Bases executive agreement was announced on September 3 by Roosevelt. This deal, he said, had been worked out in view of the friendly and sympathetic interest of His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom, in the national security of the United States, and their desire to strengthen the ability of the United States to cooperate effectively with the other nations of the Americas in defense of the Western Hemisphere. In view of the desire of the United States to acquire additional air and naval bases in the Caribbean and in British Guyana. The first contingent of eight U.S. destroyers, renovated and outfitted, was turned over to the British in Halifax on September 9. Little or no publicity accompanied the exchange. The men who took these ships to Nova Scotia were told that under no circumstances were the American destroyer men to permit themselves to be photographed in the company of British personnel. The destroyers were soon plying the North Atlantic as escorts to British convoys. The last installment of 10 destroyers was handed over on November 26. On November 1, the Atlantic Squadron of the Unneutral U.S. Neutrality Patrol became known as the Patrol Force of the newly reorganized Atlantic Fleet. Retaining the Fleet at Pearl Harbor The U.S. fleet, which had left the West Coast on April 2, 1940 for maneuvers, had been ordered in May to stay in Hawaii. The Commander-in-Chief, Admiral Richardson, had objected strenuously but to no avail. The fleet remained in Hawaii. In July, Richardson went to Washington to present to his superiors in person the reasons why he believed the fleet should not be retained in Pearl Harbor. He also sought answers to several questions. Why the fleet was being retained there, how long it was expected to stay there, and what efforts were being made to adequately man the fleet. Richardson explained the lack of security at Pearl Harbor. He described the congestion and the difficulty of operating ships in and out of its narrow entrance. He cited the inadequate facilities for fleet services, training, recreation, and housing. He pointed out also that the prolonged and indefinite stay away from the mainland during peacetime was bad for the morale of the men. But perhaps even more important than all these reasons was the fact that the fleet at Pearl Harbor was not in a state of preparedness. If we went to war, it would have to return to the West Coast to be outfitted, and that could involve a net loss of time. Richardson met and talked with the President, Secretaries of State Hull and Navy, Knox, Chief of Naval Operations Stark, Chief of the Bureau of Navigation Chester W. Nimitz, the Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall, State Department officials, and several members of Congress. His arguments as to why the fleet should not be kept in Hawaii seemed to fall on deaf ears. He didn't receive what he considered satisfactory answers to his questions. He testified later that one of Stimson's anti-Japanese appointees in the State Department, Stanley Hornbeck, appeared to be 
exercising a greater influence over the disposition of the fleet than I was. Richardson was called back to Washington a second time in October at the request of the new Secretary of the Navy, Knox. When they met, the talk turned to the possibility of war in the Pacific. The British were planning to reopen the Burma Road shortly so as to be able to supply the Chinese forces from the south. Roosevelt was concerned about Japan's possible reaction. In the event the Japanese took drastic action, he, the president, was considering shutting off all trade between Japan and the Americas, and to this end was considering establishing a patrol of light ships in two lines, west of Hawaii across the Pacific. Richardson asked Knox whether the president was considering a declaration of war. The secretary stated that the president hadn't said and that all he, Knox, knew was what he was told. Richardson was amazed at this proposal. He said, The fleet was not prepared to put such a plan into effect, nor for the war which would certainly result from such a course of action. Richardson also visited the president. With FDR, he went over the personnel situation, pointing out the need for more enlisted men. Roosevelt believed that men in mechanical trades and civil life could be quickly inducted and made adequate sailormen if their services were suddenly required. Richardson explained to FDR that a seasick garage mechanic would be of little use at sea and that it took time for most young men to get their sea legs. Richardson then took up the question of returning the fleet, except for a Hawaiian detachment, to the Pacific coast for training and outfitting. The president stated that the fleet was retained in the Hawaiian area in order to exercise a restraining influence on the actions of Japan. Admiral Richardson doubted it would have that effect, for the Japanese military government knew full well that the U.S. fleet in Hawaii was undermanned and unprepared for war. However, the president insisted, Despite what you believe, I know that the presence of the fleet in the Hawaiian area has had and is now having a restraining influence on the actions of Japan. Richardson asked the president if we were going to enter the war. He replied that if the Japanese attacked Thailand or the Kra Peninsula, the Southeast Asian Peninsula at the southern tip of which Singapore is located, or the Dutch East Indies, we would not enter the war, that if they even attacked the Philippines, he doubted whether we would enter the war, but that they could not always avoid making mistakes, and that as the war continued and the area of operations expanded sooner or later, they would make a mistake and we would enter the war. The discussion with the president waxed hot and heavy. In Richardson's words, I could not help but detect that re-election political considerations, rather than long-range military considerations, were the controlling factor in the president's thinking. It was less than a month before the 1940 presidential election, and the president was reluctant to make any commitment to increase the number of men in the Navy, which, due to the location of naval ships in foreign waters, would seem to run counter to his third-term campaign statements. Finally, when it became fully apparent that he had no intention of accepting my recommendations to permit the fleet to return to the West Coast, I, Richardson, said to him very deliberately, Mr. President, I feel that I must tell you that the senior officers in the Navy do not have the trust and confidence in the civilian leadership of this country that is essential for the successful prosecution of a war in the Pacific. The president, with a look of pained surprise on his face, said, Joe, you just don't understand that this is an election year and there are certain things that can't be done, no matter what, until the election is over and won. Financing of British Arms Purchases Assured The president was also seriously concerned at this time with how the British were to finance their arms purchases. The British Treasury was fast being depleted. There was a growing sense of urgency in London. 
it was difficult for them to know how to proceed. Earlier in the year, the president had shown an interest in regard to British assets in Latin America, including the Argentine railways. He came back to it again in mid-October in a talk with a British ambassador. He thought that by this means the financial crisis might be postponed for a month or two. On October 14, Lord Lothian, the British ambassador, asked Roosevelt and Morgenthau when British Treasury Representative Phillips might return to continue discussions about Britain's financial resources. Lothian was told it would have to wait until after the election. Shortly thereafter, he returned to England for a visit. The impasse with respect to Britain's financial crisis was disguised by the desires and explorations of both sides to find some way out of the maze. The ambassador on his return from London nine weeks later reported that the U.S. administration was still discussing ingenious ways of giving us assistance. The British encountered continued vacillation in their dealings with the United States. Time after time, the British side was told to go ahead with orders, only to find the way blocked by insuperable difficulties. On 20th October, Purvis, Britain's purchasing agent in Washington, reported that in weekend talks with Secretary Morgenthau at the latter's home, he had received a complete green light for the immediate ordering of 9,000 aircraft. In the next few days, Purvis and Sir Walter Layton were told to go ahead with their orders on the assumption that the Reconstruction Finance Corporation would pay for the capital cost. An agreement to this effect was worked out with a War Department. The admonitions to go ahead continued at intervals through December. FDR winds up his election campaign. As the election campaign continued, Roosevelt spoke to the people more than once about his determination to keep the United States out of the war. For example, in Chicago on September 11, I hate war now more than ever. I have one supreme determination to do all that I can to keep war away from these shores for all time. I stand with my party and outside of my party as president of all the people on the Democratic Party platform, the wording that was adopted in Chicago less than two months ago. It said, we will not participate in foreign wars and we will not send our army, naval or air forces to fight in foreign lands outside of the Americas, except in case of attack. While Roosevelt and his administration were reassuring the British off and on of U.S. assistance in their war against Germany, he was reassuring the American voters of our continued neutrality. On October 23, he spoke in Philadelphia. To Republicans and Democrats, to every man, woman, and child in the nation, I say this. Your president and your secretary of state are following the road to peace. We are arming ourselves not for any foreign war. We are arming ourselves not for any purpose of conquest or intervention in foreign disputes. I repeat again that I stand on the platform of our party. It is for peace that I have labored, and it is for peace that I shall labor all the days of my life. Then, on October 30, FDR made a similar pledge to the voters in Boston. And while I am talking to you mothers and fathers, I give you one more assurance. I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. They are going into training to form a force so strong that by its very existence, it will keep the threat of war from our shores. The purpose of our defense is defense. Roosevelt wound up his campaign with talks on Saturday evening, November 2 in Buffalo, New York, and on Sunday, November 3 in Cleveland, Ohio. In Buffalo, he pledged, Your president says this country is not going to war. And in his final address of the campaign on November 3 in Cleveland, he said, The first purpose of our foreign policy is to keep our country out of war. And through it all, my past record, there have been two thoughts uppermost in my mind. 
to preserve peace in our land, and to make the forces of democracy work for the benefit of the common people of America. Taking the side of one of two combatants in a conflict always incurs risk. For months, FDR and his close associates had been secretly encouraging the British to expect continued and increased U.S. support in their struggle against Germany. At the same time, they had been reassuring the American people they were doing everything that could be done to keep the United States neutral and at peace. These contradictory pronouncements were certainly intentional. Sometime later, Ambassador Bullitt, a longtime intimate and advisor of Roosevelt's, as much as admitted that this equivocation had been deliberate. Roosevelt's White House advisors, Bullitt wrote, persuaded him that if he told the truth, he would lose the 1940 election. The president knew that war was coming to the American people. This was a low-water mark in presidential morality, Bullitt said, but the president won the election. Chapter 3, U.S. Ties to Britain Strengthened FDR's Re-Election a Victory for Britain On November 5, 1940, President Roosevelt won an unprecedented third term, defeating Republican Wendell Wilkie. However, he did not win by as large a margin as in 1936 over Republican Alfred Landon. With the election over and won, FDR no longer needed to exercise the same caution with respect to his dealings with England. Just two days after his re-election, he met with British purchasing agent Purvis to discuss more military supplies for England. Roosevelt proposed allocating military supplies to Britain and Canada on a 50-50 basis. When the subject of ships came up, FDR mentioned leasing supplies to the Allies, and he said nothing about payment. On November 8, the SS City of Rayville became the first U.S. merchant vessel to be sunk in World War II. It hit a mine laid by a German raider south of Australia in the Bass Strait. FDR did nothing about it. Meanwhile, the U.S. military was continuing to plan for war. On November 4, Chief of Naval Operations Stark drafted a new estimate of the world situation for presentation to the Secretary of the Navy. In this draft, presented as a formal memorandum on November 12, Stark considered four possible plans for action. A. Limiting American activity to Western Hemisphere defense. B. Directing primary attention to Japan and secondary attention to the Atlantic. C. Directing equivalent pressure in both theaters. D. Conducting a strong offensive in the Atlantic and a defensive one in the Pacific. Stark then argued for his fourth plan, Plan D or Plan Dog, as it was known in service lingo. USA to the British as a preliminary to possible entry of the United States into the conflict, he, Stark, recommended that the United States Army and Navy at once undertake secret staff talks on technical matters with the British in London, the Canadians in Washington, and the British and Dutch in Singapore and Batavia to reach agreement and lay down plans for promoting unity of Allied efforts should the United States find it necessary to enter the war. British Ambassador Lord Lothian had been advised in October that his discussions with the United States about further supplies for England would have to wait until after the election. On returning to Washington on November 23, he spoke with newsmen. Well, boys, he remarked, Britain's broke. It's your money we want. FDR, Morgenthau, and Churchill all chided him for this calculated indiscretion. In his defense, Lord Lothian reported to London that, American public opinion was still saturated with illusions that we have vast resources available that we have not yet disclosed and that we ought to empty this vast hypothetical barrel before we ask for assistance. 
It was this fact, he explained, which had induced him to make his statement. It is clear that the exhaustion of funds could hardly have been concealed much longer. A week after that, Sir Walter Layton, Director General of Programs in the British Ministry of Supply, submitted to Treasury Secretary Morgenthau a paper-headed initial orders to be placed for output. The British document cited a figure of 2,062 million plus 699 million or capital investment necessary for creating new productive capacity. Morgenthau immediately took this document to FDR and asked for instructions. Thus, Roosevelt was finally forced to face up to the question, which he had successfully avoided until then, of financing Britain's urgent purchases. Roosevelt sailed aboard the Tuscaloosa on a post-election cruise for rest and reflection. While at sea, he received a 4,000-word plea from Churchill for American naval escorts in the Atlantic, 2,000 aircraft per month, and much, much more. Churchill stated further that orders already placed are under negotiation many times exceed the total exchange resources remaining at the disposal of Great Britain. The moment approaches when we shall no longer be able to pay cash. The ball was clearly in FDR's court. Stevenson, the British agent intrepid, described the U.S.-British relationship at the end of 1940s as a common law alliance. In other words, the United States and Britain were bound in a relationship that did not enjoy the blessing or sanction of law a relationship that existed in spite of the officially enacted U.S. Neutrality Act and in spite of Roosevelt's pledges to the people of the United States that he would not permit the nation to become involved in entangling foreign alliances or intervention in foreign disputes. Lend-Lease for Peace It was apparent that the British could no longer operate on a cash-and-carry basis. FDR had been trying for some time to devise a new arrangement to help England. Finally, he hit on what became known as Lend-Lease. On returning from his cruise, he announced at a press conference a new Aid to Britain program. In his folksy manner, he explained, If my neighbor's house catches fire and I am watering the grass in my backyard and I don't pass my garden hose over the fence to my neighbor, I am a fool. How do you think the country and the Congress would react if I should put aid to the British in the form of lending them my garden hose? This new Lend-Lease program was intended to help Britain by tapping the wealth of U.S. taxpayers. A few days after FDR proposed his scheme, the German government charged that U.S. aid to the United Kingdom was moral aggression. During his December 29 fireside chat on the radio, Roosevelt answered Hitler's charge. The Nazi masters of Germany have made it clear that they intend not only to dominate all life and thought in their own country, but also to enslave the whole of Europe, and then to use the resources of Europe to dominate the rest of the world. The intentions of the United States were completely honorable and peaceful, he said. There is no demand for sending an American expeditionary force outside our own borders. There is no intention by any member of your government to send such a force. You can, therefore, nail any talk about sending armies to Europe as deliberate untruth. Our national policy is not directed toward war. Its sole purpose is to keep war away from our country and our people. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. FDR sent his proposal for Lend-Lease to Congress early in 1941. 
As noted New York Times correspondent Arthur Crock recalled, Congress and the public were assured on the highest executive word that the measure was a means to keep the United States from becoming involved abroad, on land, sea, and in the air, in World War II. For Crock, this constituted gross deception. It was obvious, and so pointed out repeatedly at the time, that militant reaction by the central powers in Japan was a certainty. Hence, the Lend-Lease Act would inevitably change the position of the United States from a disguised co-belligerent, a status previously reached by presidential executive orders, to an active one. Morgenthau testified for Lend-Lease, saying that its purpose was to save the British fleet as a bulwark in the Atlantic. The House passed the bill on February 8, the Senate on March 8, and the President signed it into law on March 11, 1941. Meanwhile, in the Far East. The United States put $100 million at the disposal of Chang and promised him a supply of up-to-date fighter aircraft. Then, in January 1941, Britain decided to enter into closer relations with Chang so that if war came, Chang would be willing and able to help Britain in Burma and Hong Kong. Moreover, former U.S. Army Air Corps Colonel Claire Chanel was openly training his Flying Tigers in Burma for air battle with the Japanese. And behind the scenes, FDR was supportive. On April 15, 1941, he signed an unpublicized executive order authorizing reserve officers and enlisted men to resign from the Army Air Corps, the Naval and Marine Air Services, so they could join Chanel's American Volunteer Group. Since the U.S. was not at war with Japan and could not deal openly with China, all arrangements had to be made with an unofficial agency to ensure secrecy. The Central Aircraft Manufacturing Company of China was set up and authorized to hire a hundred American pilots and several hundred ground crewmen to operate, service, and manufacture aircraft in China. As the British and Dutch were building up their defenses in the Far East, the Japanese were pursuing their own program. They were concerned not only with the advance of their forces southward, obtaining supplies of oil, but also with preventing the communists from harassing their northern border. Footnote number 20 denotes, The Japanese had four ends in view, to secure their Manchurian frontier with the Soviet Union, thus enabling them to move southwards without having to look over their shoulders, to obtain oil supplies and concessions from the Netherlands East Indies by means other than the use of force, thus making themselves less dependent on the United States, to obtain complete control of Indochina so as to be able to occupy, at an appropriate moment, Siamese territory as a base from which to mount an attack on Malaya, and to prevent the United States either from entering the war on the side of Britain or interfering with their own plans for their southward advance. Kirby, The War Against Japan, page 59. On April 13, 1941, Japan signed a neutrality pact with Russia to safeguard her position in the North and to make it possible for her to pursue her plans southward. U.S. War Planning with Britain Secret U.S.-British staff conversations held in Washington from January 29 to March 27, 1941 led to an agreement on joint strategy. American officials had already met with British counterparts in London in January 1938, before the war in Europe began and again in August 1940, after England was at war with Germany. The British sent naval and military officers as envoys attired in civilian dress to conceal the true nature of their mission. The stated purpose of these secret ABC meetings, American-British conversations, was to coordinate on broad lines 
plans for the employment of the forces of the associated powers, and to reach agreements concerning the methods and nature of military cooperation between the two nations. The agreements were to cover the principal areas of responsibility and the major lines of military strategy to be pursued by both nations. The agreement arrived at in Washington, known as ABC-1, supplanted the one developed in London three years earlier, January 1938, and outlined procedures to be followed if and when the United States entered the war. It provided that, if Japan does enter the war, the military strategy in the Far East will be defensive. The United States was not to increase her present military strength in the Far East, although she would employ the United States Pacific Fleet offensively in the manner best calculated to weaken Japanese economic power and to support the defense of the Malay barrier by diverting Japanese strength away from Malaysia. Also, according to the agreement, the United States would so augment its forces in the Atlantic and Mediterranean areas that the British Commonwealth will be in a position to release the necessary forces for the Far East. Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner, Chief of the Navy's War Plans Division, participated in these secret conversations. According to him, the ensuing understanding was a worldwide agreement covering all areas, land, sea, and air of the entire world in which it was conceived that the British Commonwealth and the United States might be jointly engaged in action against any enemy. On the conclusion of that agreement with the British, the WPL-46, U.S. Navy War Plan, was prepared after a great many talks with the Army and was approved by the Joint Board, the Secretaries of War and Navy, and by the President. The Navy issued their form of that war plan in May of 1941, and it is my recollection the Army form of it was issued about August. Turner wrote further, The plan contemplated a major effort on the part of both the principal associated powers against Germany initially. It was felt in the Navy Department that there might be a possibility of war with Japan without the involvement of Germany, but at some length and over a considerable period, this matter was discussed, and it was determined that in such a case the United States would, if possible, initiate efforts to bring Germany into the war against us in order that we would be enabled to give strong support to the United Kingdom in Europe. Thus, Turner reaffirmed that the primary goal of the U.S.-British agreement was to help England and to target Germany. In complete disregard of the Neutrality Act officially in force, these conversations put the United States definitively in Britain's camp in her war against Germany. The Undeclared Battle of the Atlantic The Germans had invaded and occupied Denmark on April 9, 1940. Exactly one year later, the United States assumed responsibility for the defense of Greenland then Danish territory. According to the April 9, 1941 agreement between the United States and Denmark, the defense of Greenland against attack by a non-American power is essential to the preservation of the peace and security of the American continent. FDR wrote Churchill on April 11 that he intended to have the United States lend still more active support to the hard-pressed British in the Atlantic. To do this, we will want, in great secrecy, notification of movements of convoys so our patrol units can seek out any ships or planes of aggressor nations. We will immediately make public to you position of aggressor ships or planes when located in our patrol area. That same day, the first U.S. shot was fired against the German target in World War II, although apparently without hitting its mark. The U.S. destroyer Nyblack had been en route from Halifax to Iceland, 
where she was to explore the convoying of ships to Iceland, which lay within the German submarine war zone. She responded to an SOS call from a Dutch freighter that was sinking after having been torpedoed by a German sub. Nyblack picked up survivors. When soundings indicated a submarine in the area, Nyblack dropped three death charges, but no wreckage was seen. The president was reportedly furious when an account of this incident appeared in the press. On the other side of the Atlantic, Adolf Hitler was taking great pains to avoid a clash with the United States. On April 25, he cautioned his naval forces that all incidents with American ships be avoided. The commander-in-chief of his navy, Admiral Eric Rader, was pushing for aggressive action against the United States. Hitler answered Rader at a conference on May 22, ordering that weapons are not to be used, even if American vessels conduct themselves in a definitively unneutral manner. Weapons are to be used only if U.S. ships fire the first shot. In late April, Roosevelt extended the Atlantic's patrol area of surveillance from 200 to 300 miles east of our shores to the western border of the German submarine war zone, or 26 degrees west longitude, whichever was farther west, and south to 20 degrees south latitude. This encompassed the vast expanse of the Atlantic between Bermuda and the Azores. Arrangements were also set in motion to strengthen the Atlantic fleet at the expense of the Pacific fleet by transferring a carrier and five destroyers from Pearl Harbor to the Atlantic. By May, U.S. Navy personnel were flying regularly as pilot advisors aboard some of the planes the British had received through Lend-Lease. On May 26, one of these advisors, Ensign Leonard B. Smith, aboard a U.S.-manufactured PBY, Catalina Patrol Bomber, over the Atlantic, about 690 miles west of Brest, France, spotted the Bismarck, a huge German battleship. Although only fairly recently commissioned, the Bismarck was menacing British shipping and had already sunk the illustrious British battle cruiser Hood. When the sighting was broadcast, other American PBYs with U.S. personnel aboard, as well as some 10 or 12 British warships, joined the chase. The Bismarck tried desperately to make port, but failed. She was finally sunk on May 27 after enduring a horrendous bombing. Over 2,000 officers and crew went down with the ship. The first U.S. ship to be torpedoed by a German submarine was a freighter, the Robin Moore, sunk in the South Atlantic on May 21. News of the event reached the world only when survivors finally landed in Brazil on June 11. Roosevelt was outraged, but although some British officials in Washington, as well as the president's close friend and advisor, Harry Hopkins, wished for decisive U.S. retaliation, FDR did no more than remonstrate. On June 6, Roosevelt authorized the seizure of all idle foreign merchant ships in our ports for urgent needs of commerce and national defense. German, Italian, and Danish ships had already been taken into protective custody on March 30 for the duration of the emergency. Then, on June 14, Roosevelt ordered Axis funds in the United States frozen. Two days later, the United States requested withdrawal of German and Italian consular staff by July 10 charging them with having engaged in activities wholly outside the scope of their legitimate duties. FDR had long since given up all pretense of applying the Neutrality Act equally to all belligerents. In his view, Britain had enjoyed special status from the very beginning of the war. Then, after Germany attacked Russia on June 21, 1941, FDR refrained as well from applying the neutrality law to the Soviet Union. He released Russian credits and promised Stalin lend-lease aid. 
By these actions, Roosevelt was further committing this country to the British cause and against Germany. At the same time that he was allying the United States with the Communist Soviet Union, he was also lending support to the communists on the opposite side of the world in China. By cooling down the conversations the U.S. government had been holding with capitalistically oriented Japan, long engaged in a struggle against the Soviet Union in Asia, Roosevelt was taking the side of the communists and thus placing the United States directly in opposition to Japan. On July 1, the Roosevelt administration exchanged letters with Iceland, pointing out that it was imperative that the integrity and independence of Iceland should be preserved because of the fact that any occupation of Iceland by a power whose only two clearly apparent plans for world conquest included the domination of the peoples of the New World would at once directly menace the security of the entire Western Hemisphere. On July 7, the United States occupied Iceland. The Icelanders accepted the occupation fatalistically as a necessary evil. The U.S. begins escorting British ships. The desirability of instigating escort operations to help safeguard U.S. and British ships plying the Atlantic was seriously discussed during the early months of 1941. Stark had pressed for escorts in June so as not to let England fall. He proposed at one time to coordinate the departure of U.S. ships and British convoys from the vicinity of Halifax. Then on July 2, the President approved the Atlantic Fleet's plan for escort operations. The occupation of Iceland and the need to assure the arrival there of supplies and provisions provided the immediate excuse. By late July, the decision had been made to escort, and on August 20, U.S. ships actually began escorting American and British merchant ships in the North Atlantic to and from Iceland. The decision to escort was a policy decision in line with that of continuing to support Britain and to oppose Germany. Historian Patrick Abazia described it as the logical conclusion of the president's previous policy, his determination to prevent the Germans from winning the Battle of the Atlantic. It had little to do, as is sometimes said, with the need to safeguard precious Lindley's cargoes as such. Roosevelt meets Churchill they discussed Japan's threatening encroachment on British in Far East. In August 1941, it was announced that FDR was leaving Washington on an extended fishing expedition. He left aboard the Coast Guard cutter Calypso and fished off the coast of Massachusetts for a couple of days. Then he quietly transferred to the American cruiser Augusta, which sped north to Newfoundland. Churchill, traveling from England aboard the British battleship the Prince of Wales, also headed for Newfoundland. The two ships rendezvoused in Placentia Bay, just off Argentia, Newfoundland. There, from August 9 to 12, the two heads of state met, talked, and entertained one another in turn, each on his respective ship. On August 11, Churchill wired London from Argentia an account of his conversations with FDR. He reported to his Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Anthony Eden, that Roosevelt had agreed to negotiate a moratorium with Japan of, say, 30 days, in which we may improve our position in Singapore area, and the Japanese will have to stand still. But he will make it a condition that the Japanese meanwhile encroach no farther and do not use Indochina as a base for attack on China. He will also maintain in full force the economic measures directed against Japan. These negotiations show little chance of succeeding, but President considers that a month gained will be valuable. Churchill's report to Eden continued. At the end of the note which the president will hand to the Japanese ambassador when he returns from his cruise in about a week's time, he will add the following passage which is taken from my draft. Any further encroachment by Japan in the Southwest Pacific 
would produce a situation in which the United States government would be compelled to take countermeasures, even though these might lead to war between the United States and Japan. During their private conference, FDR indicated to Churchill that because he was uncertain that he could carry Congress with him in a declaration of war, and because more time was needed to strengthen America's forces, he must seek to delay a break with Japan. Churchill had hoped at this meeting to persuade Roosevelt to have the United States declare war on the German-Italian axis. Churchill told him that he would rather have an American declaration of war now and no supplies for six months than double the supplies and no declaration. However, Churchill recognized the president's constitutional difficulties. He may take action as chief executive, but only Congress can declare war. According to Churchill, he went so far as to say to me, I may never declare war, I may make war. If I were to ask Congress to declare war, they might argue about it for three months. Although Churchill hoped for a U.S. declaration of war, he was generally pleased at the outcome of the Argentia meeting. FDR had in effect agreed to issue an ultimatum to Japan along the lines of Churchill's suggestion. No further encroachment in the Southwest Pacific would be tolerated, or else various steps would have to be taken by the United States, notwithstanding the President's realization that the taking of such measures might result in war between the United States and Japan. The newspapers and newsreels of the day announced the meeting at Argentia and show the two men sitting at their ease on the deck of the Augusta or attending Sunday church service on the Prince of Wales. When FDR returned to Washington, he let it be understood that the only outcome of the meeting had been the Atlantic Charter, a plan for post-war world peace and prosperity. The charter, signed by both Roosevelt and Churchill, set forth certain idealistic common principles. Force was to be abandoned, peaceful trade and economic collaboration among all nations was to be assured, and it was hoped that, after the final destruction of the Nazi tyranny, all men in all nations would be able to traverse the high seas and oceans without hindrance and to live out their lives in freedom from fear and want. The Undeclared Battle of the Atlantic Continues The U.S. patrol force had seen little activity since late 1940 when some of its destroyers had trailed several German ships from Mexican ports until they were intercepted by British or Dutch ships and then scuttled by their crews. Then, in March 1941, all Axis ships remaining in U.S. ports had been seized. So when the decision to escort was made, the patrol force was simply diverted from routine patrolling. After August, when convoys of British and U.S. merchant ships crossed the Atlantic to maintain a lifeline of supplies and equipment to England, they were usually accompanied by U.S. destroyers. On September 4, the destroyer Greer was on her way to Iceland with mail and miscellaneous freight when a British bomber overhead signaled that it had sighted a German submarine in the area. The submarine released a torpedo. The Greer responded with a depth charge. The submarine released a second torpedo. Neither sub nor the Greer hit its target. German submarines had also torpedoed and sunk several other ships operated by non-belligerents. On August 17, the SS Sessa of Panamanian Registry, on its way to Iceland. Also on August 17, the SS Panaman, and on September 6 in the Gulf of Suez, the SS Steel Seafarer. FDR, stirred to action by the attack on the Greer, issued to the U.S. Navy serving in America's expanded defense waters a shoot-on-sight order. He sounded angry when he spoke to the nation by radio on September 11. It is the Nazi design to abolish the freedom of the seas and to acquire absolute control and domination of the seas for themselves. We have sought no shooting war with Hitler 
we do not seek it now. But when you see a rattlesnake poised to strike, you do not wait until he has struck before you crush him. These Nazi submarines and raiders are the rattlesnakes of the Atlantic. They are a menace to the free pathways of the high seas. The time for active defense is now. Upon our naval and air patrol, now operating in large number over a vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean, falls the duty of maintaining the American policy of freedom of the seas, now. That means, very simply and clearly, that our patrolling vessels and planes will protect all merchant ships, not only American ships, but ships of any flag, engaged in commerce in our defensive waters. They will protect them from submarines. They will protect them from surface raiders. It is no act of war on our part when we decide to protect the seas which are vital to American defense. The aggression is not ours. Ours is solely defense. But let this warning be clear. From now on, if German or Italian vessels of war enter the waters, the protection of which is necessary for American defense, they do so at their own peril. The orders which I have given as Commander-in-Chief to the United States Army and Navy are to carry out that policy at once. As a result of the President's order, our destroyers escorting convoys in the North Atlantic began to engage in active defense. They searched, took sonar readings, frequently made contact with German submarines, and released depth charges. German submarines truly learned that they ventured into the vicinity of British convoys being escorted by U.S. destroyers only at their own peril. On September 16, the destroyer USS Kearney, heading from Argentia to Iceland with a convoy, was trying to corral late arrivals and stragglers. To discourage a trailing submarine, the Kearney dropped a depth charge. The sub launched several torpedoes. A number of ships in the convoy were torpedoed, set ablaze, and sunk. The Kearney, silhouetted against the burning ships, became an easy target. The German U-boat fired three torpedoes, hitting her almost amidships and causing an explosion. Eleven men were killed and 22 were wounded in the attack. Yet the surviving crew members, by prodigious effort, saved the ship. She limped into Reykjavik Harbor two days later. On September 22nd, Stark in Washington reported to his Asiatic Fleet Commander, Admiral Hart, on the situation. So far as the Atlantic is concerned, we are all but, if not actually, in it. The war. If Britain is to continue, she has to have assistance. She will now get it openly. In a nutshell, we are now escorting convoys regularly from the United States to points in the Iceland area. Contacts are almost certain to occur. The rest requires little imagination. Stark's expectations were soon borne out. Active defense in the Atlantic meant that U.S. ships searched for submarines and dropped death charges. Unsurprisingly, a U.S. ship was soon torpedoed and sunk. In October, the destroyer Reuben James was accompanying a convoy in the North Atlantic. Several submarines were harassing the convoy. On October 31, a German torpedo hit the Reuben James on her side. An explosion burst her in two. Forty-five men were saved. A hundred died. The United States was still officially neutral, yet it had seized Axis ships in its harbors and frozen Axis funds. It was supplying England and her allies with weapons and supplies. Its ships were escorting British convoys in waters infested with German submarines, dropping death charges on them. Its ships had trailed Axis ships, notified the British of their whereabouts, and stood by while the Axis ships were sunk. Its ships were being sunk and its sailors were being killed. The President of the United States, Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy under the U.S. Constitution, was doing precisely what he had told Churchill he might do. He was beginning to make war without declaring war.
Chapter 4 U.S. Military Plans and Preparations U.S. Relations with Japan Relations with Japan had been strained for some time. The Roosevelt administration was fully aware of Japan's dependence on imports. Yet, as we have seen, it had terminated America's long-standing commercial treaty with her. After January 1940, Japan had to ask permission on a case-by-case -case basis whenever she wanted to import from the United States. In July 1940, the administration had further prohibited exports to Japan by requiring her to get a license to purchase aircraft engines and strategic materials. When sale of aviation gas, defined by the U.S. as 86 octane or higher, was embargoed on July 1, 1940, she had contrived a way to use 76 octane in her planes. The administration was tightening an economic noose around Japan's neck bit by bit, forcing her to look elsewhere for the supplies and materials she had been accustomed to buying from the United States. The Japanese had considerable commercial interests in Southeast Asia, especially in French Indochina, now comprising the states of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. After France fell in June 1940, Japan had negotiated with the Vichy government of unoccupied France for permission to occupy French Indochina, to take over bases there, and to maintain order. The rather helpless Vichy government had agreed. As trade with the United States became more difficult, Japan's interests in Indochina gained in importance, and she turned more and more in that direction for the foods and raw materials she needed. Trade pacts concluded later with Indochina assured Japan of uninterrupted supplies of rice, rubber, and other needed raw materials. U.S. Ambassador Grew in Japan kept Roosevelt fully advised of her precarious economic situation and urgent need for imports. Chief of Naval Operations, NCO Stark, had warned the president of the danger of imposing an oil embargo on Japan. Stark had made it known to the State Department in no uncertain terms that, in my opinion, if Japan's oil were shut off, she would go to war. He did not mean necessarily with us, but if her economic life had been choked and throttled by inability to get oil, she would go somewhere and take it. And if I were a Jap, I would do the same. Many people, including Eleanor Roosevelt, the president's wife, were concerned about what Japan might be planning. In the fall of 1940, she had asked her husband about our continuing shipment of oil to Japan. FDR answered Eleanor on November 13, 1940. The real answer, which you cannot use, is that if we forbid oil shipments to Japan, Japan will increase her purchases of Mexican oil and furthermore may be driven by actual necessity to a descent on the Dutch East Indies. At this writing, we all regard such action on our part as an encouragement to the spread of war in the Far East. Signed, FDR. Thus, Roosevelt had been well aware for some time that stopping the export of oil to Japan was fraught with danger. Japan feared also that her assets in the United States might be frozen, making her economic situation still more perilous. In February 1941, Sir Robert Craigie, the British ambassador in Tokyo, cabled his foreign office in London that Japan would soon move against British-held Singapore, then a vital commercial and communications link between Britain and her overseas dominions and colonies. Anthony Eden, British Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, called Mamoru Shigemitsu, the Japanese ambassador in London, into his office and gave him a thorough hauling over the coals concerning the extravagant and sensational telegrams emanating from the British Embassy in Tokyo. When Eugene H. Duman, counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo, called on Japan's Vice Minister for Foreign Affairs, Chiuchi Ohashi, Ohashi told him that there was no truth whatever in Sir Robert's prediction.
Ohashi said he had repeatedly told Sir Robert that Japan would not move in Singapore or the Dutch Indies unless we, the Japanese, are pressed by the imposition of American embargoes. However, Ohashi went on to say that if disorders beyond the power of the French to control were to arise in Indochina, we would be obliged to step in to suppress the disorders. Ohashi's assertion was one more reminder of the danger inherent in imposing embargoes on Japan. Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall Chief of Staff of the Army at this time was General George C. Marshall. Marshall had graduated from Virginia Military Institute in 1901 and began his military career as a second lieutenant in 1902. The Spanish-American War had just ended and he was assigned the task of accompanying infantry troops to the Philippines. He entered World War I as a captain and before it ended was promoted to temporary colonel. In May of the following year, he became aide-de-camp to the World War I hero, General John J. Pershing, but was returned to his permanent rank of captain shortly thereafter. After the war, he had to begin again to work his way up to colonel, a slow process in peacetime. General Douglas MacArthur, a contemporary of Marshall's, but a graduate of West Point, 1903, became chief of staff in 1930 and served in that capacity until 1935. At that time, Pershing suggested to MacArthur that he promote Marshall, his former aide, to Brigadier General. Marshall had spent most of his career up to that time in service schools and staff positions and had only just attained the rank of full colonel. To round out his experience so as to become qualified for a generalship, he was given a command assignment with a top regiment. This was during the early years of FDR's New Deal when the Army had been asked to help establish the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC. Marshall devoted so much of his energies to the CCC that his regiment's training program was found to have suffered seriously. Thus, Marshall missed the opportunity to become a general. Pershing continued to press Marshall's case, but to no avail. Marshall was relegated to the position of senior instructor for the Illinois National Guard, 1933 to 1938. Through Marshall's diligence in working with the CCC, he made a number of friends in the Roosevelt administration. He came to know several persons of influence, notably Judge Advocate Scott Lucas, later a U.S. Senator, who was to serve on the 1945-1946 Joint Congressional Committee to investigate the Pearl Harbor attack. Major General Frank McCoy, Stimson's longtime aide, and Harry Hopkins, FDR's close advisor. Pershing also continued to support Marshall. Such friends stood him in good stead as the years went by. In July 1938, Marshall was brought to Washington as director of War Plans. From then on, with the help of Hopkins and others, Marshall advanced rapidly. He was promoted to Brigadier General effective October 1, 1938. On October 15, after only three months in War Plans, he was appointed Deputy Chief of Staff. On April 27, 1939, it was announced that Marshall would be advanced over many officers with more seniority to become the Army's new Chief of Staff. He took over officially on September 1, 1939, the very day Hitler's forces marched into Poland, becoming in the process a temporary four-star general, from one to four stars in less than a year. As Chief of Staff, Marshall was the immediate advisor of the Secretary of War on all matters relating to the military establishment. He was also charged by the Secretary of War with the planning, development, and execution of the military program. The chief of staff's obligation was to report directly to the president. 
During the years he served in the post, Marshall proved himself to be a loyal and devoted deputy to his superior, Franklin D. Roosevelt. The chief of staff's responsibility in peacetime, and the United States was still at peace when Marshall took over, was to serve, by direction of the president, as commanding general of the field forces. In that capacity, he was to direct field operations in the general training of the several armies of the overseas forces and of the GHQ units. If war were to break out, he was to continue exercising command of the field forces until such time as the president shall have specifically designated a commanding general thereof. Marshall also had certain responsibilities with respect to the Navy when the fleet was in port. More about that later. The chief of staff and the president were the only ones with legal authority to issue command orders to the army commanders in the field. The secretary of war, a civilian, was outside this line of command. Admiral Richardson, Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Fleet, Relieved of Command In January 1941, Richardson, Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet, Sinkus, was notified that he was being relieved of his command in about three weeks. Admiral Husband E. Kimmel was named to replace him, effective February 1. Richardson was, deeply disappointed in my detachment, yet, as he wrote later, there was some feeling of prospective relief for I had never liked to work with people whom I did not trust, and I did not trust Franklin D. Roosevelt. On his return to Washington, Richardson was directed to report to Secretary of the Navy Knox. When he called on Knox on March 24, he asked why he had been removed as Sincus so preemptorily after having served only 13 months of the usual 24-month tour of duty. Why, Richardson? Knox responded. When you were here in Washington last October, you hurt the president's feelings by what you said to him. You should realize that. Richardson's relief put on notice all top-ranked officers, including his replacement, that Roosevelt would brook no opposition to his plans. It was a warning to all military officers that criticism of FDR, their commander-in-chief under the Constitution, was not tolerated. General Marshall's Responsibility for the Fleet Marshall appointed Lieutenant General Walter C. Short to be Commanding General of the Hawaiian Department, effective February 7, 1941. That same day, Marshall wrote Short that Kimmel, who had taken over command of the fleet in Pearl Harbor the week before, had written his superior, C.N.O. Stark, about the serious shortage of Army material needed for the protection of Pearl Harbor. Kimmel had referred specifically to planes and anti-aircraft guns. Marshall wrote short that Kimmel didn't realize that the Army was tragically lacking in this material and that Hawaii is on a far better basis than any other command in the Army. Marshall's letter revealed concern for more than just the Hawaiian situation. Nevertheless, Marshall advised short that the protection of the fleet was the Army's major responsibility. The fullest protection for the fleet is the rather than a major consideration for us, italics in original. Our first concern is to protect the fleet. Marshall told Short of the pressures on the department, from other sources, for the limited material we have. However, he believed the existing defenses in Hawaii would discourage an enemy's attack if no serious harm is done us during the first six hours of known hostilities. Marshall speculated on the most likely threat to Hawaii. The risk of sabotage and the risk involved in a surprise raid by air and by submarine constitute the real perils of the situation. Frankly, I do not see any landing threat in the Hawaiian Islands so long as we have air superiority. However, Marshall reminded Short 
Please keep clearly in mind in all your negotiations that our mission is to protect the base and the naval concentration, and that purpose should be clearly apparent to Admiral Kimmel. Marshall wrote short again on March 5, requesting an early review of the situation in the Hawaiian Department with regard to defense from air attack. And he added, The establishment of a satisfactory system of coordinating all means available to this end is a matter of first priority. Marshall recognized that, as Chief of Staff, he was responsible for protecting Hawaii, and he was again calling the attention of his Hawaiian commander to that responsibility. Admiral Kimmel, new Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Fleet, strives to build up fleet strength in Pearl Harbor. Kimmel realized that, for strategic reasons, the fleet did not belong at Pearl Harbor. He considered Richard's arguments against holding the fleet there valid. Yet Kimmel realized he could not oppose the president on this issue and expect to retain his command. The best he could do was to try to get the material needed to defend the fleet. Over the next year, in letter after letter to CNO Stark, he asked for personnel, weapons, radar, destroyers, cruisers, planes, ammunition. CNO Admiral Stark gained a reputation for persistence as he continued to appeal to Roosevelt for men and material. He once asked FDR for 300,000 men for the Navy. There were a lot of people in the room at the time. FDR, always jovial when he had an audience, simply threw back his head and laughed. He then turned to the others in the room and said, Betty, referring to Stark by his nickname, usually begins working early. He starts in working a year ahead of time and he follows it up. To strengthen its defenses, the Navy recommended construction of a battleship and cruiser dry dock at Pearl Harbor. However, all the funds then available for construction had been allocated. Admiral Ben Morreal, chief of the Navy's Bureau of Yards and Docks, which would be building the dry dock, felt he should not go ahead without written authorization. He suggested that Stark ask FDR, in light of the limited national emergency then in effect, to authorize the funds in writing. Without being specific as to who had made the request, Stark approached FDR. When he reported back to Muriel, Stark said that he had never seen the president so angry. He pounded the table and asked, Who wants something on a piece of paper? Tell that bureau chief that he would give him something on a piece of paper, but it will not be what he expects. So Stark, as acting Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary and Assistant Secretary were away at the time, took on himself the responsibility of authorizing the construction. The dry dock, completed just 10 days before the attack, was put to immediate use. Stark wrote Kimmel of the problems he encountered in obtaining authorization to build up the Navy. I am struggling, and I use the word advisedly every time I get in the White House, which is rather frequent, for additional men. The President just has his own ideas about men. I usually finally get my way, but the cost of effort is very great and, of course, worth it. I feel that I could go on the hill this minute and get all the men I want if I could just get the green light from the White House. In answer to Kimmel's request for ships and supplies to bolster the Pacific fleet, Stark often mentioned the dire straits of the British, whose economic lifeline was being threatened by German submarines. He also cited the demands for supplies being made under the Lend-Lease program. Soon to be superimposed on our Navy's ordnance problems through the administration of the Lend-Lease Bill is the task of procurement, inspection, and delivery of enormous, almost astronomical quantities of ordnance supplies for the British Navy and any allies which may survive to fight the dictators. Admiral Stark opposes antagonizing Japan. Roosevelt had been doing his best for months to give the British aid and comfort, although he had been restrained, primarily by public opinion, 
from openly involving the United States in the war against Germany. Stark shared the president's desire to enter the war, but he did not always go along with Roosevelt's risky moves in the Pacific. Stark's friendship with FDR was such that he could express himself candidly, and he often did. On February 11, 1941, Stark wrote FDR a long memorandum, cautioning against the tactics he was adopting in the Pacific. The question of sending a detachment of cruisers on a tour of the Philippines had been discussed at a meeting of top administration officials. FDR had questioned the desirability of such a maneuver, called it a bluff, and said he did not want to take a chance of losing five or six cruisers in the Philippines in case of sudden attack. Stark had then breathed a great sigh of relief and thought the issue pretty definitely closed. Stark opposed such a move and he explained his reasons. Sending a small force of ships to Manila would probably be no deterrent to Japan, Stark wrote, and it would not hinder Japan's southward advance. Further moves against Japan could precipitate hostilities rather than prevent them. We want to give Japan no excuse for coming in in case we are forced into hostilities with Germany whom we all consider our major problem. Although the Pacific fleet was weaker in total tonnage and aircraft than the Japanese Navy, he considered it a very strong force, and as long as it is in its present position, it remains a constant serious and real threat to Japan's flank. It would be a grave strategic error at this time to divide our Pacific fleet in three parts, Atlantic, Mid-Pacific, and Western Pacific. If we are forced into the war, Stark continued, our main effort as approved to date will be directed in the Atlantic against Germany. We should, if possible, not be drawn into a major war in the Far East. The Pacific fleet should remain strong until we see what Japan is going to do. Then, if she moved toward Malaysia in Southeast Asia, we would be in a position to vigorously attack the mandates, an archipelago of South Pacific islands mandated after World War I to Japan to administer, and Japanese communications in order to weaken Japan's attack on the British and Dutch. At the same time, we would continue to lend support to the battle in the Atlantic. Stark recommended against doing anything in the Far East which would reveal our intentions. We should not send any considerable division to Manila, as that might prove an invitation to Japan to attack us. We should not indicate the slightest interest in the Gilbert or Solomon or Fiji Islands lest the Japanese smell a rat in our future use of them, at least so far as surprise is concerned, might be compromised. The Japanese are trained for amphibious operations, we are not, and they would then be able to occupy some of those British-held islands before we could. To reinforce this position against doing anything that might appear to threaten Japan, unless we were ready to fight, Stark quoted from a telegram just received from the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. Risk of war would be certain to follow increased concentration of American vessels in the Far East. As it is not possible to evaluate with certainty the imponderable factor which such risks constitute, the risk should not be taken unless our country is ready to force hostilities. In spite of his reservations, however, Stark told FDR he was notifying Kimmel to be prepared to send a force such as we talked about yesterday to the Philippines in case your final decision should be to send them. Although he disagreed with the president, he was ready to obey orders. He continued his memorandum to FDR. I just wanted to get this off my chest to you, as I always do my thoughts, and then we'll defer to your better judgment with a cheerful, aye, aye, sir, and go to the limit, as will all of us in what you decide. Stark was above all a good soldier, loyal to his commander-in-chief. On February 25, Stark sent Kimmel a copy of his memorandum. 
He and Kimmel were good friends and had been for many years, so Stark was straightforward in his analysis of the situation. Stark wrote Kimmel, as he had told FDR he would, that he should make plans for offensive raids. He should study very carefully the matter of making aircraft raids on the inflammable Japanese cities, ostensibly on military objectives, and the effect such raids might have on Japanese morale and on the diversion of their forces away from the Malay barrier. Such adventures, Stark wrote, might appear unjustified from a profit and loss viewpoint, or they might prove very profitable. But he implied this was immaterial. In either case, and this is strictly secret, you and I may be ordered to make them. Therefore, Kimmel realized he would be well advised to consider plans for launching such air raids. The question of sending a detachment of the fleet to the Far East had been brought up several times. Stark and Kimmel both considered it unwise. However, Stark wrote, Ever since my last letter to you, the subject has twice come up in the White House. Each of the many times it has arisen, my view has prevailed, but the time might come when it will not. The attitude of the people in the country with respect to the war was confused, Stark wrote. I simply cannot predict the outcome. His memo to FDR represented, he said, his best estimate of the Far Eastern present situation. Admiral Kimmel in Pearl Harbor requests intelligence. In addition to equipment and supplies, a commander in the field also needs intelligence. That is, information, particularly information relevant for military planning and preparations. The Navy Department in Washington inevitably receives such secret or confidential information, which the commanders in the field are entitled to have, and should have, if they are to carry out their duties. After Kimmel took over command of the fleet at Pearl Harbor, he requested not only ships, men, equipment, supplies, and munitions, but also intelligence. He asked Stark to furnish him with whatever information of a secret nature was available. Stark replied that this was the responsibility of the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI. ONI is fully aware of its responsibility in keeping you adequately informed. In 1941, information concerning the location of Japanese merchant vessels was forwarded weekly from Washington by airmail to Pearl Harbor. Thus, Kimmel was receiving material on a regular basis. Given that fact, plus Stark's reassurance that ONI would keep him informed, Kimmel assumed he was being sent and would be sent all the information of value that Washington could supply. Security Leak in Washington Since August 1940, we had been intercepting and decoding messages sent in the Japanese diplomatic cipher designated PURPLE. This enabled us to read messages to and from Japan's embassies all around the world. These secret intercepts came to be called magic and were surrounded by strict security. Except for the cryptographers and translators, they were seen by only a handful of top people in the administration and the services. Then in the spring of 1941, it was discovered that one copy of a decoded Japanese intercept was missing from the files. A magic translation was lost in the State Department. The army had sent it to them and it never came back. In the words of Commander L.F. Safford, then in charge of communication security, all hell broke loose. A missing message was a serious matter. If the Japanese learned we could read messages sent in their complex diplomatic code, which we had deciphered at a cost of much time and effort, they would probably change it. We would then be deprived of an extremely valuable source of intelligence. Safford and the others concerned with security could not imagine where this missing message had gone. However, in April and May, we intercepted several purple messages between Berlin and Tokyo, 
indicating that German intelligence sources, probably in the United States, believe that the U.S. government had deciphered some Japanese codes. Tokyo cabled Berlin on April 16. We suspect that the several codes I, 80, and OITE are being cryptanalyzed by foreign powers. And from Berlin to Tokyo on May 3rd, Stammer called on me this day, evening, and said that Germany maintains a fairly reliable intelligence organization abroad, or in the U.S., and according to information obtained from the above-mentioned organization, it is quite, or fairly, reliably established that the U.S. government is reading Ambassador Nomura's code messages. As a result, the Japanese warn their embassies to exercise extreme caution to protect the security of their messages. But fortunately for the United States, Japan did not heed or did not realize the full import of the warnings sent her embassy in Berlin. In any event, her diplomats continued to use their purple diplomatic code. The American-Dutch-British ADB Conversations, Singapore, April 1941 Toward the end of April, the scene shifted to Singapore, where a conference of American, Dutch, and British military and naval officers, the so-called ADB Conversations, was held in utmost secrecy. The principals dressed in mufti, civilian attire, to conceal the nature of their visit. The agreement reached on April 27 was subsequently signed by officials of the Associated Powers, the United States, United Kingdom, Netherlands East Indies, Australia, New Zealand, and India. The United States was the only signatory not then in the war. The 33-page ADB report that issued from this Singapore conference was classified Most Secret. It describes specific moves on the part of Japan that would force the signers of the agreement to recommend that their governments take military action against Japan. It is agreed that any of the following actions by Japan would create a position in which our failure to take active military counteraction would place us at such military disadvantage should Japan subsequently attack that we should then advise our respective governments to authorize such action. A. A direct act of war by Japanese armed forces against the territory or mandated territory of any of the associated powers. B. The movement of the Japanese forces into any part of Thailand to the west of 100 degrees east or to the south of 10 degrees north. C. The movement of a large number of Japanese warships or of a convoy of merchant ships escorted by Japanese warships which from its position and course was clearly directed upon the Philippine Islands, the east coast of the Isthmus of Kra, the narrow strip of land connecting Singapore's peninsula with the Asian mainland, or the east coast of Malaya, or had crossed the parallel of six degrees north between Malaya and the Philippines, a line from the Gulf of Davao on the southeasternmost tip of the Philippines, to Waigio Island, the northwesternmost island of New Guinea, or the equator east of Waigio. D. The movement of Japanese forces into Portuguese Timor. E. The movement of Japanese forces into New Caledonia or the Loyalty Islands, northeast of New Caledonia. The ADB report also outlined cooperative procedures to be followed by the land, sea, and air forces of the several parties in the event of hostilities. The United States turned down a British request at the meeting that it send the Pacific Fleet to Singapore. Roosevelt knew these agreements were not constitutional. Yet he sanctioned and continued pressing secretly for still closer ties with Britain and her allies. According to Robert Sherwood, one of FDR's speechwriters and close advisors, Roosevelt never overlooked the fact that his actions might lead to his immediate or eventual impeachment. From the administration's point of view, therefore, it was imperative that, 
the very existence of any American-British joint plans, however tentative, had to be kept utterly secret. Sherwood called it ironic that, in all probability, no great damage would have been done had the details of these plans fallen into the hands of the Germans and the Japanese. Whereas, had they fallen into the hands of the Congress and the press, American preparation for war might have been well-nigh wrecked and ruined. U.S. Ships Transferred from Pacific to Atlantic Fleet In April 1941, Kimmel learned not only that he would not be receiving the ships he had requested to strengthen his fleet, but that he would be forced to relinquish several destroyers and cruisers to reinforce the Atlantic Fleet. This was in accord with the U.S.-British ABC-1 agreement. The entire world setup was gone into very carefully. Stark wrote Kimmel on April 19th, A detachment of ships, three battleships, one aircraft carrier, four cruisers, and two squadrons of destroyers, was to be transferred from the Pacific to the Atlantic. But then the president canceled the authorization for the move and gave specific directions to bring only the one CV, aircraft carrier, and one division of destroyers. The president did not want at this particular moment to give any signs of seriously weakening the forces in the Pacific. However, a week later, after a long conference at the White House on April 25, it was decided that the most urgent matter was to go all out in the Atlantic. Stark wrote Kimmel the following day that he should get mentally prepared because a considerable detachment from your fleet will be brought to the Atlantic. Stark anticipated the reinforcing of the Atlantic by the three BBs, battleships, one CV, aircraft carrier, four CLs, cruisers, and two squadrons of destroyers. And still further detachments from the Pacific Fleet might be expected. Action on the transfer may come at any time. In May 1941, a force consisting of three battleships, an aircraft carrier, and appropriate supporting vessels, about a quarter of the strength of the Pacific Fleet, was shifted to the Atlantic from Kimmel's command in the Pacific. These ships then joined in the ever-extending activities of the Atlantic Patrol, which was lending support to Britain. Coordination of U.S. War Plans and Production By this time, demands for war material were being submitted to the United States from all over the world. Requests for supplies and equipment were coming in from the British, beleaguered in the Atlantic and in Singapore, from the Chinese under pressure by the Japanese, and from our own forces in the field. Effective coordination was needed. On May 21, Marshall, under pressure from the War Department, the Office of Production Management, and especially the White House, sought a complete statement of Army needs, not for 1941 and 1942, but for the actual winning of a war not yet declared. He asked the various divisions of the War Department General Staff to make strategic estimates of our ground, air, and naval situations, and to list items of equipment needed, as an aid to industry in its planning. The War Plans Division assigned Major, later Lieutenant General, A.C. Wedemeyer, the immense task of researching and assembling from widely scattered sources the necessary data on military requirements, supplies, reserves, and production. United States-Japan Diplomatic Conversations in Washington Japan's ambassador to the United States, Admiral Kichisaburo Nomura, had begun negotiations with the United States. Japan was willing to make quite a few concessions from her point of view, and for a while in June 1941, it looked as though an amicable conclusion might be reached. The major bone of contention was the presence of Japanese troops in China. In the course of the discussions, Japan agreed to withdraw most of her troops from China. 
Subject to further discussion, she would station a few on the northern border for protection against the entry of communistic elements from Outer Mongolia. The troops, which would be maintained for resistance against communistic activities, would not under any circumstances interfere in Chinese internal affairs. Japan then presented a draft proposal suggesting that Roosevelt ask China to negotiate a peace treaty with Japan based on the principles of, number one, neighborly friendship, number two, joint defense against communism, and number three, economic cooperation. As befitting an agreement between two sovereign nations, Japan further asserted that these principles implied, number one, mutual respect of sovereignty and territories, Number two, mutual respect for the inherent characteristics of each nation cooperating as good neighbors and forming a Far Eastern nucleus contributing to world peace. Number three, withdrawal of Japanese troops from Chinese territory in accordance with an agreement to be concluded between Japan and China. Number four, no annexation, no indemnities. And number five, independence of Manchukuo. Prompted by her desires for reliable sources of raw materials, and given the uncertainty created by the termination of her commercial treaty with the United States, Japan's draft proposal stated further that if the United States and Japan reached agreement on the basis of these principles, then they would cooperate in providing each other with access to supplies of natural resources such as oil, rubber, tin, nickel, which each country needs. Roosevelt and Secretary of State Hull were lukewarm, if not cool, to these proposals. They balked at the Japanese plan for cooperative defense against injurious communistic activities. On June 21, Hull handed the Japanese ambassador a complete rewrite of the draft proposal. The talks with the Japanese were stalled. Hitler's invasion of Russia alters situation and expands call for worldwide coordination. During the night of June 21 and 22, Hitler attacked the USSR. The Soviets immediately became an enemy of Germany, and Britain immediately became an ally of the Soviets. Once we learned of Germany's invasion of Russia and of Britain's alliance with the Soviet Union against Germany, U.S. policy shifted. We released Russian credits, refused to apply the neutrality law to the Soviet Union, and promised American aid to Stalin's regime. Roosevelt called for an additional effort to coordinate war planning and production. On July 9, he sent an urgent message to his secretaries of war and navy asking them to join in exploring at once the overall production requirements required to defeat our potential enemies and the munitions and mechanical equipment of all types, which in your opinion would be required to exceed by an appropriate amount that available to our potential enemies. The assignment Marshall had given Wedemeyer in May to determine the needs of the army was to be expanded to include the Navy and Air Corps also. From this, a real victory program was to be developed, encompassing by Presidential Directive, August 30, 1941. The distribution of munitions as well, not only to U.S. forces, but also to those of Great Britain, Russia, and other countries needing our help. The War Plans Division's draft, which Wedemeyer had completed by July 1, became the basis of the more extensive project and Wedemeyer was assigned the major responsibility for the new and larger task. In view of the fact that the United States was still officially neutral, security concerning this ultra-secret victory program for the winning of a war not yet declared was extremely tight. Only five copies were prepared, each numbered and registered. Wedemeyer kept his working copy, he gave one to Stimson for presentation to FDR, and three to his superiors. It was thought that this very limited distribution would prevent any leak. U.S.-Japan Relations Treading the Evil Road 
As we have seen, the Japanese had received the permission of the Vichy government of unoccupied France to land troops in French Indochina and to acquire there the rice and other raw materials she desperately needed. Both the United States and Britain objected to these arrangements. On July 23, Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells broke off the talks then going on with the Japanese ambassador in Washington. The next day, the United States denounced Japan's actions in French Indochina. Then, on July 25, in retaliation for Japan's Indochina moves and against the advice of Ambassador Gru in Japan and Chief of Naval Operations Stark, FDR, by executive order, froze all Japanese assets in this country. England followed suit the following day. This brought all trade between the United States and Japan to an end. Japan had warned that this drastic measure would leave her in desperate straits. It hurt especially because it deprived her of regular gasoline, from which she had been able to produce higher-grade aviation gas. Back in November 1940, Roosevelt had been well aware of the crisis that would arise if Japan were deprived of oil. Ambassador Gru and Stark understood Japan's economic plight and realized she might go to war if her oil were shut off. Stark had argued that, unless we were prepared for war, I do not mean prepared in the sense of complete readiness for war, but unless we were ready to accept a war risk, we should not take measures which would cut oil down to the Japanese below that needed for what might be called their normal peacetime needs for their industry and their ships. He said he never wavered one inch on that stand. Nevertheless, the United States went ahead and imposed sanctions. The die was cast. Stark cabled his three fleet commanders on July 25 about the economic sanctions. It was expected that these sanctions would include all trade except for a few items for which export licenses would be issued. He advised the commanders to take appropriate precautionary measures against possible eventualities. All this time, we were still intercepting, decoding, and reading Japanese messages sent in the diplomatic code purple. Among them was a message dated July 31 from the Japanese foreign minister in Tokyo to Japan's ambassador in Berlin concerning their desperate economic situation. A copy was sent to Nomura, the Japanese ambassador in Washington. It read in part, Commercial and economic relations between Japan and third countries led by England and the United States are gradually becoming so horribly strained that we cannot endure it much longer. Consequently, our empire, to save its very life, must take measures to secure the raw materials of the South Seas. Our empire must immediately take steps to break asunder this ever-strengthening chain of encirclement which is being woven under the guidance and with the participation of England and the United States, acting like a cunning dragon seemingly asleep. That is why we decided to obtain military bases in French Indochina and to have our troops occupy that territory. And now, Japanese-American relations are more rapidly than ever treading the evil road. After being decoded and translated, this message was distributed to Roosevelt and his advisors, the few top officials in Washington who were privy to magic. This cable further confirmed Japan's economic plight and the impending crisis due to the U.S. sanctions. On August 6, Japan again offered to negotiate. Japanese Prime Minister Fuminaro Konoye, who represented Japan's Peace Party, suggested a personal meeting with Roosevelt with a view to discussing means whereby an adjustment in U.S.-Japan relations could be brought about. On August 8, Nomura asked Hull whether it might not be possible for the responsible heads of the two governments to meet, say, in Honolulu. On August 17, the United States rejected this proposal. Hull made it clear that he did not see how conversations between the two governments could usefully be pursued or proposals be discussed 
while Japanese official spokesmen and the Japanese press contended that the United States was endeavoring to encircle Japan and carried on a campaign against the United States. The First U.S. Ultimatum to Japan The public announcement of the Argentium meeting of Roosevelt and Churchill announced the Atlantic Charter, but said nothing about the tough words FDR had agreed to address to Japan as a result of his conversations with Churchill. It had been mutually understood by the men that the governments of both the United States and Great Britain needed more time to prepare for resistance against possible Japanese attack in the Far East. Therefore, it had been agreed that Roosevelt should make clear to Japan in no uncertain terms that further aggression against her neighboring countries would not be tolerated, that such aggression would force those countries to take measures to safeguard their rights. Accordingly, once FDR was back in Washington, he informed the Japanese ambassador, August 17, that if the Japanese government takes any further steps in pursuance of a policy or program of military domination by force or threat of force of neighboring countries, the government of the United States will be compelled to take immediately any and all steps which it may deem necessary towards safeguarding the legitimate rights and interests of the United States and American nationals and toward ensuring the safety and security of the United States. The next day, in a wire signed by Roosevelt, transmitted by the State Department to the U.S. Embassy in London, it was reported that FDR and Hull had received the Japanese ambassador and had made to him a statement covering the position of this government with respect to the taking by Japan of further steps in the direction of military domination by force, along the lines of the proposed statements such as you, Churchill, and I, FDR, had discussed. The statement I made to him was no less vigorous than and was substantially similar to the statement we had discussed. This statement was later referred to by Stimson and others as the first ultimatum to Japan. Kimmel continues to request men and equipment for the U.S. fleet in Hawaii. Before Kimmel took over as commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor on February 1, 1941, he had had an opportunity to survey the situation briefly. He had written Stark on January 27 that he was particularly impressed with the lack of Army equipment for the task of defending the space. I think the supply of an adequate number of Army planes and guns for the defense of Pearl Harbor should be given the highest priority. Kimmel was also concerned with the personnel shortage and wrote that he would probably be required to make recommendations on the subject shortly after I take over. It appears wise to now fill all ships with personnel to capacity both on account of the needed increase in complement to man the ships and to train men for new construction. These same complaints had been made before by Kimmel's predecessor, Richardson, just then being relieved of his command. Once in command, Kimmel continued to bombard Washington with requests for men and material to strengthen the fleet. Yet rather than being strengthened, the fleet was weakened by the transfer in May to the Atlantic of almost a fourth of the Pacific fleet. Kimmel felt he knew very little of what was going on in Washington, and he persisted in asking for information and supplies. After Germany attacked Russia, Kimmel wanted to know how this would affect policy. Whether or not planes are to be supplied to the Russians may be outside my province, Kimmel wrote on July 30. But I do remain keenly aware of our own deficiencies in aircraft. It is quite an undertaking for the United States to supply planes to any quarter of the globe in which fighting against Axis powers may occur. Again, on August 12th, Kimmel reminded Stark of the fleet's needs. Kimmel believed the radar equipment was far behind what it should be. We need more ships of all types for a successful Pacific campaign, 
But I believe we need submarines, destroyers, carriers, and cruisers even more than we need battleships. This is a vast ocean. Stark sympathized with Kimmel's supply problem but was unable to help. He responded on August 22nd to several of Kimmel's more recent requests for men and material. I know you want results, not excuses. So do I. I am doing everything from pleading to cussing with all the in-between variations and hope the picture presented is not too unsatisfactory. Although Kimmel got some results over the months he was in command, he generally got more excuses than results. The Victory Program Completed In estimating the military and production requirements of the nation, Wedemeyer had to seek data from many sources. He looked into the status of the shipping, munitions requirements, and munitions production of U.S. troop bases. He explored the situation and capabilities of each of the major combatant nations, the capabilities and probable lines of actions of both friendly and Axis powers. It was assumed that the earliest date when U.S. armed forces could be mobilized, trained, and equipped for extensive operations would be July 1, 1943. The President's July 9 request had enlarged the scope of Wedemeyer's survey. A couple of months later, Roosevelt expanded the task still further. In a memorandum to the War Department on August 30, he wrote that he wanted the department, working in cooperation with the Navy Department, to submit to him by September 10, 1941, their recommendation of distribution of expected United States production of munitions of war as between the United States, Great Britain, Russia, and the other countries to be aided by important items, quantity, time schedules, and approximate values for the period from the present time until June 30, 1942. FDR also wanted to receive their general conclusions as to the overall production effort of important items needed for victory on the general assumption that the reservoir of munitions power available to the United States and her friends is sufficiently superior to that available to the Axis powers to ensure defeat of the latter. Wedemeyer completed his exhaustive study by FDR's deadline. Japan's Peace Party Falls, Her War Party Takes Over With our embargo in full effect, Japan's economic plight was fast deteriorating. In a desperate effort to save his government, Prime Minister Kanoye on August 28 renewed his plea for a personal meeting with Roosevelt in Hawaii. The administration did not reply immediately. By September 23, the conversations with the Japanese ambassador in Washington had practically reached an impasse. Stark had a confidential talk with Hull about the situation and then reported to Kimmel. Conversations without results cannot last forever. If they fall through, and it looks like they might, the situation could only grow more tense. Stark wrote that Hull kept him pretty well informed and added in a PS dated September 29, if there is anything of moment, I will, of course, hasten to let you know. Once more, Kimmel felt reassured that he would be sent any information pertinent to Pearl Harbor. On October 2, Roosevelt and Hull, after several exchanges of notes, again turned down Kanoye's proposal for a Hawaii meeting. Two weeks later, on October 6, Kanoye, who had been doing his best to maintain peaceful relations between his country and the United States, was forced to resign. Kanoye's successor was an army general, Hideki Tojo. With a government composed primarily of military men, Japan's war party was in control. The chances of solving Japan's economic needs by peaceful means faded. Stark analyzed the Japanese power shift in a cable to his three fleet commanders. The resignation of the Japanese cabinet has created a grave situation. Since the U.S. and Britain are held responsible by Japan for her present desperate situation, there is also a possibility that Japan may attack these two powers. 
In view of these possibilities, you will take due precautions, including such preparatory deployments, as will not disclose strategic intention nor constitute provocative actions against Japan. In a covering letter to Kimmel, Stark wrote, Personally, I do not believe the Japs are going to sail into us, and the message I sent you merely stated the possibility. In fact, I tempered the message handed to me considerably. Perhaps I am wrong, but I hope not. In any case, after long powwows in the White House, it was felt we should be on guard, at least until something indicates the trend. Japanese Stocks of Strategic Materials Dangerously Low Estimates of Japan's stocks of strategic materials furnish clues to the Japanese situation. Lieutenant Albert E. Hindmarsh, an economic analyst in the far eastern section of naval intelligence, had access to all available intelligence, including magic. Hindmarsh was also regularly reading the minutes of the Japanese parliament. By following its debates, he could determine how much the Japanese government was paying per unit for storage of some 23 strategic materials. He then divided these figures into the total amounts shown in the Japanese budget for this purpose. In that way, he was able to calculate the stocks of Japan's strategic materials still on hand. At regular intervals, Hindmarsh personally took to Roosevelt his estimates of the stocks of these various materials. Japan's severest shortage was of oil. Our oil embargo, especially the embargo on aviation gasoline, was putting Japan in a desperate plight. Hindmarsh calculated in midsummer 1941 that she had on hand about 75 million barrels. In a war, Hindmarsh figured she would need 52 million barrels per year. She had enough mica, which came from India, for four years. And her stocks of hemp and sisal were sufficient, so she could safely bypass the Philippines. Hindmarsh was able to explain to FDR that, in view of Japan's economic priorities, she would have to aim first at replenishing her oil stocks. He expected her primary objective would be the Dutch East Indies, where she might expect to get oil production going in some six months or so. The October Revolution in ONI Throughout 1941, a struggle was going on within the Navy Department as to whose responsibility it was to evaluate secret military intelligence and pass it along to the commanders in the field. Both the Chief of War Plans, Rear Admiral Richmond K. Turner, and the Chief of Office of Naval Intelligence, Captain Allen G. Kirk, claimed this responsibility. The table of organization at the time seemed to place the responsibility with ONI and Stark's March 22 letter to Kimmel supported that position. However, Turner was aggressive and persistent. He finally persuaded Stark to reduce ONI to a fact-gathering agency, and war plans assumed the responsibility for evaluating available intelligence and for determining what should be sent to the field commanders. This October 1941 power struggle between ONI and war plans confused the lines of communication and created doubt as to just where the responsibility actually lay. Then also in October, Kirk and his top assistant were removed from duty. According to Communications Security Chief Safford, this was the first time in Navy Department history that both chief and assistant chief of a bureau had been removed from office simultaneously. The previous practice had been to remove only one of the top two men at a time, so as to assure continuity. The third man in charge, then in London, was not involved. Birthing Plan or Harbor Bomb Plot Messages The shift in ONI leadership took place on October 10, the day after the Birthing Plan message, asking the Japanese consul in Hawaii to report the movements of U.S. naval ships in and out of Pearl Harbor became available in Washington. 
Rear Admiral Theodore S. Wilkinson, who had been serving as commanding officer aboard the battleship USS Mississippi, took over as chief of ONI on October 15. Prior to joining the ONI, he had no experience with naval intelligence other than attendance at two international conferences for limitation of armaments in 1933 and 1934. The Pearl Harbor commanders were never advised of the birthing plan message. The failure to notify them of its existence and of the other ships and harbor messages decoded later in Washington could have been due to failure on the part of those evaluating intelligence to recognize the importance of these messages. It could have been due to disarray accompanying the turnover in ONI personnel. It could have been due to mere negligence. But whatever the reason, the fact remained that neither war plans nor ONI notified the Pearl Harbor commanders of those critical messages. The U.S. Navy's communications personnel in Hawaii were under instructions to try to solve the Japanese Navy code, JN-25. They were not to spend time trying to decipher Japanese intercepts in the Japanese consular code, J-19, or any other code. These were to be mailed to Washington for decoding and translating. Therefore, our people in Hawaii made no attempt to decode and translate these intercepts, but simply forwarded them, as instructed, to Washington. Airmail from Hawaii to Washington then was not nonstop. It was by short hops and only twice a week, so it took several days for an airmailed intercept to reach Washington. One J-19 message sent from Tokyo on September 24 to Honolulu was picked up in Hawaii and mailed, undecoded, to Washington, where it was decoded, translated, and made available to the top military personnel in Washington on October 9, 1941. In that message, the foreign minister in Tokyo asked the Japanese consul in Hawaii to set up a system for making regular reports on the movements of U.S. ships in and out of Pearl Harbor. This ships in harbor message became known as the birthing plan, or as the first of the bomb plot messages. Pearl Harbor was not notified. On November 15, Tokyo sent a cable to Honolulu, translated in Washington on December 3, which read, as relations between Japan and the United States are most critical, make your ships and harbor report irregular, but at a rate of twice a week. Pearl Harbor was not advised. On November 29, Tokyo cabled the consul in Honolulu. We have been receiving reports from you on ship movements, but in future, will you also report even when there are no movements? Washington decoded and translated this message on December 5. Pearl Harbor was not notified. Many other ships in harbor messages referring to Pearl Harbor, some 39 in all, were transmitted back and forth between Tokyo and Honolulu during the two months prior to the Japanese attack. Due to the pressure of other demands on the decoders in Washington, however, only 25 of these crucial intercepts were deciphered, translated, and read before the attack. Yet not a single one of those 25 deciphered and translated messages was sent to the Army and Navy commanders in Hawaii. They were not even informed of their existence. To complete the record, it might be pointed out that intercepted Japanese cables reveal to our authorities in Washington that the Japanese were also watching ship movements in Manila. Some 59 messages were exchanged between Tokyo and the Philippines. All but two were deciphered and translated before December 7th. 27 cables reporting on ship movements in and out of the Panama Canal were intercepted to and from Tokyo. 21 of which were deciphered and read before the attack on Pearl Harbor. We also intercepted eight Japanese cables between Tokyo and the West Coast, San Francisco and Seattle, 
another eight that refer to Southeast Asia and the Dutch East Indies, and a couple each concerning Vancouver, Canada, and Vladivostok, Russia. The record shows that the ships in Pearl Harbor were those most closely under surveillance. Yet no hint was ever given Kimmel or Short that the Japanese, from September 24 on, were plotting regularly on grid charts the locations and movements of ships in Pearl Harbor, and forwarding this information to Tokyo. Nor was any hint ever given Kimmel or Short that as of mid-November, the Japanese consul had been asked to make these reports more frequently, at a rate of twice a week, or that he had been asked on November 29 to report, even when there are no ship movements. In spite of Kimmel's several requests for intelligence and in spite of the repeated reassurances that he would be kept informed, none of these vital intercepts was forwarded to the Pearl Harbor commanders before the attack. Chapter 5, Talk of Ultimatums and Deadlines Japan and Public Opinion Japan's trade situation continued to deteriorate. Her situation was desperate. On November 3, Ambassador Gru in Tokyo cabled Secretary of State Hall that the greater part of Japan's commerce has been lost. Japanese industrial production has been dramatically curtailed and Japan's national resources have been depleted. And Gru believed that the United States would not be able to avert war in the Far East by continuing to embargo trade with Japan. He saw world political events crowding in upon Japan, forcing her to take some drastic actions. He cautioned that if diplomacy failed, if Japan did not succeed in her attempts at reconciliation with the United States, he fully expected she would make an all-out do-or-die attempt, actually risking national harakiri, to make her impervious to economic embargoes. The United States should be ready to decide whether war with Japan is justified by American national objectives, policies, and needs. Ngru left no room for illusions. He warned in his cable that the United States should not be deceived into thinking that Japan might not rush headlong into a suicidal struggle with the United States. It would be short-sighted for American policy to be based upon the belief that Japanese preparations are no more than saber-rattling. Japan may resort with dangerous and dramatic suddenness to measures which might make inevitable war with the United States. There were factions in both Japan and the United States that wanted to maintain peace. Japanese Prime Minister Kanoye had sought some agreement with the United States and had even offered to meet with Roosevelt to try to reconcile their differences. He had been rebuffed. As a result, he had been forced to resign. In October, a more militant faction had taken over the government of Japan. In this country, the sentiment against our going to war was still widespread. Public opinion polls in the spring of 1941 reported more than 80% of the people were against becoming involved. The America First Committee, established on September 4, 1940, was the most prominent organization that opposed U.S. involvement in the war. Its national chairman was General Robert E. Wood, board chairman of Sears, Roebuck & Company. Among its more celebrated members were journalist John T. Flynn, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, daughter of former President Theodore Roosevelt, World War I aviator Edward Rickenbacker, Lillian Gish, star of the early films, Socialist Norman Thomas, and aviator Colonel Charles A. Lindbergh. Lindbergh, a national hero ever since his dramatic solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, became America First's most popular spokesman. When he spoke at New York's Manhattan Center on April 23, 1941, the hall was jammed with 5,500 people. In subsequent appearances, New York, Minneapolis, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Hollywood, Cleveland, Des Moines, Fort Wayne, he attracted even larger enthusiastic crowds, up to 22,000. 
Others were also working to maintain peace with Japan. Among them were religious groups, the Friends or Quakers, and the followers of the Reverend E. Stanley Jones, a well-known Methodist missionary. Reverend Jones believed the Japanese were tired of fighting in China and were ready to make peace. He hoped to act as a catalyst to help the various parties reconcile their differences and had approached high Japanese and Chinese officials informally to learn their reaction to his suggestions. He had talked with officials in the U.S. State Department and his suggestions had been transmitted by memoranda to the president. He wanted FDR to send a personal cable to the emperor. Jones had also spoken to groups of ministers, usually finding them receptive to his ideas. By November 1941, Jones seemed to be making some progress with his suggestions. The pro-peace non-interventionists, however, were gradually being overwhelmed by the pro-British propaganda emanating from the administration and the mass communications media, radio, movies, newsreels, and major newspapers and magazines. Although the majority of the people in the United States still did not want this country to become involved in the war, the climate of opinion was gradually shifting. Anti-war sentiment was beginning to decline. Washington's Far Eastern Policy Warn Japan Delay Operations to Allow U.S. Buildup in Pacific Rather than wanting to conciliate Japan, Secretary of State Hull was in favor of issuing an additional warning. Before doing so, however, he sought to determine the Army's and Navy's state of readiness. Would the military authorities be ready to support further State Department warnings? On November 1, the State Department held a meeting on the Far Eastern situation. Messages from Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, China's head of government, at Chongqing, and General John Magruder, chief of the American military mission to Chongqing, were discussed. Chiang was urging that the United States warn Japan against attacking China through Yunnan, a province in southern China. To present the Navy viewpoint, Chief of Naval Operations Stark and Captain Sherman, the Navy liaison with the State Department, were present. They pointed out that Japan had already been warned. The President had told Japan on August 17, when he returned from meeting Churchill at Argentia, that if she continued military aggression against her neighboring countries, the United States would be compelled to take action. According to Sherman, Hall desired to know if the military authorities would be prepared to support further warnings by the State Department. Another meeting was held at the State Department the following day. At that time, it was proposed that the British send some planes to Thailand and that Japan be warned against moving into Siberia. On November 3, the Joint Board of the Army and Navy met. Fifteen top Army and Navy officers were present. The deliberations were strictly confidential. No hint of them was made public. Assistant Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Royal E. Ingersoll reviewed the Far Eastern situation. He said that a decision had been made several months before to make the major effort in the Atlantic and if forced to fight in the Pacific to engage in a limited offensive effort. This was consistent with the U.S.-British Staff Conversations Report, ABC1, of March 27, 1941. A major war effort in the Pacific, Ingersoll pointed out, would require an enormous amount of shipping which would have to come from the Atlantic and other essential areas. And this would materially affect United States aid to England. Even if the fleet could be moved to the Far East, he continued, there were no repair facilities at Manila or Singapore. Ingersoll then assessed the possibility of a Japanese attack. Japan is capable of launching an attack in five directions, namely against Russia, the Philippines, into Yunnan, Thailand, and against Malaya. 
He gave his recommendations as to what the United States should do in each of these five eventualities. In case of Japanese attack against either the Philippines or British and Dutch positions, the United States should resist the attack. In case of Japanese attack against Siberia, Thailand, or China through Yunnan, the United States should not declare war. Ingersoll felt the State Department was under the impression that Japan could be defeated in military action in a few weeks. However, he pointed out our fleet was seriously handicapped at the time for lack of certain major naval units then in the repair yards. He recommended that offensive action in the Far East be deferred until U.S. military strength was built up in the Philippines. From what he said, it was obvious that the U.S. military was not eager to provoke a confrontation with Japan. The present moment was not the opportune time to get brash. Army and Navy oppose ultimatum to Japan until Philippine strength is developed. Army Chief of Staff Marshall was also at this November 3 meeting. He said he had received information to the effect that the Japanese expected to decide in a couple of days, that would be by November 5, what action they would take. He emphasized that it would be dangerous to move the Augmented Army Air Force away from its present station in the Philippines, for he believed that as long as it was there, the Japanese would find action against the Philippines or towards the south to be a very hazardous operation. Moreover, he expected the army forces in the Philippines would be of impressive strength by mid-December, and this in itself would have a deterrent effect on Japanese operations. It was Marshall's position that, until U.S. power was sufficiently developed in the Philippines, so we would have something to back up our statements, the Japanese should not be antagonized unnecessarily. The United States should make certain minor concessions which the Japanese could use in saving face, such as a relaxation on oil restrictions or on similar trade restrictions. However, he realized that until U.S. forces were built up in the Far East, the situation was delicate. At the conclusion of these discussions, the Joint Board adopted Ingersoll's proposal, with amendments suggested by Stark and Marshall. A memorandum was to be prepared for the President opposing, number one, the issuance of an ultimatum to Japan, number two, military action against Japan if she moved into Yunnan, and three, support of Chiang Kai-shek with U.S. military forces. The memorandum was to recommend that the State Department postpone hostilities with Japan as long as possible, and that some agreements be made with Japan to tide the situation over for the next several months. In addition to these recommendations, the memorandum was to, number one, point out how a U.S.-Japanese war in the Far East would impair the help the United States was giving Great Britain and the other nations fighting Germany, and number two, emphasize that the United States was not in a position to engage in an offensive operation in the Far East without transferring to the Pacific most of the ships now in the Atlantic. Japanese-U.S. Relations on the Brink of Chaos Our facility in decoding and translating intercepted messages sent in the Japanese diplomatic code PURPLE had improved dramatically. On November 4, we intercepted, decoded, and translated a message sent from Tokyo earlier that day. Well, relations between Japan and the United States have reached the edge, and our people are losing confidence in the possibility of ever adjusting them. Conditions are so tense that no longer is procrastination possible, yet in any sincerity to maintain Pacific relationships between the Empire of Japan and the United States of America, we have decided to gamble once more on the continuance of the parlays, but this is our last effort. If through it we do not reach a quick accord, I am sorry to say the talks will certainly be ruptured. 
Then indeed will relations between our two nations be on the brink of chaos. I mean that the success or failure of the pending discussions will have an immense effect on the destiny of the Empire of Japan. In fact, we gamble the fate of our land on the throw of this die. Japan was announcing that a break in the relations with the United States was imminent, and the top U.S. political and military officials who were clear to read the secret intelligence known as magic knew it. Stark and Marshall Memorandum to FDR Avoid War with Japan Issue No Ultimatum to Japan As agreed at the November 3 meeting of the Joint Board, Marshall and Stark prepared a memorandum for the President, briefing him in some detail with respect to the Far East situation. One by one, they pointed out the various reasons why the United States should not issue an ultimatum to Japan that might force her to take drastic action involving the United States in a Pacific War. Number one, the U.S. fleet in the Pacific was inferior to the Japanese fleet and was not in a position to undertake an unlimited strategic offensive in the Western Pacific. Number two, U.S. military forces in the Philippines were not yet strong enough. They were being reinforced, however, and it was expected that air and submarine strength would be built up by mid-December and that the air forces would reach their projected strength by February or March 1942. Number three, British naval and air reinforcements were expected to reach Singapore by February or March. Marshall and Stark reconfirmed the policies and strategies agreed to in the U.S.-British staff conversations. War between the United States and Japan should be avoided, they wrote while building up defensive forces in the Far East until such time as Japan attacks or directly threatens territories whose security to the United States is of very great importance. Number one, territory or mandated territories of the United States, the British Commonwealth, or the Netherlands East Indies. Number two, certain parts of Thailand and Southeast Asia. Number three, Portuguese Timor, New Caledonia, and the Loyalty Islands, all in the Southwest Pacific. The memorandum also stated that, we should not intervene against Japan if she should attack Russia. We should attempt to weaken Japan economically. We should not send troops to China, but we should give all possible aid short of actual war to the Chinese central government. U.S. plans should be fully coordinated with the British and the Dutch. It closed with a strong recommendation that no ultimatum be delivered to Japan. Note that the territories Marshall and Stark named with whose defenses we were concerned and whose security to the United States is of very great importance, were all thousands of miles from our shore. Japan sets a deadline for signing agreement to save U.S. relations from falling into chaotic condition. Marshall had told the Joint Board on November 3 that he had information to the effect that on November 5 the Japanese would decide their course of action. And sure enough, on November 5 we intercepted and read the following November 5 Japanese message to the Washington Embassy. Because of various circumstances, it is absolutely necessary that all arrangements for the signing of this agreement be completed by the 25th of this month. I realize that this is a difficult order, but under the circumstances, it is an unavoidable one. Please understand this thoroughly and tackle the problem of saving the Japanese-U.S. relations from falling into a chaotic condition. Do so with great determination and with unstinted effort, I beg of you. This information is to be kept strictly to yourself only. U.S. cabinet would support a strike against Japan if she attacked the British or Dutch in Southeast Asia. It was customary for the president to hold meetings of his cabinet on Friday mornings, and he held one as usual on Friday, November 7. 
Secretary of War Stimson had kept a rather complete diary for many years, and he continued the practice throughout his tenure, dictating rather copious notes each morning before going to his office in the War Department. Following the November 7 meeting, Stimson wrote, The Far Eastern situation was uppermost in many of our minds. Paul reported that U.S. relations with Japan had become extremely critical and that we should be on the lookout for an attack by Japan at any time. But as Marshall and Stark had stated in no uncertain terms in their memorandum to FDR just two days before, the military were anxious to avoid becoming involved in any action with Japan at that time. Nevertheless, according to Stimson's diary, our military advisors had urged military action if Japan attacked American, British, or Dutch territory. In anticipation that we might be called on to take some such action under the Singapore Agreement with the British and Dutch, the military had been flying heavy B-17 bombers out to the Philippines for some time, whenever they could be spared from other duties. None of the cabinet members except Hull and Stimson knew of this ongoing buildup. Roosevelt took an informal vote of the cabinet members on how the American people might react if it became necessary to strike at Japan in case she should attack England in Malaya or the Dutch in the East Indies. According to Stimson's diary, the cabinet was unanimous in the feeling that the country would support such a move. That is, a strike against Japan if she were to attack the British or Dutch in Southeast Asia. News of Victory Program Leaks Marshall Denies Its Existence The all-encompassing Victory Program prepared at Roosevelt's request had been completed by September 10. It contained estimates of the military needs of the United States and her potential allies, and of the military stocks available worldwide to win a war in which this country was not as yet officially involved. The details and the very existence of the Victory Program was a carefully guarded secret. The number of copies made had been distributed only to a select few military and administration officials. However, if it was to be intelligently implemented, the officers who would be involved had to know about it. Therefore, War Plans Division, WPD, prepared a strategic estimate of the situation, which had circulated in mid-November among War Department officials. In spite of the careful security surrounding WPD's estimate, news of the victory program leaked out. A rumor circulated in November that an American Expeditionary Force, AEF, was being planned. If true, this was contrary to Marshall's testimony before Congress in July when testifying on the extension of selective service. At the time, he had discounted any threat of militarism and assured Congress that he was not considering an AEF, but merely task forces of 5,000, 15,000, or 30,000 men. Marshall issued a categorical denial to scotch the rumor about an AEF. There is no foundation whatsoever for the allegation or rumor that we are preparing troops for a possible expedition to Africa or other critical areas outside this hemisphere. The Japanese Push for Agreement The seriousness of the Japanese deadline became increasingly apparent to anyone reading the secret purple dispatches during this period. Japan was sending Nomura repeated reminders of the need for urgency. She realized she had to reach some agreement with the United States. And with this in mind, Ambassador Nomura and representatives of the U.S. State Department continued their discussions. In a further attempt to bring about an amicable settlement, Japan sent to Washington a second ambassador, Admiral Saburu Kurusu, to assist Nomura. Kurusu, with an American wife, was pro-American. Kurusu's association with the U.S. dated back to World War I when the two countries were allies. 
The U.S. government facilitated priority passage for him and for the Japanese foreign officer's secretary who accompanied him to the United States via a Pan Am plane. Caruso arrived in Washington on November 15. His instructions were to Cooperate with Nomura in an unsparing effort to guide the negotiations to an early settlement. That is my fervent prayer which I hope may be granted. The crisis is fast approaching. Do everything in your power to make the United States come to the realization that it is indeed a critical situation. I beg of you to make every effort to have them cooperate with us in assuring peace on the Pacific. On November 15, our Navy decoders deciphered and translated a Japanese purple intercept, reminding the Japanese ambassador in Washington that the date, November 25, set forth in my message number 736, is an absolutely immovable one. Please, therefore, make the United States see the light so as to make possible the signing of the agreement by that date. Nomura immediately cabled Tokyo. He was concerned about what would happen to the Japanese nationals residing in the United States. Let us suppose that the Japanese-U.S. negotiations for the adjustment of relations between the two countries, which are being conducted at present, unfortunately break down. It is most probable that diplomatic relations between the two countries would be broken off immediately. I presume that the government has given careful consideration as to the disposition of the various offices and our nationals residing here. I would appreciate being advised in confidence of your decision in these matters. Tokyo answered the following day. You may be sure that you have all my gratitude for the efforts you have put forth, but the fate of our empire hangs by the slender thread of a few days, so please fight harder than you ever did before. I set the deadline for the solution of these negotiations in my number 736, and there will be no change. Please try to understand that. You see how short the time is, therefore do not allow the United States to sidetrack us and delay the negotiations any further. Press them for a solution on the basis of our proposals and do your best to bring about an immediate solution. We decoded, translated, and read both messages on November 17. Nomura presented Japan's newly arrived second ambassador, Kurusu, to Secretary of State Hull on November 17. The three men then proceeded to the White House so that Kurusu might be received formally by the president. After the courtesies were over, Roosevelt brought up the serious misunderstandings between the two countries and expressed his desire to avoid war. The ambassador said they equally wished for a peaceful settlement in the Pacific. In Caruso's words, all the way across the Pacific, it was like a powder keg. He repeated that some way must be found to avoid war and assured the president that Prime Minister Tojo was also very desirous of bringing about a peaceful adjustment, notwithstanding he is an army man. Meanwhile, that very afternoon, Hull received a cable from Ambassador Gru in Japan. Gru warned that there was need to guard against sudden Japanese naval or military actions outside the area of the Chinese theater of operations. It was likely, he said, that the Japanese might take every possible tactical advantage, such as surprise and initiative. Japan maintained extremely effective control over both primary and secondary military information. So the embassy's field of observation was restricted almost literally to what could be seen with a naked eye, and this is negligible. This meant that the U.S. Embassy's naval and military attachés could not be relied on to send substantial warning. The Japanese, therefore, were assured of the ability to send without foreign observation their troop transports in various directions. The Japanese ambassadors continue trying for agreement. The two Japanese ambassadors were back at the State Department the following day. 
Their deadline, November 25, was approaching, and their immediate concern was the difficult position of the Japanese under the U.S.-imposed trade restrictions and asset freeze. They pointed out that Japan was much more dependent on foreign trade than the United States. She was hard-pressed and thus desirous of reaching some agreement. Hall responded by raising the China question, which had long been a sticking point between the two countries. Would the Japanese be willing to forego annexation and indemnities and to respect China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, as well as the principle of equality? Nomura replied that they would be. Hall then asked how many soldiers the Japanese would be willing to withdraw from China. Possibly 90%, the ambassador replied. And how long did the Japanese intend to keep that remaining 10% in China? The ambassador did not reply directly, but invited attention to the fact that under the existing Boxer Protocol, Japan was permitted to retain troops in the Peiping and Tianjin area. The next topic was Indochina. When Japan moved troops into that country in July, U.S.-Japanese conversations were interrupted and shipments of petroleum products were discontinued. Harusu said Japan intended to withdraw her troops from Indochina as soon as a just Pacific settlement should be reached. He asked about the possibility of the United States ending the sanctions in the meantime. Hull said he would consult the British and the Dutch on the suggestion. The Japanese were tired of fighting China, Karusu added, and she would go as far as she could in taking the first step toward peace. Nevertheless, the U.S. government refused to make any concessions about aid to China. The situation was complicated by Japan's military alliance with Germany. Both England and Russia wanted Japan thoroughly occupied with her war in China, so that she could not become an active ally of Germany, which would put at risk Britain's possessions in Asia and Russia's far eastern territory. Thus, U.S. aid to China was, in effect, aid to England and Russia. Judging from the cable traffic we were reading, it was becoming apparent that Japan was preparing for a definite break in relations with the United States within a very short time. As we have seen, the Japanese embassy in Washington had cabled Tokyo on November 15 to ask advice as to the disposition of the various offices and our nationals residing here in the event of such a break. Then on November 17, Tokyo responded in a cable that we read on the 19th, asking the Japanese ambassador to advise the several consuls in the United States secretly to help our citizens who remain behind to work for the common good and also to destroy immediately secret documents. Tokyo would soon wire a plan for reducing the members of staff. A break in relations was close. Chapter 6. Modus Vivendi. Yes? No. Intelligence. Information about an enemy is intelligence. Intelligence is one of the most valuable weapons in the arsenal of a belligerent. Most intelligence comes in bits and pieces. One fact here, another there, often seemingly unrelated. In the hands of an intelligent and capable agent, these bits and pieces may often be linked and made intelligible, yielding valuable information, intelligence. Thus, coordination, analysis, and interpretation are extremely important. The more intelligence a nation can gain about its enemies, their forces, weapons, and plans, the more prepared it can be to forestall or oppose an attack, and the greater advantage it will have in any encounter. To gain information about their enemies, to observe and to eavesdrop, Warring powers employ every available technique. Spies, telescopes, balloons, radio intercepts, electronic devices, satellite photography, cryptography, and so on. They seek to intercept secret communications. They work to expose invisible inks and to decipher codes and ciphers, 
often extremely intricate and complex ones that frequently are revised and altered. Espionage and counter-espionage are important to both sides in any conflict. As we have seen, the United States had an advantage over the Japanese during the 1921 and 1922 Washington Naval Conference on Disarmament because it was reading the Japanese government's secret instructions to its representative. But the U.S. government closed down its cryptographic agency in 1929, although the Navy continued to maintain an intelligence office, OP-20G, which operated after 1916 under Commander Lawrence F. Safford. And in 1930, the Army established its Signal Intelligence Service, SIS, headed by William Friedman. By 1940, these two agencies were deeply involved once more in analyzing and deciphering Japanese codes. At that time, the Japanese had many codes of varying complexities. Each was intended for a different purpose. The most intricate were their diplomatic, consular, and naval codes. When the Japanese were especially anxious to assure the security of a message, they usually transmitted it in one of these codes. They considered their diplomatic code to be their most complex and most indecipherable. They thought it was absolutely secure and used it for their very most secret messages. Japan's Diplomatic Code The intelligence experts in the Army's SIS and the Navy's OP-20G cooperated in the attempt to break the various Japanese codes. Although the Japanese Navy code long defied U.S. cryptographers, they made considerable headway in breaking several others, including the Consular Code. Their most spectacular success, however, was with Japan's diplomatic cipher. After some 18 or 20 months of painstaking effort, the Army and Navy experts finally succeeded in breaking this code. They even constructed a machine that could duplicate the operations of the Japanese machine, including replicating the daily shuffling and transpositional changes by which the Japanese hoped to thwart would-be code breakers. In time, six of these machines were constructed. For some time, the U.S. codename for Japan had been Orange. The machine used for decoding a previous Japanese cipher had been known as the Red Machine. So in the tradition of color codenames, this new machine was called Purple. The first Purple machine was retained in Washington. When additional machines became available, they were distributed to stations where they were expected to be most valuable. The Navy retained one, the Army two. The others were sent to commanders in the field where conflict with Japan seemed possible. Two machines were sent to England, one of which was later forwarded to Singapore. Another machine went to Corregidor in the Philippines. Because personnel was limited there, and because atmospheric conditions prevented picking up more than 10% of the Tokyo-Washington messages, the Philippines handled primarily local traffic. No purple machine was ever sent to Hawaii. The Pearl Harbor commanders had to rely for intelligence about the Japanese on radio directional findings they could pick up and on reports relayed to them from Washington. Intercepting and decoding a Japanese message was only the first step on the road to turning it into useful intelligence. Once deciphered, an intercept had to be translated into English. But this translation was not intelligence. It was only raw material. To become useful intelligence, it had to be properly analyzed and interpreted. Then it had to reach those who could use it to advantage. And all this had to be accomplished without the enemy's knowledge. Developing the purple machine seemed almost miraculous, so the information derived from it was codenamed MAGIC. Since this information was extremely valuable, the U.S. government was anxious not to jeopardize its source. Should the Japanese discover their code had been broken, they would undoubtedly stop using it, revise it, and or adopt a different code. The laborious task of breaking a new code would then have to begin all over again. 
So knowledge of purple was confined to a very few officials, and only about a dozen copies of each translated magic intercept were made. Distributions of the magic intercepts was by a high-ranking special courier, who usually waited to answer questions while the intercepts were being read. To maintain security, the intercepts were then retrieved and returned to a secure file. Only four copies of each decoded, translated intercept were kept. All others were destroyed. Once the Japanese diplomatic code was broken, the Army and Navy intercept stations rarely missed a message. With experience, the Army and Navy specialists in Washington became quite skillful at deciphering Japanese messages coded on the purple machine. As time went by, specialists were often able to decode and translate messages so quickly that they were in the hands of Secretary of State Hall before his meetings with the Japanese ambassadors. Of the 227 messages pertaining to Japanese-American negotiations sent between Tokyo and Washington from March to December 1941, all but four were picked up. And the messages we intercepted dealt not only with the U.S.-Japanese negotiations, but also with many other matters. So throughout the months preceding the Japanese attack, U.S. officials in Washington received a continual flow of precise and accurate information directly from the innermost chambers of the Japanese government. However, the Japanese officials did not communicate everything to their representatives abroad, not even to their Washington ambassadors. So there was still much we did not know about Japan's plans and intentions, and there was ample room for conjecture, speculation, and interpretation. Japan proposes a modus vivendi. On November 19, Japanese ambassadors Nomura and Karusu renewed their conversations with Hull at his apartment. The ambassadors told Hull that Japan was being squeezed economically by the U.S. embargo and by our freezing measures, she wanted a quick settlement. They told Hull they were momentarily expecting instructions from their government. Hull suggested that if the Japanese government could prevail over the views of the Japanese war party, it might be possible to work out something with us. By the following day, the ambassadors had received their instructions and visited Hull again. Nomura said, the Japanese government was clearly desirous of peace and that it was trying to show this peaceful purpose by relieving the pressure on Thailand. It was anxious to resume trade, and to accomplish this, it was offering to restrict military operations. Nomura and Karusu proposed a modus vivendi. Modus vivendi is Latin meaning a living or viable method or measure. In other words, the ambassadors were proposing a temporary working arrangement until the disputes could be settled. The Japanese modus vivendi contained five points. Number one, the government of Japan and of the United States should agree not to make any armed advancement in Southeastern Asia or the South Pacific except in French Indochina, where the Japanese troops were already stationed. Number two, the Japanese government would agree to withdraw its troops from French Indochina once peace was established in the Pacific, and in the meantime, it would shift them from southern to northern French Indochina. Number three, the two governments would cooperate with a view to securing, in the Netherlands East Indies, the various goods and commodities they might need. Number four, the governments would undertake to restore pre-embargo commercial relations, and the United States shall supply Japan a required quantity of oil. And number five, the U.S. government in turn should refrain from actions prejudicial to the restoration of general peace between Japan and China. United States makes a six-month modus vivendi counterproposal. President Roosevelt expressed his view on the Japanese modus vivendi in a handwritten note to Hull. Six months. Number one, 
U.S. to resume economic relations, some oil and rice now, more later. Number two, Japan to send no more troops to Indochina or Manchurian border or any place south, Dutch, Brit, or Siam. Number three, Japan to agree not to invoke tripartite pact even if U.S. gets into European war. Number four, U.S. to introduce Japs to Chinese to talk things over, but U.S. to take no part in their conversations. Later on Pacific Agreements. Apparently, FDR was then willing to enter into an agreement with Japan to help relieve the economic pressures on her for six months. He would permit Japan to obtain some oil and rice. He would not insist that Japan pull out of Indochina completely. He was concerned about the Japanese-German pact. However, in Item 4, FDR ignored Japan's request that the United States refrain from such measures and actions as will be prejudicial to the restoration of general peace in China. In other words, he did not acknowledge Japan's request that the United States discontinue helping Chang's forces. To FDR, aid to China was important. By helping China, we were hurting Japan, preventing her from attacking the Russian communists in the Far East, and that helped our allies, England and Russia, in their struggle against Germany and Europe. Before responding to the Japanese proposal, Hull met on November 22nd with the British and Australian ambassadors and the Dutch minister to determine the reactions of their respective governments. The Chinese ambassador, also invited, was late in arriving. Hall suggested, and the others seemed to agree, that it would be better to submit a substitute proposal than to make a specific reply to the Japanese proposal section for section. He outlined his alternative, modus vivendi, the major purposes of which were to contain Japan and to protect China. The ambassadors all seemed to be well-pleased, except the Chinese ambassador, who was somewhat disturbed. But then, in Hull's words, he always is when any question concerning China arises not entirely to his way of thinking. Japanese deadline extended to November 29, after which things are automatically going to happen. The Japanese ambassador had been told on November 5 that they must conclude their deliberations by November 25. Then, on November 22, Tokyo cabled them, extending the deadline to November 29, but urged them to continue their efforts. Stick to your fixed policy and do your very best. Spare no efforts and try to bring about the solution we desire. It is awfully hard for us to consider changing the date, Tokyo told the two ambassadors. There are reasons beyond your ability to guess why we wanted to settle the Japanese-American relations by the 25th. But if, within the next three or four days, you can finish your conversations with the Americans, if the signing can be completed by the 29th, let me write it out for you, 29th. If the pertinent notes can be exchanged, if we can get an understanding with Great Britain and the Netherlands, and in short, if everything can be finished, we have decided to wait until that date. But the Japanese government added, this time we mean it, that the deadline absolutely cannot be changed. After that, things are automatically going to happen, with italics added. The Japanese ambassadors were being given a little more time. It was obvious that the failure of the negotiations would have serious repercussions, but also that their government was not taking them into full confidence. On November 22nd, Japan made another concession, offering to move her troops from the south of Indochina to the north. Perusu told Hull it had taken a great deal of persuasion to induce the army to abandon a position once taken but that both he and the ambassador had been pleasantly surprised when the Japanese army acceded to their suggestion in regard to offering to withdraw the Japanese troops from southern Indochina. 
Caruso considered this an encouraging sign. On November 24, two days after U.S. intelligence experts decoded Tokyo Cable Number 812, extending the Japanese deadline to November 29, the two ambassadors received a follow-up cable from Tokyo. The time limit set in my message, number 812, is in Tokyo time. That was 14 hours earlier than Washington time. Thus, we were alerted that the timing of the deadline was crucial. This cable was decoded by our crypto analysts in Washington on the same day it was sent. More discussions among friends of the U.S. on U.S. response to Japan. Also, on November 24, Hull met once more with the Australian, British, Chinese, and Dutch diplomats. The Dutch minister said his government would support the U.S. modus vivendi proposal. However, Chinese Ambassador Hu Xi objected to several of its provisions that affected China. For one thing, he believed that permitting the Japanese to retain soldiers in Indochina would pose a threat to China's supply line, the recently reopened Burma Road. Paul realized the urgency of the situation. He pointed out to the four diplomats the importance of reaching a temporary agreement with the Japanese to assure a few more months of peace. He said he was striving to reach this proposed temporary agreement primarily because the heads of our army and navy often emphasize to him that time is the all-important question for them and that it is necessary to be more fully prepared to deal effectively with the situation in the Pacific area in case of an outbreak by Japan. Hull also emphasized the point that even if we agree that the chances of such an outbreak are not great, it must be admitted that there are real possibilities that such an outbreak may soon occur any day after this week, unless a temporary arrangement is effected, italics added. Information then available in the Navy Department clearly indicated that the Japanese were planning some decisive action for the very near future. In the afternoon of November 24, Chief of Naval Operations Stark authorized a circular message to his fleet commanders on the rim of the Pacific. In the Philippines, Hart, at Pearl Harbor, Himmel, and to the commandants of the several naval districts, Panama, the 15th, San Diego, the 11th, San Francisco, the 12th, and Seattle, the 13th, with copies for information only to Spenavo, Special Naval Observer London, and the commander of the Atlantic Fleet, King. All Navy messages were identified by a six-digit number indicating the time and date filed in Greenwich, England. This system eliminated confusion that might arise when sending and receiving messages to and from different time zones. In his cable, Stark advised his field commanders, Chances of favorable outcome of negotiations with Japan very doubtful. This situation coupled with statements of Japanese government and movements. Their naval and military forces indicate, in our opinion, that a surprise aggressive movement in any direction, including attack on Philippines or Guam, is a possibility. Guam will be informed separately. The commanders were asked to inform senior army officers their areas. Following instructions, Admiral Kimmel consulted with General Short in Hawaii. Kimmel and his advisors did not dispute Japan's capability for delivering a long-range surprise bombing attack on Pearl Harbor, nor did they rule out the possibility that Japan might attack without a declaration of war. The Philippines and Guam seemed the only U.S. possessions imminently threatened by Japan. The Philippines were on the flank of the most direct route from Japan to French Indochina, the Malay Peninsula, and the Dutch East Indies. And Guam, the site of a U.S. naval station, lay in the midst of the Japanese-mandated, formerly German-owned islands, the Marianas, Carolines, and Marshalls. After World War I, Japan, then an ally of Great Britain and the United States, 
had been given these islands to administer under a League of Nations mandate, and we had known for some time that Japan was constructing naval and air bases on them. Thus, Kimmel and his advisors did not consider it likely that Hawaii would be the target of such a surprise aggressive movement in any direction. They reasoned that she, Japan, would not commit the strategic blunder of delivering a surprise attack on United States territory, the one course that irrevocably would unite the American people in war against Japan. So the effect of Stark's message was to turn the attention of Kimmel and his advisors toward the Far East. Objections Raised to U.S. Proposed Modus Vivendi Another November 24 meeting concerning the U.S. Proposed Modus Vivendi took place in the office of Treasurer Secretary Morgenthau. Also present were Harry Dexter White, an Assistant Secretary, and Russian Embassy Counselor, later Ambassador, Andrei Gromyko. White protested against a Far Eastern Munich. He drafted a letter to Roosevelt for Morgenthau's signature, stating that to sell China to her enemies for 30 bloodstained pieces of gold will not only weaken our national policy in Europe as well as in the Far East, but will dim the luster of American world leadership in the great democratic fight against fascism. Morgenthau didn't send that letter. He didn't have to. He realized the president needed no prodding to stand for precisely the policy which the secretary then and later considered essential. He had, in a sense, deemed it essential ever since the fall of 1938. It was in November 1938 that Japan had announced her intention of establishing an anti-communist new order in Asia. Japan, Manchukuo, and China were to cooperate to secure international justice, to perfect the joint defense against communism, and to create a new culture and realize a close economic cohesion throughout East Asia. In the evening of November 24, Chinese Ambassador Hu Xi called on Stanley K. Hornbeck, State Department Advisor on Political Relations, to register his objections to the modus vivendi the United States was considering. The ambassador said he realized that it would be very helpful to keep the Japanese in suspense for another three months, but he doubted whether that could be achieved. However, he assured Hornbeck that he would try to cause his government to see the problem in the light in which the American government sees it. The Dutch minister had told Hull on November 22 that his government supported the U.S. proposal. However, the Dutch government had contacted him again to express reservations, as the Chinese ambassador had, to the number of Japanese troops that might be left in Indochina. The minister also called on Hornbeck that evening to relay to him his government's second thoughts. The U.S. Proposes Three-Month Modus Vivendi the U.S. counter-proposal to the Japanese modus vivendi went through several drafts. The one finally approved by both the War and Navy Departments, and then later at a White House meeting by FDR's so-called War Cabinet, provided for a three-month respite. The United States was still, of course, officially neutral and nominally at peace. However, a War Cabinet had been set up as an informal body to coordinate the activities of the civil and military branches of the Executive Department. This war cabinet consisted of the President, the Secretaries of State, Hull, War, Stimson, and Navy, Knox, the Army Chief of Staff, Marshall, Chief of Naval Operations, Stark, and occasionally the Commanding General of the Air Force, Arnold. It was a sort of clearinghouse for information, a gathering place for discussion of policies so that each of the independent actors in the scene would know what was going on and would have information to guide him in making his own decisions that were more or less independent 
but at the same time also somewhat dependent on the action of other members of the group. The U.S. proposal called on Japan to withdraw her troops from French Indochina and to make no further advances in Asia or the Pacific. These provisions would accomplish the administration's goals of restraining Japan and protecting China. In return for these concessions, the United States would agree to relax her trade restrictions for three months. The export of petroleum to Japan would be permitted upon a monthly basis for civilian needs only. The United States also would try to induce the Australian, British, and Dutch governments to relax their trade restrictions. In a November 24 telegram to Churchill, Roosevelt summarized this three-month modus vivendi. This seems to me a fair proposition for the Japanese, but its acceptance or rejection is really a matter of internal Japanese politics. I am not very hopeful, and we must all be prepared for real trouble, possibly soon. Stimson and Knox met in Hull's office on November 25, where they discussed the proposal at some length. Stimson thought it adequately safeguarded all our interests, but he didn't think the Japanese would accept it because it was so drastic. British Ambassador Lord Halifax called on Hull later that same morning and relayed Britain's approval of the U.S. decision to present the Japanese with a counterproposal. The British, he said, had complete confidence in Mr. Hull's handling of these negotiations. They believed the Japanese will try to force a hurried decision by magnifying the dangers of delay and urged that to prevent misrepresentation by Japan, it will have to be made public that any interim agreement is purely provisional and is only concluded to facilitate negotiation of an ultimate agreement on more fundamental issues satisfactory to all parties concerned. China Objects to U.S. Revised Three-Month Modus Vivendi Word of the proposed U.S. Modus Vivendi soon reached Chiang Kai-shek. On November 25, numerous hysterical cable messages to different cabinet officers and high officials in the government began arriving from him and his associates. They bombarded Washington with demands that no further concessions be made to Tokyo. Chang cabled Knox, Stimson, and Morgenthau to say the same thing. He also cabled Churchill in England. Chang appeared frantic. He asked his brother-in-law and personal emissary in Washington, Dr. T.V. Sung of China Defense Supplies Incorporated, to contact Stimson and Knox. If, therefore, there is any relaxation of the embargo or freezing regulations, or if a belief of that gains ground, then the Chinese people would consider that China has been completely sacrificed by the United States. The morale of the entire people will collapse, and every Asiatic nation will lose faith, and indeed suffer a shock in their faith in democracy, that a most tragic epoch in the world will be opened. The Chinese army will collapse, and the Japanese will be unable to carry through their plans, so that even if in the future America would come to our rescue, the situation would be already hopeless. Another cable was sent that same day by one of Chang's advisors, Owen Lattimore, to Lachlan Curry, then an administrative assistant to President Roosevelt and a friend of Lattimore's. Curry had helped Lattimore obtain the appointment as Chang's U.S. political advisor. Lattimore cabled that he had never seen him, Chiang Kai-shek, really agitated before. Loosening of economic pressure or unfreezing would dangerously increase Japan's military advantage in China. According to Lattimore, Chang believed that, a relaxation of American pressure while Japan has its forces in China would dismay the Chinese. Any modus vivendi now arrived at with China, spelled incorrectly for Japan, would be disastrous to Chinese belief in America and analogous to the closing of the Burma Road, which permanently destroyed British prestige. It is doubtful whether either past assistance or increasing aid could compensate for the feeling of being deserted at this hour. 
The Generalissimo, Chang, has deep confidence in the President's fidelity to his consistent policy, but I must warn you that even the Generalissimo questions his ability to hold the situation together if the Chinese national trust in America is undermined by reports of Japan's escaping military defeat by diplomatic victory. Still another cable arrived from China, this one from Foreign Minister Kuo Taichi to Ambassador Hu Xi. The Generalissimo showed rather strong reaction at the news he was receiving from Washington. Kuo Taichi's wire was somewhat calmer than Lattimore's. Chang got the impression that the United States government has put aside the Chinese question in its conversation with Japan. Apparently, Chang believed that the United States was still inclined to appease Japan at the expense of China. Kuo Taichi had explained to Chang that the Secretary of State has always had the greatest respect for the fundamental principles and that I believe he has made no concession to Japan. But his main point came through loud and clear. We are, however, firmly opposed to any measure which may have the effect of increasing China's difficulty in her war of resistance or of strengthening Japan's power in her aggression against China. Please inform the Secretary of State. When Hu Xi showed Hall this telegram, Hall again explained that the United States was just trying to give the U.S. military more time to build up its defenses. The official heads of our Army and Navy for some weeks, Hall said, have been most earnestly urging that we not get into war with Japan until they have had an opportunity to increase further their plans and methods and means of defense in the Pacific area. Therefore, at the request of the more peaceful elements in Japan, we have been carrying on conversations and have been making some progress thus far. Hall told Hu Xi that the Generalissimo and Madame Chiang Kai-shek had very recently flooded Washington with strong and lengthy cables, telling us how extremely dangerous the Japanese threat is to attack the Burma Road through Indochina and appealing loudly for aid. Hall pointed out that, Practically, the first thing this present proposal of mine and the president does is to require the Japanese troops to be taken out of Indochina and thereby to protect the Burma Road. Our proposal would relieve the menace of Japan and Indochina to the whole South Pacific area. Hall continued, Of course, we can cancel this proposal, but it must be with the understanding that we are not to be charged with failure to send our fleet into the area near Indochina and into Japanese waters if by any chance Japan makes a military drive southward. It would seem that either Hu Xi had completely misunderstood the provisions of the proposed modus vivendi, or Chang had. Perhaps these provisions had been misrepresented to China. As Hull explained to Hu Xi, the draft Hull had outlined previously would have required Japan to withdraw all military and police forces from China proper and from Indochina. Japan would also have to agree to support no other government or regime in China except Chang's, then headquartered at Chongqing. If Japan acceded to these provisions, it would constitute a great victory for Chang's government. Japanese attack appears imminent. Stimson, can they be maneuvered into firing the first shot? On November 25, Navy intelligence deciphered and translated a Japanese J-19 circular message, number 2330 sent 10 days before from Tokyo to all Japan's representatives abroad. It gave them detailed instructions for the destruction of code machines to be carried out in the event of an emergency. Here was clear evidence that Japan was contemplating more hostile action in the near future. At noon on November 25, FDR's War Cabinet met at the White House. Instead of bringing up the victory parade, that is the plan for the actual winning of a war not yet declared, as Stimson had expected, Roosevelt raised another subject. 
He announced, Stimson recalled, that we were likely to be attacked perhaps as soon as next Monday, December 1. The Japanese were undoubtedly planning an expedition to the south, which would be likely to interfere with our interest in the Philippines and cutting into our vital supplies of rubber from Malaysia. Hull laid out his general broad propositions on which the thing, our response to Japan's proposed modus vivendi, should be rested. The freedom of the seas and the fact that Japan was in alliance with Hitler and was carrying out his policy of world aggression. FDR reminded the group that the Japanese were notorious for making an attack without warning. The question before the war cabinet was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Stimson confided to his diary that this was indeed a difficult proposition. The possibility of issuing Japan an ultimatum was also raised at this meeting. Stimson pointed out that the president had already taken the first steps towards an ultimatum in notifying Japan way back last summer, August 17, that if she crossed the border into Thailand, she was violating our safety. He had only to point out to Japan that to follow, spelled incorrectly, allow, any such expedition was a violation of a warning we had already given. So Hull was asked to prepare such a statement to be submitted to Japan. When Stimson returned to his office from this meeting, he learned from Army Intelligence, G2, that five Japanese divisions were headed southward from Shantung and Shanxi to Shanghai. The ships had been sighted south of Formosa. He immediately phoned Hull and sent him a copy of the G2 message. He also sent a copy to the president. U.S. Proposed Modus Vivendi Scuttled At 6 a.m. the next day, a triple-priority cable addressed to FDR from the former naval person, Winston Churchill, was received in Washington. Churchill acknowledged receipt of the U.S. proposed modus vivendi. Of course, it is for you to handle this business, Churchill cabled, and we certainly do not want an additional war. There is only one point that disquiets us. What about Chiang Kai-shek? Is he not having a very thin diet? If they collapse, our joint dangers would enormously increase. Early that morning, T.B. Sung, Chang's brother-in-law and emissary in Washington, called on Harry Dexter White. Sung pleaded with White to use his influence with Morgenthau to try to have the proposed U.S. modus vivendi killed. White approached Morgenthau and persuaded him to call on the president. Morgenthau walked through the underground passageway linking the Treasury Building to the White House to see Roosevelt. After Morgenthau described the Chinese ambassadors and Sung's agitation, FDR agreed to see them. I will quiet them down, he said. White, also, sent an urgent telegram to Edward C. Carter, the former Secretary General of the Institute of the Pacific Relations in New York, asking Carter to come to Washington to lobby against making any concessions to the Japanese. Stimson phoned FDR that same morning and told him about the Japanese expedition southward bound from China. This was news to him for he hadn't seen the G2 message Stimson had sent him the evening before. According to Stimson, Roosevelt blew up, jumped into the air, so to speak, and said, That changed the whole situation because it was an evidence of bad faith on the part of the Japanese that while they were negotiating for an entire truce, an entire withdrawal from China, they should be sending this expedition down there to Indochina. FDR met with the two Chinese and then called Hull to the White House. The proposed modus vivendi would be scuttled and a statement of broad basic proposals would be offered instead. The Dutch government's shift from support to criticism of our modus vivendi, the reversal of the British government's position from complete confidence in Hull and support for a U.S. counterproposal to concern with Chang's very thin diet, buttressed by Chang's campaign of cables, 
had tipped the scales against Japan. Without consulting his other advisors, Roosevelt authorized Hull to give the Japanese a 10-point note based on White's suggestions. Neither War nor Navy Department was notified of this decision. Both Roosevelt and Hull realized their note would be unacceptable to the Japanese. Chang's anti-Japanese campaign, orchestrated largely by three communist sympathizers, White, Lattimore, and Curry, with Edward C. Carter standing in the wings ready to help if need be, had paid off. Footnote 44 denotes, The communist affiliation of these several advisors are on the record. The evidence offered by Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley that White engaged in Soviet espionage was considered conclusive by Attorney General Brownell, uncontradictable by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, and incontrovertible by President Eisenhower. Reese, Harry Dexter White, page 424. After Lattimore finished testifying during the investigation of the Institute for Pacific Relations conducted by the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, the subcommittee reported that Lattimore had been, from some time in the middle 1930s, a conscious, articulate instrument of the Soviet conspiracy. Francis X. Gannon, Biographical Dictionary of the Left, Belmont, Mass., Western Islands, 1969, Consolidated Volume 1, page 416. On November 8, 1945, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover informed President Truman that Curry was one of many persons within the federal government who have been furnishing data and information to persons outside the federal government who are in turn transmitting this information to agents of the Soviet government. Continuing on page 299. When testifying before the House Committee on Un-American Activities on July 1, 1948, Former Soviet espionage agent Elizabeth Bentley accused Curry of having furnished United States government secrets to a Soviet spy ring, continued on page 299. U.S. Note Delivered to Japanese Ambassadors That afternoon, November 26, Hull summoned the two Japanese ambassadors to his office and handed them the statement FDR had approved. Section 1 set forth a number of diplomatic platitudes. The governments of the United States and Japan were both solicitous for the peace of the Pacific. Then, several general principles were presented on which their mutual relations should be governed. Principles of territorial integrity, sovereignty, non-interference in the internal affairs of other nations, equality of commercial opportunity, international cooperation, etc. Section 2 listed steps to be taken by the government of the United States and by the government of Japan. Ten points followed. Footnote 45 denotes that this is found in Department of State, Japan, 1931-1941, pages 768-70. through 70. The government of the United States and the government of Japan proposed to take steps as follows. Number one, the government of the United States and the government of Japan will endeavor to conclude a multilateral, non-aggression pact among the British Empire, China, Japan, the Netherlands, the Soviet Union, Thailand, and the United States. Number two, both governments will endeavor to conclude among the American, British, Chinese, Japanese, the Netherlands, and Thai governments an agreement whereunder each of the governments would pledge itself to respect the territorial integrity of French Indochina, and in the event that there should develop a threat to the territorial integrity of Indochina, to enter into immediate consultation with a view to taking such measures as may be deemed necessary and advisable to meet the threat in question. Such agreement would provide also that each of the government's party to the agreement would not seek or accept preferential treatment in its trade or economic relations with Indochina, and would use its influence to obtain for each of the signatories equality of treatment in trade and commerce with French Indochina. Number three, the government of Japan will withdraw all military, naval, air, and police forces from China and from Indochina. 
Number four, the government of the United States and the government of Japan will not support, militarily, politically, economically, any government or regime in China other than the national government of the Republic of China, with capital temporarily at Chongqing. Number five, both governments will give up all extraterritorial rights in China, including rights and interest in and with regard to international settlements and concessions, and rights under the Boxer Protocol of 1901. Both governments will endeavor to obtain the agreement of the British and other governments to give up extraterritorial rights in China, including rights in international settlements and in concessions and under the Boxer Protocol of 1901. Number six, the government of the United States and the government of Japan will enter into negotiations for the conclusion between the United States and Japan of a trade agreement based upon reciprocal most favored nation treatment and reduction of trade barriers by both countries, including an undertaking by the United States to bind raw silk on the free list. Number seven, the government of the United States and the government of Japan will, respectively, remove the freezing restrictions on Japanese funds in the United States and on American funds in Japan. Number eight, both governments will agree upon a plan for the stabilization of the dollar-yen rate, with the allocation of funds adequate for this purpose, half to be supplied by Japan and half by the United States. Number nine, both governments will agree that no agreement which either has concluded with any third power or powers shall be interpreted by it in such a way as to conflict with the fundamental purpose of this agreement, the establishment and preservation of peace throughout the Pacific area. Number 10, both governments will use their influence to cause other governments to adhere to and to give practical application to the basic political and economic principles set forth in this agreement. After reading the documents, Caruso asked whether this was our reply to their proposal for a modus vivendi. Mr. Caruso offered various depreciatory comments in regard to the proposed agreement. He noted that in our statement of principles, there was a reiteration of the Stimson Doctrine. He was referring to the doctrine of non-recognition advocated by Stimson when he was President Hoover's Secretary of State. Perusu objected to the proposal for multilateral non-aggression pacts and referred to Japan's bitter experience of international organization, citing the case of the award against Japan by the Hague Tribunal in the perpetual leases matter. Kurusu did not believe his government could agree to paragraph 3, calling on Japan to withdraw all military, naval, air, and police forces from both China and Indochina, or paragraph 4, asking her to refrain from supporting, militarily, politically, economically, any government or regime in China other than Chang's national government. Kurusu did not think the United States should expect Japan to take off its hat to Chiang Kai-shek and propose to recognize him. He said that if this was the idea of the American government, he did not see how any agreement was possible. Paul asked if this couldn't be worked out. Caruso responded that when they, the Japanese ambassadors, reported our answer to their government, it would be likely to throw up its hands. However, he said, this was a tentative proposal without commitment. Perhaps they should not refer to their government before discussing its contents further informally here. Paul said they might want to study the document carefully, but he explained that our proposal was as far as we could go at this time. With specific reference to the oil question, Hall said public feeling in the United States was so acute that he might almost be lynched if he permitted oil to go freely to Japan. Harusu felt that our response to their proposal could be interpreted as tantamount to meeting the end. He wanted to know if we weren't interested in a modus vivendi. The secretary replied that we had explored that. Mr. Caruso asked whether it was because the other powers would not agree. 
The Japanese must have been aware of the plans we had been making to cooperate with the British and Dutch in the Southwest Pacific. The secretary, Hull, replied simply that he had done his best in the way of exploration. With that, the two Japanese ambassadors were dismissed. British notified of modus vivendi rejection. Almost immediately after delivering to the Japanese ambassadors the U.S. note with its unacceptable 10 points, Hull cabled Ambassador Gru in Japan and Ambassador C.E. Gauss in China. That evening, Hull telephoned British Ambassador Lord Halifax to inform him of the nature of the document which he had handed the Japanese envoys. Neither our war nor Navy Department was advised. The following morning, Lord Halifax called on Under Secretary of State Wells to ask why the proposed modus vivendi had been overthrown in a virtual ultimatum issued. One of the reasons for the determination reached, Wells replied, was the half-hearted support given by the British government to the earlier proposal. Halifax could not understand this inasmuch as he had communicated to Hull the full support of the British government. Wells responded that Churchill's expressed concern with Chang's thin diet could hardly be regarded as full support. Halifax admitted that he had been surprised by the vigor of the Chinese objections. He had thought that the course proposed by Hull gave positive assurances to the Chinese government that the Burma Road would in fact be kept open if the modus vivendi agreement with Japan could be consummated. He believed that the Chinese government's attitude was based partly on faulty information and partly on the almost hysterical reaction because of the fear that any kind of an agreement reached between Japan and the United States at this time would result in a complete breakdown of Chinese morale. Wells told Halifax that in his view, the Chinese had real cause for concern. Japanese troop movements in southern Indochina were already very active. The Japanese forces that were being quickly increased in number, indicating that the threat against Thailand was imminent. Moreover, Wells pointed out, it was evident from the information received here that the Japanese were preparing to move immediately on a very large scale. The gravity of the situation could not be exaggerated. Japan vows to destroy British and American power in China. Another purple intercept sent from Tokyo on November 14 and deciphered in Washington on November 26 reminded us again forcibly of Japan's intentions in the Far East. This cable had been addressed to Hong Kong and to the Japanese diplomatic officers in 11 Chinese cities. The imperial government still hopes for great things from the Japan-American negotiations, it read. However, they do not permit optimism for the future. Should the negotiations collapse, the international situation in which the empire will find herself will be one of tremendous crisis. The Japanese cabinet had made several momentous foreign policy decisions. A. We will completely destroy British and American power in China. B. We will take over all enemy concessions and enemy important rights and interests, customs and minerals, etc., in China. C. We will take over all rights and interests owned by enemy powers, even though they might have connections with the new Chinese government should it become necessary. The Japanese were under no illusion as to the problems involved in fighting an expanded war. Their forces were widely extended and their resources severely strained. They wanted to avoid, insofar as possible, exhausting our veteran troops. However, they were prepared to cope with a world war on a long time scale. If their reserves for total war and future military strength wane, they would reinforce them from the whole Far Eastern area. This has become the whole fundamental policy of the empire. To carry out these foreign policy objectives, the Japanese would encourage the activities of important Chinese in their efforts in the occupied territories insofar as is possible, 
Japan and China working in cooperation will take over military bases. Thus, operating wherever possible, we will realize peace throughout the entire Far East. However, because of the U.S. embargo on exports to Japan, resources were a primary concern. Great importance was placed upon the acquisition of materials, especially from unoccupied areas. The entire Japanese cabinet concurred. The military and administration officials in Washington who read this intercept could have had little doubt as to the seriousness of the consequences if the negotiations with the Japanese ambassadors failed. FDR notifies the Philippines that Japanese aggression appears imminent. While Hull was making plans to present the U.S. 10-point note to the Japanese ambassadors, FDR prepared a message to our High Commissioner in the Philippines, Francis B. Sayer. Roosevelt explained that the Far East was a veritable tinderbox. The Japanese are strongly reinforcing their garrisons and naval forces in the mandates in a manner which indicates they are preparing this region as quickly as possible against a possible attack on them by U.S. forces. However, FDR was not so much concerned by the Japanese attempts to defend themselves against the United States as he was by the increasing opposition of Japanese leaders and by current southward troop movements from Shanghai and Japan to the Formosa area. It was apparent, he continued, that the Japanese were making preparations in China, Formosa, and Indochina for an early aggressive movement of some character. However, it was not yet clear whether this move would be directed against the Burma Road, Thailand, Malay Peninsula, Netherlands East Indies, or the Philippines. The most likely target seemed to be Thailand. FDR was fearful that this next Japanese aggression might cause an outbreak of hostilities between the U.S. and Japan. He asked Sayer to discuss the situation with the U.S. military commanders in Manila, Admiral Hart, and General MacArthur. The commissioner should then present my views to the president of the Philippine Commonwealth and inform him that, as always, I am relying upon the full cooperation of his government and his people. FDR's cable was transmitted by the Navy to the Philippines on the afternoon of November 26. Japanese cabinet expected to decide soon between peace and war. Also on November 26, we deciphered a strictly secret cable sent the day before via Purple from Hanoi in Indochina to Tokyo. Japanese diplomatic officials in Indochina had heard from military sources that the United States was expected to present its reply to the Japanese envoy's modus vivendi proposal that very day, November 25. If this is true, Hanoi cabled, if the U.S. did answer Japan's request for a modus vivendi as expected, the United States' response would bring matters to a head. In that event, Hanoi assumed that the Japanese cabinet would be making a decision between peace and war within the next day or two. If the U.S.-Japanese negotiations are brought to a successful termination, Hanoi continued, they had plans for launching various enterprises. Should, however, the negotiations in Washington not end in a success, as the military sources had implied would be the case, since practically all preparations for the campaign have been completed, our forces shall be able to move within the day. Hanoi was disturbed that representatives of Britain, Australia, the Netherlands, and even China had been meeting with U.S. officials in Washington and must be aware of the status of U.S.-Japanese negotiations. Japan's officials in Hanoi knew from Tokyo Circular Message number 2353, which we had not intercepted and translated before we read this Hanoi cable to Tokyo, that the situation was becoming exceedingly critical. Our officials in Washington who were privy to magic learned from this telegram that the Japanese cabinet would soon make a decision between peace and war. If the Japanese envoys in Washington succeeded in obtaining an acceptable modus vivendi, 
the decision would be for peace. If not, it would be for war. And by handing the Japanese ambassadors a note that we knew their government could not accept, we were rejecting a modus vivendi. The Japanese negotiations were not ending in success. And this, our reading of magic told us, meant war. Moreover, the Japanese forces in Indochina would be able to move within the day. On the afternoon of November 26, Marshall and several members of his staff flew down to North Carolina from Washington to attend the final phases of the First Army's maneuvers. For some 36 hours at this crucial time, he was out of touch with Washington. Chapter 7, Japanese Action Appears Imminent U.S. War Plans to Raid and Destroy Japanese Bases in Far East in Support of Associated Powers Military forces regularly make plans for the defense of their country under various contingencies. However, by 1941, the U.S. military had developed war plans that went far beyond trying to defend the nation against foreign aggressors. Our Army, Navy, and Air Forces were operating under a war plan based on a secret agreement reached during the American-British Conversations, ABC, held in Washington early in 1941. This agreement had been approved by the Joint Board, the Secretaries of War and Navy, and by the President. Chief of Navy War Plans Richmond Kelly Turner termed it a worldwide agreement covering all areas, land, sea, and air of the entire world in which it was conceived that the British Commonwealth and the United States might be jointly engaged in action against any enemy. In line with the so-called ABC-1 agreement, a joint Army-Navy plan was prepared after a great many talks with the Army and was approved by the Secretary of the Navy on May 28, 1941 and by the Secretary of War on June 2, 1941. It bore the short title Rainbow Number no. 5. On the basis of the Joint Army and Navy Basic War Plan, the Navy Department promulgated the Navy Basic War Plan on May 26, 1941. This plan bore the short title WPL-46. The War Plan of the Pacific Fleet was distributed on July 25, 1941. It had been customary to name an operating plan by the color code name assigned to the potential enemy concerned. Japan had traditionally been designated orange, other countries blue, red, and so on. However, as ABC-1 contemplated action against several enemy nations, it wasn't feasible to designate its operating plan by a single color, hence the codename Rainbow. Several Rainbow operating plans, each numbered consecutively and each providing for a different contingency, were developed to implement the ABC-1 agreement. The first four were eventually set aside. It was Rainbow Number no. 5 that the Navy issued in May 1941 and sent out to the fleet commanders, including Kimmel in Hawaii, for distribution in July 1941 to the various task forces. The ABC-1 agreement called on the United States to employ its Pacific fleet offensively in the manner best calculated to weaken Japanese economic power. To accomplish this, our naval forces were to support the forces of the associated powers in the Far East area by diverting enemy strength away from the Malay barrier through the denial and capture of positions in the marshals and through raids on enemy sea communications and positions. U.S. Pacific Fleet Operating Plan Rainbow No. 5 stipulated that, in the event of an overt act of war by a foreign power against the United States prior to the existence of a state of war, the senior commander then, Admiral Kimmel at Pearl Harbor, was to take such action in the defense of his command and the national interests as the situation may require and report the action taken to superior authority at once. The plan called on the fleet to reconnoiter, sweep, patrol, and protect. However, the primary objective prescribed for the Pacific Fleet under Rainbow No. 5 
was to prepare to raid, capture, and destroy the bases in the Japanese-controlled Marshall and Caroline Islands. The assignments of each task force were set forth in detail in the plan. Stark and Marshall again asked for time to build U.S. defenses. Before Marshall left for maneuvers on November 26, he and Chief of Naval Operations Stark prepared a joint memorandum to the President on the Far Eastern situation. Dated November 27, their memorandum expressed concern that they might not have enough time to build up their forces before a Japanese strike. They reminded FDR that if the current negotiations with the Japanese ambassadors failed, Japan may attack the Burma Road, Thailand, Malaya, the Netherlands East Indies, the Philippines, the Russian Maritime Provinces. Navy and Army reinforcements were being rushed to the Philippines. From the U.S. viewpoint, Marshall and Stark wrote, the most essential thing now is to gain time. They were especially concerned for the safety of an Army convoy then near Guam and a Marine Corps convoy just leaving Shanghai. They cautioned, however, that so long as consistent with national policy, we should avoid precipitating any conflict. Marshall and Stark also wrote it had been agreed, after consultation with the British and Dutch military authorities in the Far East, that joint military counteraction against Japan should be undertaken only in case Japan attacks or directly threatens the territory or mandated territory of the United States, the British Commonwealth, or the Netherlands East Indies. Or should the Japanese move forces into Thailand west of 1000 East or south of 100 North, Portuguese Timor, New Caledonia, or the Loyalty Islands? Japan should be warned that advance beyond the lines indicated may lead to war. However, prior to such warning, no joint military opposition should be undertaken. Moreover, Marshall and Stark said agreement with the British and Dutch should be sought on issuing such a warning. The first thing in the morning of November 27, Secretary of War Stimson phoned Secretary of State Hall to find out what his finale had been with the Japanese. Had Hall handed them the three-month modus vivendi proposal, which had been approved a couple of days before? Or had he put it into the negotiations as he said he might? Hall told Stimson he had broken the whole matter off. I have washed my hands of it, and it is now in the hands of you and Knox, the Army and Navy. Later, FDR gave Stimson a slightly different view. However, he too said the negotiations had ended up, but they ended up with a magnificent statement prepared by Hull. FDR messages British intelligence agent Stevenson, Japanese negotiations off. As soon as the president learned that the negotiations with the Japanese had been broken off, he sent his oldest son, James, as his emissary to British intelligence agent Sir William Stevenson. On November 26, James Roosevelt traveled to New York and informed Stevenson of the tenuous Japanese situation. Stevenson cabled Churchill on November 27. Japanese negotiations off. Services expect action within two weeks. Washington warns Philippines of possible Japanese attack. On November 27, General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Hart, Commander-in-Chief of the Asiatic Fleet, met in the office of High Commissioner Francis B. Sayer to discuss the seriousness of FDR's November 26 warning cable to Sayer. Pacing back and forth and smoking a big black cigar, General MacArthur assured Hart and Sayer that the existing alignment and movement of Japanese troops convinced him that there would be no Japanese attack before the spring. Admiral Hart disagreed. Reports were arriving in Washington regularly of the daily reconnaissance overflights conducted from the Philippines to keep track of the large Japanese convoy heading south from Shanghai. Thus, news of the Japanese expeditionary force came in on November 27, apparently heading toward the Philippines, Burma, the Burma Road, or the Dutch East Indies. 
And it was expected that a concentration of Japanese troops would move over into Thailand and take a position there, from which an attack could be launched on Singapore. Stimson suggested to FDR that MacArthur in the Philippines be sent a final alert. We had already sent MacArthur a quasi-alert, but Stimson thought he should be given a further warning against a possible Japanese attack. The president agreed. Arrangements were being made to fly B-17s out to the Philippines to reinforce our defenses there. Army Air Force Commanding General Arnold called on Stimson on November 27 to present the orders for two of our biggest planes to move out of San Francisco en route to Manila and fly over, while photographing, the Japanese-mandated islands where the Japanese were known to be building military bases. These big planes would be able to fly high enough to be out of reach of the Japanese pursuit planes. Secretary of Navy Knox and Stark called on Stimson on November 27 to talk about the warnings to be sent MacArthur in the Philippines. General Leonard T. Garrow, Army Chief of War Plans, was also present. A message to MacArthur calling for action, such as Stimson was considering, would normally have been prepared and sent by the Army Chief of Staff. It was most unusual to send a message to a field commander signed Marshall, which had not actually been dispatched by him. Marshall was familiar with U.S. military outposts in a way that the Secretary of War was not. Also, the responsibility for strategic command decisions flowed from the Commander-in-Chief, the President, to the Chief of Staff, the Chief of Staff reported to the President. The Secretary of War's duties lay outside this line of command. They related primarily to personnel requirements and matters of supply. However, Marshall was out of the city, so Stimson, Stark, and Garrow went ahead on their own. Stark and Garrow quite naturally were pressing for more time for the military buildup before a Japanese strike. Stimson said he would be glad to have time, but not at the expense of backing down. He didn't want it, time, at any cost of humility on the part of the United States, which would show a weakness on our part. Before they finished drafting their message to MacArthur, they called Hull to learn the latest on the situation with the Japanese. They sent the message over Marshall's signature. Although directed primarily to MacArthur in the Philippines, the Stimson-Stark-Garrow cable, with slight changes and also signed Marshall, went to the Army's commanding generals in Hawaii and the Panama Canal Zone. In response to Army's warning, General Short, Hawaii, reports sabotage alert. The version of the Stimson-Stark-Garrow cable sent to Short in Hawaii advised that negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated to all practical purposes. Japanese future action unpredictable, but hostile action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot, repeat, cannot be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. However, this should not be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defense. Reconnaissance and other measures necessary should be carried out with caution so as not, repeat, not, to alarm civil population or disclose intent. Short was asked to report measures taken. The Army was responsible for protecting the fleet when it was in port. On receipt of this message, number 472, on November 27, Short called a meeting of his staff. He had been instructed to undertake such reconnaissance as you deem necessary. At the same time, he was not to alarm civil population. Adequate reconnaissance to guard Hawaii against surprise attack would have required 360-degree surveillance 24 hours a day. According to Admiral P.N.L. Bellinger, commander of the Hawaiian Naval Base Air Force, and Commander Logan C. Ramsey, his operations officer at the time of the attack, such wide-ranging reconnaissance was not realistic given the planes and resources then available there. 
Most of their B-17s had been sent to the Philippines. Only eight that could have been used for long-range reconnaissance were available at the time of the attack, and not all of those were in flying condition. Planes cannot fly continuously. They wear out and need servicing from time to time. Crews need rest too. It is estimated that crews flying long-range reconnaissance shouldn't be asked to operate more often than one in three days. Thus, long-range reconnaissance could not have been maintained indefinitely in Hawaii. Its success depended on timely warning of any potential threat. Marsha was familiar with the shortage of planes in Hawaii, but Stimson, who had drafted the November 27 warning message, was not. The Hawaiian command had three different alerts from which to choose. Marshall was also familiar with the Army's system of alerts. Again, Stimson was not. In view of the Army's responsibility and the instruction not to alarm the public, a large percentage of whom were ethnic Japanese, Short decided to go on a sabotage alert, clustering the planes and storing the ammunition underground. This was the most effective way to guard against subversive activities in an area surrounded by potential enemies. On the assumption that the cable had come from Marshall, Short wired Washington that afternoon that he had alerted to prevent sabotage and had established liaison with Navy. Short's response was received in Washington on November 28 at 5.57 a.m. Under Army rules and regulations then in force, if a junior officer on receiving an order reports measures taken and his superior officer does not countermand them, the responsibility for any error or mistakes in judgment lies with the superior officer. Short was the junior officer, Marshall his superior. As instructed, Short reported the measures taken. If his action was not considered appropriate, normal Army procedure would have called for Marshall to order him to change his alert. No such order was given. The planes and ammunition remained as they were until the Japanese attack 10 days later. Admiral Stark's War Warning to Hart, Philippines, and Kimmel, Hawaii also on November 27, CNO Stark sent his fleet commanders a war warning, reporting on the status of U.S.-Japanese relations. Admiral Hart, commander-in-chief of the Asiatic Fleet in the Philippines, was the first addressee. Admiral Kimmel, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, was second. Information copies went to Admiral King, commander-in-chief of the Atlantic Fleet, and to the Special Naval Observer in London. Negotiations with Japan looking towards stabilization of conditions in the Pacific have ceased, Stark told his commanders in this war warning. An aggressive move on the part of the Japanese was expected within the next few days, an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines, Thai or Kra Peninsula or possibly Borneo. Continental District's Guam Samoa directed take appropriate measures against sabotage. The commander should prepare to put WPL-46 War Plan 46, Rainbow Number 5, into operation. The morning after this dispatch was received, Kimmel discussed its significance with the senior Army and Navy officers in Hawaii. Short, Admiral Block, Commandant of the 14th Naval District, who was in charge of naval shore establishments in Hawaii, the flag officers of the fleet then in port, as well as the members of Kimmel's staff. After considerable study, they interpreted the warning to mean that war was imminent and that readiness to undertake active operations was expected. To Kimmel, being ready to undertake active operations meant carrying out the tasks assigned in WPL 46. And that meant preparing for offensive action in line with War Plan 46, then in operation against the Japanese in the Marshall and Caroline Islands in the Southwest Pacific. This November 27 cable did not suggest the possibility of a surprise aggressive move in any direction, as had the dispatch sent three days earlier. 
Thus, the specific mention of the Philippines, Thai or Kra Peninsula or possibly Borneo, as the intended destination of the Japanese expedition, served only to reconfirm the conclusion they had drawn from the earlier message, namely that the Japanese were most likely to strike in the Southwest Pacific or Southeast Asia. Other Washington directives served to strengthen this impression. For instance, the Navy had recently been ordered to send a squadron of submarines to the Philippines, leaving only five in Pearl Harbor. And on November 28, Kimmel was advised that the Marines on the island of Midway and Wake in the middle of the Pacific were to be replaced by Army troops. This would call for a complicated maneuver occupying for some time a substantial portion of the U.S. naval forces in Hawaii, thus reducing the territory's defensive strength. FDR's War Cabinet discussed Japanese troop movements. FDR should report danger to Congress. Roosevelt scheduled a War Cabinet meeting for noon, November 28. Stimson had asked G2, Intelligence, to summarize the information available concerning the movements of the Japanese in the Far East. The main point of the paper was a study of what the expeditionary force, which we know has left Shanghai and is headed south, is going to do. G2 pointed out that it might develop into an attack on the Philippines or a landing of further troops in Indochina, or an attack on Thailand, or an attack on the Dutch Netherlands or on Singapore. G2's paper was such a formidable statement of dangerous possibilities that Stimson decided he should discuss it with the president before the war cabinet meeting. He went to the White House early that morning, even before FDR had gotten up. Analyzing the situation as he sat on his bed, the president saw only three possible alternatives. First, to do nothing. Second, to make something in the nature of an ultimatum again, stating a point beyond which we would fight. Third, to fight at once. Stimson rejected the first out of hand. He did not think anyone would do nothing in this situation. Of the other two, he would choose to fight at once. Stimson left, but he returned to the White House again for the scheduled noon meeting with the president, Hull, Knox, Stark, and Marshall. FDR began the meeting by reading the possible destinations of the Japanese convoy. Then he pointed out that one further possibility, if the Japanese were to attack Kra Isthmus, that could lead to an attack on Rangoon a short distance away, which would enable the Japanese initially to block the Burma Road. Everyone thought this was very likely. The picture had changed radically since the last time they had discussed sending an ultimatum to Japan. The Japanese expeditionary force of some 25,000 troops at sea, destined to land somewhere, had changed the situation. Everyone agreed that, if this expedition was allowed to get around the southern point of Indochina, and land in the Gulf of Siam either at Bangkok or further west, it would be a terrific blow at all of the three powers, Britain at Singapore, the Netherlands, and ourselves in the Philippines. It was agreed that if the Japanese got into the Isthmus of Kra on the Malaysian Peninsula, the British would fight. It was also agreed that if the British fought, we would have to fight. And it now seems clear that if this expedition was allowed to round the southern point of Indochina, this whole chain of disastrous events would be set on foot. The consensus of the War Cabinet was that this should not be allowed to happen, and the members discussed ways to prevent it. They did not believe the United States should strike at the Japanese force without warning, but they didn't think we should sit still either and allow the Japanese to proceed. They decided the only thing to do was to warn the Japanese that if the convoy reached a certain place, or a certain line, or a certain point, we should have to fight. The president was inclined to send a personal telegram to the emperor, as he had done with good results at the time of the Panay incident, December 1937. But Stimson pointed out that this would not be a suitable response in this case. 
In the first place, a letter to the Emperor of Japan could not be couched in terms which contained an explicit warning. One does not warn an emperor. In the second place, it would not indicate to the people of the United States what the real nature of the danger was. Stimson then suggested a message from the President to the people of the United States. He thought the best way to do that would be to report to Congress on the danger and on what action we would have to take if the danger materialized. The President acceded to this suggestion. At first, he thought of incorporating the terms of his letter to the Emperor in the speech. But again, Stimson pointed out that a letter to an Emperor could not be publicized in that way. The President's letter should be entirely separate and confidential. Also, his speech to Congress and to the people should be expressed in more understandable terms. FDR agreed and asked Hull, Knox, and Stimson to try to draft such papers. War Department warns Hawaiian Army and Air Commanders Late in the evening of November 28, the War Department Adjutant General wired short in Hawaii. Critical situation demands that all precautions be taken immediately against subversive activities. Short was advised to initiate forthwith all additional measures necessary to provide for protection of your establishments, comma, property, comma, and equipment against sabotage, comma, protection of your personnel against subversive propaganda, and protection of all activities against espionage, stop. At the same time, Short was to avoid unnecessary publicity and alarm. The cable's emphasis on sabotage and subversion reassured Short in his choice of alert. The next day, Short replied that, All precautions are being taken against subversive activities within the field of investigative responsibility of War Department and military establishments including personnel and equipment. He also reported on the cooperation in protecting vital installations such as bridges and power plants being given by Hawaii's territorial governor, the FBI, and other federal and territorial officers. The commanding general of the Hawaiian Air Force received a similar cable that day from the War Department. It asked that, All precautions be taken at once to provide protection of your personnel against subversive propaganda, comma, protection of all activities against espionage, comma, and protection against sabotage of your equipment, comma, property and establishments, period. Again, Short felt reassured that the sabotage alert he had initiated was appropriate. Navy ordered to transport Army planes to Midway and Wake, Hawaiian forces weakened. The day before the November 27 war warning, Kimmel was advised to prepare to send some planes, men, and provisions from Pearl Harbor to two outlying mid-Pacific islands. In order to keep the planes of the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing available for expeditionary use, OPNAV, Chief of Naval Operations, has requested and Army has agreed to station 25 Army pursuit planes at Midway and a similar number at Wake, provided you consider this feasible and desirable. The cabled orders that followed called on Kimmel to transport by aircraft carrier these Army planes which were to support Navy operations and to supply the islands with ground personnel, provisions, water, spare parts, tools, and ammunition. In light of WPL-46, stationing men and planes on Wake and Midway made sense. Wake was a couple of thousand miles west of Hawaii and closer to the Japanese-mandated Marshall Islands. An outpost on Wake would extend the area over which the reconnaissance could be conducted and would permit the United States to watch more closely what was going on in the Marshalls. At the same time, however, it meant depriving Hawaii of about 50% of the Army's pursuit planes then on Oahu, and the transfer operation itself would occupy for some time the fleet's aircraft carriers, its main striking defense against air attack. Admiral William F. Halsey, Jr., in command of the carrier Enterprise, left Pearl Harbor for Wake on November 28. 
With him went three heavy cruisers and nine destroyers. On December 2, Kimmel responded at length to Stark's cable. He described some of the difficulties in having the Navy reinforce the outlying islands, and he made realistic suggestions for dealing with them. On December 5, Admiral J. H. Newton left Hawaii aboard the carrier Lexington with another contingent of Army pursuit planes bound for Midway. Three heavy cruisers and five destroyers accompanied the Lexington. En route, the patrol planes conducted reconnaissance, covering a much more extensive area than they could have from their Oahu base. Also on December 5, Admiral Wilson Brown left Pearl Harbor with Task Force 3 aboard the Indianapolis, with six old destroyers converted to sweepers to conduct landing exercises on Johnston Island in the mid-Pacific. Japanese negotiations de facto ruptured. On November 28, two days after the United States responded to the Japanese request for a modus vivendi, Tokyo sent her two Washington ambassadors a cable, which we deciphered and read that same day, commending them for their superhuman efforts. However, the U.S. reply had been a humiliating proposal. The imperial government could, by no means, use it as a basis for negotiations. The Japanese government had, in effect, thrown up its hands as Ambassador Kurusu had expected it would. Tokyo added that a report on the American proposal would be along in two or three days, and then the negotiations will be de facto ruptured. However, the two ambassadors were not to give the impression that the negotiations are broken off, merely say that you are awaiting instructions and that although the opinions of your government are not yet clear to you, to your own way of thinking, the imperial government has always made just claims and has borne great sacrifices for the sake of peace in the Pacific. Say that we have always demonstrated a long-suffering and conciliatory attitude, but that, on the other hand, the United States has been unbending, making it impossible for Japan to establish negotiations. From now on, do the best you can. Japanese emergency to be announced in Winds Code, Coded Weather Forecast. In the midst of this diplomatic crisis, one of the most important Japanese messages to be intercepted during this period was read in Washington. It had been sent on November 19 from Tokyo in the J-19 Consular Code. Wasn't deciphered and translated until November 28. In case of emergency, danger of cutting off our diplomatic relations, and the cutting off of international communications, a signal will be included in the middle of the daily Japanese language shortwave news broadcast. Three phases followed. Each appeared to be a weather forecast, but to each was assigned a special meaning. In an emergency, Tokyo explained, the appropriate phrase will be repeated twice. When this is heard, please destroy all code papers, etc. This is as yet to be a completely secret arrangement. This new intercept became known as the WINS code message. The three phases and their meaning were Higashi no Kaze Ame, East Wind Rain, Japanese-U.S. relations in danger, Kitano Kaze Komori, North Wind Cloudy, Japanese-USSR relations in danger, and Nishi no Kazehari, West Wind Clear, Japanese-British relations in danger. When our people read this message, orders went out immediately from both the Army and the Navy to their intercept stations throughout the world, asking them to monitor Japanese shortwave news broadcasts. Because weather was unpredictable and atmospheric conditions often interfered with radio transmissions, reception at our intercept stations was erratic. Therefore, the call went out to all our monitoring stations from Rear Admiral Lee Noyes of Naval Communications and from General Sherman Miles of the Army's Intelligence Division, urging the code clerks to listen for the phrases. Three-by-five cards with the three phrases were prepared and distributed. 
Egashe no Kaze Ame, East Wind Rain, War with the U.S. Kitano Kaze Komori, North Wind Cloudy, War with the USSR. Nichi no Kaze Hari, West Wind Clear, War with Great Britain. Chapter 8 The Countdown Begins U.S.-Japanese Negotiations Broken Off U.S. naval officials in London had been informed by the Navy Department that negotiations between Japan and the United States had been broken off and that an immediate movement by Japan was anticipated. When British Ambassador Lord Halifax heard this, he abruptly returned to Washington from Philadelphia, where he had planned to weekend. The British government was greatly excited at the news. Halifax called on Undersecretary of State Wells that Friday evening, November 28, to see if it was actually true. As far as Wells knew, the situation was exactly as it had been the night before. The Japanese ambassadors had submitted the U.S. government's statement to their government. No reply had as yet been received, so that technically negotiations had not yet been broken off. However, the U.S. government did not expect the Japanese government to accept its proposals. Halifax called on Hull the next day to check on the outcome of the conversations FDR and Hull had been having with the Japanese. Hull blamed in part the hysterical cable messages sent by Chiang Kai-shek and his aides. Hull wished Churchill had sent a strong cable to Chiang in response to his loud protest about our negotiations, telling him to brace up and fight. Churchill's expression of concern at Chiang's very thin diet had resulted in virtually killing what we knew were the individual views of the British government toward these negotiations. Thus, Chiang's November 25 cables to officials all around the world, urging that the United States reject any form of a modus vivendi with the Japanese, had persuaded the United States to drop the U.S. proposal for a three-month modus vivendi and to submit in its place a 10-point ultimatum. The Japanese ambassadors had not been optimistic about their government's willingness to agree to the United States' 10 points. Although the Japanese government had not as yet replied, Hall said, The diplomatic part of our relations with Japan was virtually over, and the matter will now go to the officials of the Army and the Navy. Hall also told Halifax, in great confidence, that he expected some action on the part of the Japanese before long. It would be a serious mistake for our country and other countries interested in the Pacific situation to make plans of resistance without including the possibility that Japan may move suddenly and with every possible element of surprise and capture certain positions and posts before the peaceful countries interested in the Pacific would have time to confer and formulate plans to meet these new conditions. Tokyo orders the Japanese ambassadors not to break off negotiations but to try again. On Sunday, November 30, U.S. Navy decoders and translators intercepted, deciphered, and translated cable number 857 from Tokyo, informing the Japanese ambassadors in Washington to make one more attempt verbally. They should point out that the United States government has always taken a fair and judicial position. Thus, the imperial government is at a loss to understand why it has now taken the attitude that the new proposals we have made cannot be made the basis of discussion but instead has made new proposals which ignore actual conditions in East Asia and would greatly injure the prestige of the imperial government. What has become of the basic objectives that the U.S. government has made the basis of our negotiations during these seven months? The two ambassadors were told that in carrying out this instruction to continue their conversations with the United States, they should please be careful that this does not lead to anything like a breaking off of negotiations. In compliance with these instructions, the Japanese ambassadors requested an appointment with Secretary of State Hall. 
an inflammatory speech in Tokyo by Japan's Prime Minister Tojo. The Washington, D.C. newspaper headlines on Sunday, November 30, quoted from an inflammatory speech in Tokyo by Japanese Prime Minister Tojo. President Roosevelt was at his retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia. When Hull telephoned him about Tojo's belligerent remarks, he took the overnight train back to Washington. Tojo had criticized the United States and Britain severely. The exploitation of the Asiatics by Americans must be purged with vengeance. U.S. Ambassador Grew reported by quoting from Japanese press reports. Many countries are indulging in actions hostile to us. The fact that Chiang Kai-shek is dancing to the tune of Britain, America, and communism is only due to the desire of Britain and the United States to fish in the troubled waters of East Asia by pitting the East Asiatic peoples against each other. For the honor and pride of mankind, we must purge this sort of practice from East Asia with a vengeance. Ambassador Nomura in Washington cabled Tokyo that he was concerned Tojo's speech would be used extensively for propaganda purposes by the Americans. Ambassador Kurusu was fearful that Tojo's belligerent remarks would jeopardize their efforts to maintain the pretense of continuing to negotiate. He cautioned the Japanese Foreign Office in Tokyo by Trans-Pacific Radio Telephone to watch out about these ill-advised statements. The Japanese government belittled the reports. It was flabbergasted. Yamamoto, chief of the American Bureau of the Japanese Foreign Office, was nonplussed. He asked, what speech? The Japanese government cabled an explanation. The Washington Embassy's first secretary, Hidenari Terasaki, called on Joseph W. Ballantyne, a State Department official, on December 2, and told Ballantyne that he had not come to vindicate themselves or to make any explanation. He merely wished to state the facts. Relying on his government's explanation, Tarasaki discounted the importance of the speech and also its belligerence. The so-called speech was originally drafted by members of the office staff of the East Asia Restoration League, a non-governmental organization of which Mr. Tojo happens to be president. It had been given out to newspaper reporters Saturday evening, November 29. Before the said draft was examined by either the premier himself or other government officials, and this unapproved manuscript was printed in the Metropolitan newspapers. As a matter of fact, the Premier himself made no speech of any kind on the 30th. It should further be noted that the reported statement, For the honor and pride of mankind, we must purge this sort of practice from East Asia with a vengeance, is a mistranslation. The correct translation of the statement should be, For the honor and pride of mankind, this sort of practice must be removed. Hull and the Japanese ambassadors exchanged strong words. On December 1, the ambassadors called on Hull as scheduled. Upon their arrival at the State Department, they found not only newspaper men, but even some members of the departmental staff crowding the corridors. Some of these spectators were of the opinion that the issue of war or peace was to be immediately decided upon. In general, the scene was highly dramatic. The meeting with Hull was long, and their conversation got off to a rough start when he brought up Tojo's bellicose utterances emanating from Tokyo. The ambassadors responded with tact. In the United States, they said, you seem to take a more serious view of the Japanese prime minister's utterances than was warranted. The ambassadors told Hull that the document he had handed them on November 26, the ultimatum with its 10 points, had been communicated to the Japanese government, which was now studying the case. They expected within a few days to receive their government's observation thereon. However, they wished the United States would reconsider its rejection of the proposed Japanese modus vivendi. Hall then remarked that we had learned of heavy Japanese troop movements into Indochina. 
He criticized Japan for moving into Indochina so suddenly without any advance notice to this government. We can't overlook Japan's digging herself into Indochina, Hull said. It creates an increasing menace to America and her friends. We will not allow ourselves to be kicked out of the Pacific. When a large Japanese army is anywhere in Indochina, we have to give that situation all the more attention when Japanese statesmen say that they will drive us out of East Asia. Hull accused the Japanese of using methods in China similar to those which are being adopted by Hitler to subjugate Europe. We cannot lose sight of the movement by Hitler to seize one half of the world. Hull said he believed the Japanese militarists were moving in a similar direction to seize the other half of the earth. This government cannot yield to anything of that kind. Ambassador Caruso replied there was not much different between Japan's idea of a co-prosperity sphere and the U.S. policy of pan-Americanism, except that Japanese methods may be more primitive. He denied that it was Japan's purpose to use force. Japan was motivated by self-defense in the same way as Britain had been motivated by her acts, for example, in Syria. He pointed out that Japan needed rice and other materials at a time when she was being shut off by the United States and other countries, and she had no alternative but to endeavor to obtain access to these materials. The ambassador commented that today war is being conducted through the agency of economic weapons, that Japan was being squeezed, and that Japan must expand to obtain raw materials. Paul pointed out that we were selling Japan oil until Japan suddenly moved into Indochina, that he could not defend such a situation indefinitely, and that the United States would give Japan all she wanted in the way of materials if Japan's military leaders would only show that Japan intended to pursue a peaceful course. Paul said that we do not propose to go into partnership with Japan's military leaders, that he has not heard one whisper of peace from the Japanese military, only bluster and blood-curdling threats. He also brought up Japan's ties to Germany through the tripartite, Germany, Japan, Italy, pact. In view of Japan's commitment to her ally Germany, he said, Japan could not expect the United States to stop helping her friends, Britain and China. Karusu felt it was a shame that nothing should come out of the efforts which the conversations of several months had represented. He said he felt that the two sides had once been near an agreement except for two or three points, but that our latest proposal seemed to carry the two sides further away than before. Paul responded that every time we get started in the direction of progress, the Japanese military does something to overturn us. The secretary expressed grave doubts whether we could now get ahead in view of all the threats that had been made. The secretary pointed out that we all understand what are the implications of such terms as controlling influence, new order in East Asia, and co-prosperity sphere. Hitler was using similar terms as synonyms for purpose of conquest. Harusu disclaimed on the part of Japan any similarity between Japan's purposes and Hitler's purposes. The Japanese ambassador pointed out that wars never settle anything and that war in the Pacific would be a tragedy. But he added that the Japanese people believe that the United States wants to keep Japan fighting with China and to keep Japan strangled. He said that the Japanese people feel that they are faced with the alternative of surrendering to the United States or of fighting. The ambassador said that they understood the secretary's position in the light of his statements and they would report the matter to the Japanese government. Japanese troop movements portend early attack in Far East. By the end of the month, Captain Arthur H. McCollum, officer in charge of the Far Eastern Section of the Navy Department's Division of Naval Intelligence in Washington, had become seriously concerned by the massive Japanese military buildup in Indochina, 
and the preparations being made for their reinforcement. McCollum's duties consisted of evaluating all forms of intelligence received concerning the Far East, correlating it and advising the Director of Naval Intelligence and through him the Chief of Naval Operations on political developments in the Far East and all forms of information concerning the Japanese Navy and other countries in the Far East and their defenses and state of preparation for war. Because of the mounting evidence of Japanese offensive action, McCollum assembled and evaluated the available data in a memorandum which he took on the morning of December 1 to his superior, Admiral Theodore S. Wilkinson, Director of Naval Intelligence. The memorandum reported that Japanese transports had been moving large numbers of fully equipped veteran troops from Shanghai to Indochina. Others were going by rail. From 21 to 26 November, 20,000 troops were landed at Saigon and 4,000 at Haiphong, which with 6,000 troops already there were sent south to Saigon and Cambodia by rail. All wharves and docks at Haiphong and Saigon are reported crowded with Japanese transports unloading supplies and men. It is estimated that the following Japanese troops are now in French Indochina, ready and equipped for action. A. South and Central Indochina, 70,000. B. Northern Indochina, 25,000. The landing of reinforcements continues and additional troops and supplies are undoubtedly available on nearby Hainan Island and more distant Formosa. McCollum also reported extensive Japanese naval activities, ships being equipped and repaired, air and surface patrols being established, and ships and planes being moved to the mandated island area, merchant vessels being fitted out as anti-aircraft ships, naval task groups being reorganized, outlying naval air groups being inspected, and so on. He said the Japanese had, under surveillance, the U.S. island of Guam, more than 3,000 miles west of Hawaii. Espionage networks were being established throughout Southeast Asia and the Dutch East Indies. Japanese residents, especially women and children, had been evacuated from British India, Singapore, the Netherlands East Indies, the Philippines, Hong Kong and Australia, and many had been withdrawn from the United States, Canada and South America. Admiral Wilkinson made an appointment at noon on December 1 to go with McCollum to see Chief of Naval Operations Stark. As McCollum later testified, we knew that the Japanese fleet was ready for action. We knew that it had been called home, docked, and extensively repaired, and was looking for action. Also, the Japanese fleet had just changed its call signs and frequency allocations again, after only a relatively short interval. This change in radio transmissions, when considered in conjunction with the various other clues, was one further indication that something was afoot. Wilkinson, in a subsequent testimony, said that, on the evidence available, we had concluded that the Japanese were contemplating an early attack, primarily directed at Thailand, Burma, and the Malay Peninsula. At the meeting with Stark, both Wilkinson and McCollum urged that a dispatch of warning be sent to the fleet at that time. Stark assured them that such a dispatch had already been sent on November 27, and that it had definitely included the phrase, This is a war warning. The Army's December 1 View of Atlantic and Pacific Theaters of War under date of December 5, Brigadier General Sherman Miles, Acting Assistant Chief of Staff, G2 Intelligence, prepared a long memorandum for the benefit of Marshall. An estimate of the situation December 1, 1941 through March 31, 1942. G2 was responsible for the collection, interpretation, and distribution of information about our enemies or potential enemies. G2's duties included codes and ciphers in liaison with other intelligence agencies. The assistant chief of staff of G2 was on the list to see Magic and presumably Miles, 
as acting assistant chief of staff, also had access to this information, derived from reading the Japanese Purple Intercepts. Miles presented a rather complete analysis of the situation from the Army's viewpoint. His memorandum in brief, This estimate is addressed to the objective of Nazi defeat. Its purpose is to examine the factors of strength and weakness and of strategic position of the Nazis and of their opponents in order to present the military possibilities and probabilities during the period December 1, 1941 to March 1, 1942. Miles went on to review the military situation in the Atlantic, Europe, Middle East, and the Pacific. Germany, though weakened by her losses in Russia, will remain the only power capable of launching large-scale strategic offensive. She was not in a position at this time to attempt an invasion of the British Islands. And if she did attempt it, it will be delayed until mid-summer of 1942. The Battle of the Atlantic is essentially a struggle for the sea lanes radiating from the United Kingdom. This conflict is now trending against Germany. As the weight of the United States Navy continues to increase, success in the Battle of the Atlantic should be assured. In the Middle East, the United States is committed to providing great masses of material and is undertaking vast construction projects to facilitate supply. In the Pacific, the initiative rests with Japan in spite of her military overextension. After listing her alternatives, Miles believed her most probable line of action is the occupation of Thailand. The forces of all other countries in the Far East are on the defensive before Japan. He thought the British-Dutch-U.S. Consultative Association for the Defense of Malaysia had been effective in slowing down the Japanese penetration to the southwest. China was containing the equivalent of 30 Japanese divisions, an important consideration in view of our objective, the defeat of the Nazis. China would remain in the war and will continue to contain important Japanese forces. However, the effective use of China's unlimited manpower as an anti-Axis potential depends entirely on the extent to which she is able to equip it, her manpower, particularly in artillery and aviation. For this, she is entirely dependent upon the United States. And China is receiving an increasing amount of equipment from this country. The United States is concerned with Southeast Asia and Malaysia in two different capacities. Number one, as a possible belligerent. And number two, as a prime source of war materials for China, the British Commonwealth, and for the Netherlands East Indies. Although we were sending a few military airplanes to Thailand, this theater will be a secondary one from the point of view of supply. Our influence in the Far Eastern theater lies in the threat of our naval power and the effort of our economic blockade. Both are primary deterrents against Japanese all-out entry in the war as an Axis partner. If we become involved in war with Japan, we could launch a serious offensive against her by naval and air forces based on the Philippines and elsewhere in Malaysia. Japan was torn between two opposing factions. The government leaders were aware of the perils of further military adventures. They want to avoid a general war in the Pacific and seek a peaceful settlement with the United States. On the other hand, army hotheads and other intransigents oppose any major concessions. From the point of view of the government leaders, the situation appeared bleak. The conversations between the Japanese ambassadors and the U.S. government in Washington can now be said definitely to have ended in failure. Miles said Japan faced a serious problem. Because of the ever-increasing stringency of the embargo placed on Japan by the United States, Great Britain, and the Netherlands East Indies, the economic situation in Japan is slowly but surely becoming worse. The Japanese have always lacked war materials, adequate foreign exchange, and sufficient foreign trade. The embargo has served to increase sharply the deficiencies in these categories. 
The firm united front of the United States, Great Britain, and the Netherlands East Indies in enforcing the embargo has put Japan on the spot economically. If she goes to war to achieve her economic objectives, Japan faces ruin. But at the same time, she feels that achievement of these objectives are vital to her existence. In short, economically, Japan is in perilous plight. The situation calls for strenuous measures, yet if she goes to war, she may use up her reserves, especially of oil and steel, before she can force a decision favorable to herself. Thus, her economic situation contributes largely to the indecision of her leaders. This is a problem which she must solve within the next few months. A basic assumption of Miles' memorandum in spite of United States official neutrality was that we were committed to the defeat of Nazi Germany. He wrote matter-of-factly about the continued progress of America from neutrality towards participating in the war. Miles acknowledged that the Kurusu Conference, the negotiations between the Japanese ambassadors and our State Department, can now be said definitely to have ended in failure. Yet he did not appear to view this rupture with particular concern. Nor did he reflect the sense of urgency that pervaded much of Washington at the time, including the members of FDR's War Council, or Cabinet, and some of those who were working with the Japanese intercepts, notably McCollum in naval intelligence and Safford in naval communications. Miles realized that the United States' consultative association with the British and the Netherlands East Indies for the defense of Malaysia made us a possible belligerent in that area. He knew that the increasing amount of equipment we were sending China pitted us directly against Japan. Miles also recognized Japan's perilous economic plight. After analyzing all these various factors, he concluded that the intentions of Japan were not predictable. Our economic blockade of Japan and our military forces in the Pacific, Miles wrote, are primary deterrents against Japanese all-out entry in the war as an Axis partner. If we become involved in war with Japan, we could launch a serious offensive against her by naval and air forces based on the Philippines and elsewhere in Malaysia. But such an attack would fall short of a major strategic offensive because it would be a diversion of forces away from, rather than toward our objective, the defeat of the Nazis. Honolulu Press reports U.S.-Japanese conversations continuing. A report of the Japanese ambassador's December 1 meeting with Hall appeared in the newspapers, including the Honolulu papers, where it was seen by Kimmel in short. The two Pearl Harbor commanders had no way of knowing what was going on behind the scenes, except as they were informed by Washington. Short had received Stimson's November 27 cable sent out over Marshall's signature, telling him that negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated, with only the barest possibilities that the Japanese government might come back and offer to continue. Kimmel was told on November 27 that negotiations had ceased and two days later that they appeared to be terminated with the barest possibilities of their resumption. Neither Kimmel nor Short had received any further official report of the situation, and then, as Kimmel said, they were left to read public accounts of further conversations between the State Department and the Japanese emissaries in Washington, which indicated that negotiations had been resumed. They could only assume that the report they had received of a break in negotiations had been superseded. Japan alerts Berlin of impending clash of arms with Anglo-Saxon nations. On December 1, our Navy cryptographers intercepted, decoded, and translated two November 30 messages from the Japanese government to its ambassador in Germany. These were long cables sent in purple, asking the ambassador in Berlin to notify Japan's allies under the tripartite alliance, Germany and Italy, of the breakdown in negotiations with the United States. These cables were sent in three parts. The first part reported to the ambassador the status of the conversations between Tokyo and Washington. 
In spite of the sincere efforts of the imperial government, the negotiations now stand ruptured, broken. In the face of this, our empire faces a grave situation and must act with determination. The ambassador was asked to immediately interview Chancellor Hitler and Foreign Minister Ribbentrop and confidentially communicate to them a summary of the developments. He should describe the provocative attitude of England and the United States and the plan of the British and Americans to move military forces into East Asia. He should say that this makes it inevitable that Japan, counter by also moving troops, say very secretly to them that there is extreme danger that war may suddenly break out between the Anglo-Saxon nations and Japan through some clash of arms and add that the time of the breaking out of this war may come quicker than anyone dreams. In part three of this three-part cable, the ambassador was to reassure the German officials if questioned about Japan's attitude toward their common enemy under the Tripartite Act. The Soviets, with whom the Nazis were then engaged in a fierce struggle to reach Moscow, that Japan did not mean to relax our pressure against the Soviets, and that if Russia joins hands tighter with England and the United States and resists us with hostilities, we are ready to turn upon her with all our might. However, right now, it is to our advantage to stress the South, and for the time being, we would prefer to refrain from any direct moves in the North. After speaking with the Germans, the ambassador was to have an Italian translation of this cable transmitted to Hitler's ally, Premier Mussolini, and his foreign minister, Ciano. To the Japanese, the breakdown in negotiations with the United States meant war, and they were telling their German and Italian allies that they were planning to move south, that is, in the direction of the Philippines, Indochina, and the Malay Peninsula. The second November 30 cable from Tokyo to Berlin was in two parts. The negotiations had been started in April under the previous Kanoye administration. The intent of these negotiations, Tokyo reminded the ambassador, has been to restrain the United States from participating in the war. During the negotiations of the last few days, however, the Japanese had found it gradually more and more clear that the imperial government could no longer continue negotiations with the United States. Their views and ours on the question of the evacuation of troops, upon which the negotiations rested, they demanded the evacuation of imperial troops from China and French Indochina, were completely in opposition to each other. Tokyo told the ambassador that, before the United States brought forth this plan to reject Japan's modus vivendi proposal, they conferred with England, Australia, the Netherlands, and China. They did so repeatedly. Therefore, it is clear that the United States is now in collusion with those nations and has decided to regard Japan, along with Germany and Italy, as an enemy. Japan orders her embassies worldwide to destroy codes and code machines. On December 1, Tokyo sent two short circular cables to its embassies around the world, giving instructions for abandoning the use of code machines and describing how to destroy them. Four offices, London, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Manila, were told to destroy their code machines and codes. The office in the United States was told specifically to retain its machine and machine codes. When a government orders the destruction of the code machines at its diplomatic offices in certain countries, that is a strong indication that a break in relations with those countries is imminent. The officials who are reading Magic Intercepts realized the significance of these cables. FDR assures British Ambassador Halifax of U.S. support in Southeast Asia. Because of the sense of growing emergency, Roosevelt had returned suddenly from Warm Springs to Washington. On the afternoon of December 1, he and his close aide Harry Hopkins met for a long interview with British Ambassador Lord Halifax at the White House. 
Both Halifax and FDR had considered sending a joint British-American statement to the Japanese, but rejected the idea as they expected it would only evoke an evasive reply from Japan. Halifax was concerned about whether the United States would lend support to the British in Southeast Asia, as agreed during the American-Dutch-British conversations at Singapore in April. As a signatory to the ADB agreement, the United States was committed to engage in active military counteraction in the event of a direct act of war by Japanese armed forces against the territory or mandated territory of any of the associated powers. The geographical area encompassed by this pack covered large portions of Southeast Asia and the Southwest Pacific. The details as to how active military counteraction was to be undertaken had not been specifically spelled out. However, the ADB agreement did specify that the U.S. Pacific Fleet headquartered in Hawaii, whenever and wherever they can, should assume the offensive against Japanese naval forces and sea communications. In addition to defending its base in Manila, the U.S. Asiatic Fleet was to transfer some of its cruisers with aviation units and destroyers towards Singapore to operate under the strategic direction of the Commander-in-Chief, Chin. The situation in Southeast Asia was becoming increasingly precarious. Large contingents of Japanese troops were moving in that direction. The government of the Netherlands East Indies had ordered a comprehensive mobilization of its armed forces. Halifax had been instructed by his government to tell the U.S. government that it expected a Japanese attack on Thailand and that this attack would include an expedition to seize strategic points in the Kra Isthmus the narrow strip of land belonging to Thailand, north of the Malay Peninsula and Singapore. The British proposed to counter this plan by a rapid move into the Isthmus, and they wanted to be sure of American support. Roosevelt told Halifax that, in the case of a direct attack on the British or the Dutch, we should obviously all be together. However, we wanted to explore some situations which might not be quite so clear, for instance, if there were not a direct attack on the British or Dutch or if the Japanese moved into Thailand without attacking the Kra Isthmus. When Halifax reported this conversation to his government, he said he thought the United States would support whatever action we might take in any of these cases. FDR also told Halifax that the British could count on American support if we, the British, carried out our move to defend the Kra Isthmus in the event of a Japanese attack, though this support might not be forthcoming for a few days. FDR then suggested that the British promise the Thai government that they would respect and guarantee the full sovereignty and independence of Thailand if the Thais resisted Japanese attack or infiltration. Roosevelt said that the U.S. Constitution did not allow him to give such a guarantee, but he told Halifax that the British could be sure that their guarantee to the Thai government would have full American support. The president's answer was sufficiently encouraging to enable Halifax to report that, in his opinion, the United States would support whatever action we might take in any of the contingencies outlined by the president. We could, in any case, count on American support of any operations in the Kra Isthmus. Part, Manila, directed to charter three small men of war to observe Japanese convoys. At the direction of the president, the Navy sent a cable about 7 p.m. on December 1 to Admiral Hart commander-in-chief of our Asiatic fleet based in Manila. Hart was asked to charter three small vessels as soon as possible and within two days if possible to form a defensive information patrol. These three small ships were to have the minimal requirements to be classified as U.S. men of war. Each was to be commanded by a U.S. naval officer, although the crew members could be Filipinos. 
For weapons, they needed only a small gun and one machine gun. Their mission was to observe and report by radio Japanese movements in West China Sea and Gulf of Siam. The three small ships were to be stationed off the coast of French Indochina, one vessel to be stationed between Hainan and Wei, one vessel off the Indochina coast between Kamran Bay and Cape Saint-Jacques, and one vessel off Point de Camon. All locations in the anticipated path of the Japanese convoys, then known to be sailing towards Southeast Asia. Hart was also asked to report on the reconnaissance measures, air, surface, and submarine, being performed regularly by both Army and Navy. Ambassador Gru reports gloom in Tokyo. During the last few days of November, U.S. Ambassador Gru in Japan spoke with a number of prominent Japanese, some of whom have been in direct touch with the foreign minister, and most of them appear to be already familiar with the substance of our government's recent 10-point draft proposal. While desirous of continuing the Washington conversations, they all reflect a pessimistic reaction, perceiving the difficulties of bridging over the positions of the two countries and emphasizing what they seem to regard as the unconciliatory tone of our proposal. On the evening of December 1, Gru saw one of his old Japanese friends at the Tokyo Club looking gray and worn. The cabinet had decided to break off the conversations with the United States, he told Gru. In that case, Gru feared that everything was over and that he would soon be leaving Japan. However, the government-controlled Tokyo newspapers that night reported that the cabinet is at its meeting today while realizing the difficulty of adjusting the respective positions of the two countries, nevertheless determined to continue the Washington conversations. Gru cabled Washington to that effect. In spite of this apparent good news, Gru's friend remained crushed. Chapter 9 Tensions Mount FDR Remonstrates Against Increased Japanese Troops in Indochina Secretary of State Hall was laid up with a cold, so Under Secretary of State Wells called the two Japanese ambassadors to the State Department on December 2 and presented them with a statement by President Roosevelt. Continuing Japanese troop movements to southern Indochina reported during the past several days, represent a very rapid and material increase in the forces of all kinds stationed by Japan in Indochina. As FDR understood the Japanese agreement with the French Vichy government, the arrival of these forces brought the number of Japanese troops in Indochina well above the total permitted. These increased Japanese forces in Indochina would seem to imply the utilization of these forces by Japan for purposes of further aggression since no such number of forces could possibly be required for the policing of that region. Such aggression could conceivably be directed against the Philippines, the East Indies, Burma, Malaya, or Thailand. This, FDR maintained, would be new aggression additional to the acts of aggression already undertaken against China. He wanted to know the intentions of the Japanese government in continuing to move troops into Indochina. Because of the broad problem of American defense, and he asked the Japanese ambassadors to inquire as to their government's purpose in carrying out this recent and rapid concentration of troops in Indochina. Nomura admitted that he was not informed by the Japanese government of its intentions. He would contact them immediately. Karusu said, It was obvious no threat against the United States was intended, especially as the Japanese government had offered on November 20 to transfer all its forces from southern Indochina to northern Indochina. This shift could not be easily affected, however, due to the lack of adequate transportation and of communication facilities in Indochina. Although Wells stated that the United States government has not had any aggressive intention against Japan, 
Nomura reminded him of the U.S. economic measures against Japan, trade embargoes, and the freezing of assets. Economic measures are a much more effective weapon of war than military measures. The Japanese people believe they are being placed under severe pressure by the United States to yield to the American position, and that it is preferable to fight rather than to yield to the American position. The ambassador added that this was a situation in which wise statesmanship was needed, that wars do not settle anything. Under the circumstances, some agreement, even though it is not satisfactory, is better than no agreement at all. The Japanese ambassadors reminded Wells that the note we had handed them on November 26 contained several points which, in view of the actual situation in the Far East, the Japanese government would find it difficult to accept. The latest U.S. proposal raised important questions so that it seemed to the Japanese government to require a completely fresh start. As a result, its response might take a few days, although they had expected it shortly. With respect to the U.S.-Japanese negotiations, the Japanese government had been hopeful of being able to work out with us, the United States, some settlement of the three outstanding points on which our draft of June 21 and the Japanese draft of September 25 had not been reconciled. Nomura said the situation called for wise statesmanship. Wars do not settle anything. Karusu thought considerable progress had been made, and he expressed an interest in resuming the efforts to reconcile our differences. Wells agreed to refer this question to Hull. In their cable to Tokyo, the Japanese ambassadors reported, The United States and other countries have pyramided economic pressure upon economic pressure upon us Japanese. The people of Japan are faced with economic pressure, and I want you to know that we have but the choice between submission to this pressure or breaking the chains that it invokes. Wells' manner gave Nomura the impression that he hoped Japan in her reply to the American proposals of the 26th would leave room to maneuver. It was clear also from their interview with Hull the day before that the United States, too, is anxious to peacefully conclude the current difficult situation. I, Nomura, am convinced that they would like to bring about a speedy settlement. Therefore, please bear well in mind this fact in your consideration of our reply to the new American proposals. Would U.S. fight if British or Dutch fought in Malaya and NEI? FDR still plans to address Congress. Also on Tuesday, December 2, Roosevelt met with Knox, Wells, and Stimson. Hull was sick. The president went step-by-step step over the situation and reported, through the State Department, on his request to the Japanese that they tell him what they intended by this new occupation of southern Indochina. He had demanded a quick reply. FDR seemed to have made up his mind to go ahead with the message to Congress and possibly also the message to the emperor, as had been discussed at his war cabinet meeting on November 28. These men were watching the situation in the Far East very carefully. Stimson, for one, was in frequent conference with the top army officials, Marshal, General Miles of G2 Intelligence, and also General Garrow of the War Plans Division of the General Staff. They were anxious to strengthen the Philippines' defenses and were particularly concerned with supplies which were on the way to the Philippines and additional big bombers which they were trying to fly over there, some of which were scheduled to start at the end of the week. Hull had once remarked to Marshall, apropos of the discussions he had been having with the Japanese envoys, these fellows mean to fight and you will have to watch out. He was certain that the Japanese were planning some deviltry, and we were all wondering where the blow would strike. The messages we were receiving now indicated that the Japanese force was continuing on in the Gulf of Siam, 
and again we discussed whether we would not have to fight if Malaya or the Netherlands were attacked, and the British or Dutch fought. We all three thought that we must fight if those nations fought. We realized that if Britain were eliminated, it might well result in the destruction or capture of the British fleet. Such a result would give the Nazi allies overwhelming power in the Atlantic Ocean and would make the defense of the American republics enormously difficult, if not impossible. All the reasons why it would be necessary for the United States to fight in case the Japanese attacked either our British or Dutch neighbors in the Pacific were discussed at length. Intercepted Japanese message announces system of code words to be used in certain emergencies. Among the Japanese messages our code people intercepted during this period was a long cable from Tokyo on November 27, addressed to its embassy in Washington and several of the more important Japanese embassies and consuls around the world. We decoded and translated it on December 2. In view of the fact that international relations were becoming more strained, it read, an emergency system of dispatches was to be put into effect. The cable contained a long list of code words, each with a hidden meaning, which would be substituted for other words in case of certain emergencies, which were then enumerated. To distinguish one of these special messages from the other messages, it would not use the usual Japanese close, awari. Rather, it would end with the English word, stop. This cable was one more indication that the Japanese government anticipated a serious emergency before long. It also gave our hard-working cryptographers one more thing to keep in mind. They must watch for Japanese cables ending with stop and then not only decode and translate them, but determine the hidden meanings in the special code words. Government prepares for war. On September 8, 1939, a few days after the start of the war in Europe, Roosevelt had announced a limited national emergency. As international tensions mounted, especially after FDR's third term re-election in November 1940, Various emergency interventionist measures were enacted aimed at placing this country on a wartime footing. A throng of government agencies were created, some controls on industrial production were initiated, and a system of priorities was established in the attempt to assure that firms producing military equipment and supplies could obtain the materials they needed. The Office of Production Management, headed by William S. Knudsen, Sidney Hillman, Stimson, and Knox, was established on January 7, 1941. On February 20, FDR's personal aide, Harry L. Hopkins, was appointed to a newly created production planning board. By executive order of February 24, the production of aluminum and machine tools was granted government priority. On February 25, in the interest of national defense, export licensing procedures were instituted for a long list of items, and the list was lengthened substantially in March and April. A National Defense Mediation Board was formed on March 19, to mediate strikes of labor union members in defense industries. The Office of Price Administration and Civilian Supply, headed by Leon Henderson, was set up on April 11. The Office of Civilian Defense was organized on May 20, with New York Mayor Fiorello H. LaGuardia in charge. Then, on May 27, FDR declared an unlimited national emergency. By this declaration, the president gained control over labor, management, and other elements of the economy. Also, his authority to eliminate internal strife and to suppress subversive activities was increased. The emergency agencies continued to proliferate. On May 31, Secretary of Interior Harold Ikes was appointed to the newly created position of Petroleum Coordinator for National Defense. As of June 2, mandatory priorities of wartime scope were imposed on industry. On June 25, U.S. airspace was zoned by the Civil Aeronautics Board, 
to facilitate the movement of military aircraft. On August 3, to conserve gasoline, nighttime sales, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., were banned to motorists on the eastern seaboard. And on August 15, gasoline deliveries to 17 eastern states were cut by 10%. On August 9, steel was placed under 100% priority control by the Office of Production Management. On August 11, by executive order, installment credit for consumers' durable goods was curbed. On August 16, the President signed a bill extending from one to two and a half years the period of military duty required of draftees under the Selective Service Act and of members of the Army and National Guard. Then on August 28, the Supply Priorities and Allocations Board, SPAB, was set up with Donald M. Nelson, then on leave from Sears, Roebuck & Company, as Executive Director to handle procurement and to coordinate national defense purchases. Top Washington Officials Consider War Imminent Early in the first week in December, Roosevelt called Nelson to his office to talk about a priorities meeting. Their discussion had hardly begun when the President's Appointment Secretary, Pa Watson, came into the room and said, Mr. President, Secretary Hull is outside with the two Japs. FDR then told Nelson, Don, I think we shall have to postpone this discussion. I am very anxious to conclude the discussions with Nomura and Caruso. As Nelson got up to leave, he asked, How does it look? FDR shook his head gravely and replied, Don, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we were at war with Japan by Thursday, December 4. Nelson had a second shock later in the week. He was giving a dinner Wednesday evening for Vice President Henry A. Wallace and had invited the members of SPAB. Wallace sat at Nelson's right and his fellow Chicagoan, Navy Secretary Frank Knox, was on his left. Remembering the president's pre-sentiment of war, Nelson made guarded inquiries of Knox concerning the Japanese situation. Knox was not at all reticent in his reply. Don, he said, we may be at war with the Japs before the month is over. Nelson asked, is it that bad? Knox replied, you bet your life it's that bad. Then Nelson asked Knox, what kind of a fight would we have out there in the Pacific? Knox replied, will hunt their Navy down and blow it right out of the water. Treasury Secretary Morgenthau asks if anything might disturb a U.S. bond sale. Treasury Secretary Morgenthau was responsible for arranging the government's financing. On December 1, he was preparing to make an offering on the market of $1.5 billion in U.S. bonds. Before settling on a date for the offer, he wanted to know the likelihood that some crisis might occur to disturb the financial markets. As Morgenthau was not privy to magic, he lacked detailed inside knowledge of the international situation. He asked Roosevelt's advice. FDR told him to go ahead with the bond offer. But he said, I cannot guarantee anything. It is all in the laps of the gods. Adding, it was apt to be worse in the following week than in the week just beginning. Morgenthau also asked Wells if something would be happening Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, December 3, 4, or 5, of real importance. I mean that might upset the people of this country. Wells was reassuring. I don't anticipate anything within that brief period. Morgenthau spoke with Roosevelt again on December 3. FDR said he had the Japanese running around like a lot of wet hens and thought the Japanese are doing everything they can to stall until they are ready. Morgenthau had long been anxious for the United States to become involved in the war against Hitler, so from Morgenthau's viewpoint, the most important thing was that the president was talking with the English about war plans as to when and where the USA and Great Britain should strike. When Morgenthau learned that the New York branch of the Bank of Japan was going to close down on December 4 or 5, 
he became still more worried about the market for his bond offer. He contacted the president again and finally got an all-clear signal. So on Thursday, December 4, he announced the Treasury offering $1 billion of 2.5% bonds maturing 1967 to 1972 and $500 million of 2% with a shorter maturity 1951 to 1955. Japanese consul in Hawaii asked to report weekly on ships in Pearl Harbor. For some months, U.S. intelligence officers in Hawaii had been intercepting Japanese messages to and from the Japanese consul in Hawaii and Tokyo, messages sent in the J-19 consular code. U.S. intelligence personnel in Hawaii did not have the facilities to decipher these coded intercepts and were under instructions to airmail them as they were intercepted to Washington. Airmail from Hawaii to Washington took two or three days. Once in Washington, their decoding and translation was often delayed still further, for purple messages, which usually dealt with urgent and sensitive matters, had priority. On October 9, Washington cryptographers had deciphered a September 24 birthing plan intercept, instructing the Japanese consul in Hawaii to plot the location of ships in Pearl Harbor on a grid system and to notify Tokyo. However, the Pearl Harbor commanders were not notified. On December 3, Navy cryptanalysts in Washington decoded and translated a J-19 message more than two weeks old, November 15, sent from Tokyo to its consul in Hawaii. It read, As relations between Japan and the United States are most critical, make your ships in harbor report irregular, but at a rate of twice a week. Again, this information was not passed on to our commanders in Hawaii, not to General Short, who was responsible for the safety of the fleet while in port, and not to Admiral Kimmel, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet based in Pearl Harbor. Thus, the U.S. commanders in Hawaii remained ignorant of the fact that the Japanese consul in Honolulu was keeping a close watch on the ships of the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor. Japan orders its embassy in Washington to destroy codes. U.S. naval intelligence warns outposts. On December 2, Tokyo time, the Japanese government cabled its embassy in Washington further instructions about destroying its codes. This message was promptly decoded and translated by our Army cryptographers on December 3. It said that all codes but those now being used with the machine and all secret files and documents were to be destroyed. Also, stop at once using one code machine unit and destroy it completely. On the completion of these tasks, the embassy should wire back the one code word, Haruna. This code destruct message and others addressed to Japanese embassies and consulates indicated to anyone familiar with such matters that the Japanese were planning to go to war very soon. Junior officers in naval intelligence who were working with these Japanese intercepts were disturbed. Navy Captain Arthur H. McCollum, who was in charge of the Far Eastern Section of Naval Intelligence's foreign branch, suggested that warning messages be sent to the U.S. outposts in the Pacific, and he drafted the following cable. Highly reliable information has been received that categoric and urgent instructions were sent yesterday to Japanese diplomatic and consular posts at Hong Kong, Singapore, Batavia, Manila, Washington, and London to destroy most of their codes and ciphers at once and to burn all other important confidential and secret documents. From foregoing, infer that Orange, Japan, plans early action in Southeast Asia. McCollum's superior, Admiral Theodore S. Wilkinson, Chief of the Intelligence Division, sought permission from Admiral Royal E. Ingersoll, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, to send this cable. When asked during the Pearl Harbor hearings if the destruction of codes necessarily means war, that a country that destroys its codes is going to commit an overt act of war or declare war. 
Ingersoll replied, it meant that to us, particularly the destruction of codes in the consulates. Therefore, Ingersoll apparently assumed that the last sentence of the proposed cable was unnecessary. In any event, he okayed the code destruction message with the final sentence deleted. The shortened message was dispatch priority on December 3 at 6.50 p.m. Greenwich time, 1.50 p.m. Washington time, to Admiral Hart, Manila, Admiral Kimmel, Pearl Harbor, and to commandants of the naval districts in Hawaii and the Philippines. Navy Captain L. F. Safford in the Office of Naval Communications knew of the latest Japanese intercept regarding the destruction of codes in London, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Manila. Then he learned that the Japanese embassy in Washington also had been ordered to destroy everything they had except one copy of their high-grade decoding machine. And on the 3rd, we received a signal from Admiralty London that the Japanese embassy in London had already complied. Lieutenant Commander A.D. Kramer, who was attached to the Far Eastern Section of Naval Intelligence, told Safford that McCollum was greatly worried by the lack of information that was being sent to the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet. Safford phoned McCollum and asked if he had read the messages which we had been getting in the last three days. McCollum said he had. Do you appreciate their significance, Safford asked. McCollum said he did. Then Safford asked, are you people in naval intelligence doing anything to get a warning out to the Pacific Fleet? We are doing everything we can. McCollum emphasized both we's to get the news out to the fleet. Safford didn't learn then that McCollum had finally succeeded in having a warrant sent, even if a watered-down one. So Safford and Kramer set out to draft their own warning. According to Safford, the CI, Communications Intelligence, unit in Washington, had no authority to forward the CI units in Pearl Harbor or Corregidor or to the Commanders-in-Chief Direct. Any information other than technical information pertaining to direction finding, interception, and so forth. The dissemination of intelligence was the duty, responsibility, and privilege of the Office of Naval Intelligence, as prescribed in communication war plans approved by the Chief of Naval Operations in March 1940. Therefore, the dissemination of intelligence was not permitted to Safford's unit. He acted because he thought McCollum had been unable to get his message released. Safford's message, OPNAV-031855, was released by Captain Joseph R. Redman, Assistant Director of Naval Communications. It was addressed to the Philippines, SINCAF, and COM-16, for action and routed to Hawaii, SIN-CPAC, and COM-14, for information. It was written in highly technical language and only one officer present at Pearl Harbor, the late Lieutenant H.M. Coleman, USN, on Sin CPAC staff, but have explained its significance. Safford's message advised that on December 1, Tokyo had ordered London, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Manila to destroy their purple machines. Batavia's machine had already been returned to Tokyo. Then, on December 2, the Japanese embassy in Washington had been told to destroy its secret documents, its purple machine, and all but one copy of other systems. It also reported that the Japanese embassy in London had complied. When Safford's message reached Pearl Harbor, Kimmel's intelligence officer had to ask Coleman what a purple machine was. The Pearl Harbor Command had never heard of the Japanese diplomatic code, a code machine named Purple, or of magic, the valuable intelligence derived from Purple. McCollum's watered-down dispatch, number 031850, had actually been released by Wilkinson just five minutes before Safford's, number 031855. McCollum's message had been sent for action to Hart in Manila, Kimmel in Pearl Harbor, and to the commandants of the 14th, Hawaii, and 16th, Philippines, Naval Districts. 
Safford's message went for action to the Philippines with an information copy to Hawaii. U.S. Orders Destruction of Codes at Some Overseas Embassies The repeated reminders that the Japanese were planning some aggressive action in the very near future spurred Army officials in Washington to action. General Sherman Miles, head of G2, the Military Intelligence Division of the Army General Staff, was responsible for the collection, analysis, estimation, and dissemination of information, primarily for the Chief of Staff and the Secretary of War. On December 3, he cabled the U.S. military attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo to destroy its codes. The Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, OPNAV, also acted. Late in the evening of December 3, Washington time, instructions to destroy the Navy's codes were sent to U.S. naval attachés in the Asiatic Theater. Alusna, naval attaché, in Tokyo and Bangkok, and Astalusna, assistant naval attaché for air, in Peiping and Shanghai, China. Information copies only were sent to SINCAF, Commander-in-Chief Asiatic Fleet. That is Admiral Hart in Manila, COM-16, Commandant 16th Naval District Philippines, and Alusna, Chongqing, China. No copy was sent to Kimmel in Pearl Harbor, 14th Naval District, Hawaii. A similar message was sent a few minutes later to the Naval Attaché in Peiping and to the Marine Commander in Tianjin, China. Some 17 hours later, a message, 042017, was sent to the naval station on Guam, the mid-Pacific island more than 3,000 miles west of Hawaii, which lay practically in the midst of the Japanese-mandated islands. Guam was told to destroy all secret and confidential publications and other classified matter, except that necessary for current purposes and special intelligence, and to be prepared to destroy instantly any other classified material retained. Information copies were sent to Hart in the 16th Naval District in the Philippines, and to Kimmel and the 14th Naval District in Hawaii. On December 4, just two minutes after the one to Guam, a cable, 042019, was dispatched from OPNAV in Washington to the naval attachés at Tokyo and Bangkok and to the assistant naval attachés in Peiping and Shanghai. They were told to destroy all secret and confidential files with the exception of those which are essential for current purposes. Also, all other papers which in the hands of an enemy would be of disadvantage to the United States were to be destroyed. These co-destruct messages meant Japanese action was imminent, in the West Pacific and Southeast Asia, probably in Indochina and Thailand. Hawaii was an action addressee in only one of these urgent cables, McCollum's number 031850. Manila was a second addressee. However, the information reported in that message, gleaned from a Japanese intercept, had concerned primarily Southeast Asia, ordering the destruction of codes and ciphers at Japanese diplomatic and consular posts in Hong Kong, Singapore, Batavia, and Manila, as well as Washington and London. No one in Washington seemed concerned about Hawaii. Chapter 10. Significant Information Known in Washington U.S. War Plans Published on December 4, 1941, a front-page story in the Washington Times-Herald and its parent newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, sent shockwaves throughout the nation. FDR's war plans, goal is 10 million armed men, have to fight in AEF, proposed land drive by July 1, 1943, to smash Nazis. The nation was still officially neutral, yet here was evidence that plans had been made to build an army to fight abroad. That is, to create an American Expeditionary Force, AEF, to smash the Nazis. The people were stunned. The war plans announced here were those prepared under Marshall's orders by Lieutenant Colonel Albert C. Wedemeyer. 
Wedemeyer had been assigned the task in May 1941 of compiling a complete statement of Army needs, not for 1941 and 1942, but for the actual winning of a war not yet declared. Then, in July 1941, almost immediately after Hitler attacked Russia, Roosevelt had expanded the scope of Wedemeyer's assignment to include not only the needs of the Army, but also those of the Navy and Air. On August 30, FDR had enlarged it still further to encompass also the distribution of expected United States production of munitions of war as between the United States, Great Britain, Russia, and the other countries to be aided. The project had been carried out in utmost secrecy, and Wedemeyer had completed his Herculean task by September 10. The result of his efforts was known as the Victory Program. To preserve the security of the project, the number of copies and their distribution were strictly limited. Nevertheless, rumors had circulated in October that the Army was currently preparing an expeditionary force for duty in Africa. To protect the secrecy of the plans, Marshall had categorically denied their existence. There is no foundation whatsoever, he stated, for the allegation or rumor that we are preparing troops for a possible expedition to Africa or other critical areas outside this hemisphere. And now, to the chagrin of all involved, the security surrounding the program had been breached. The military's war plans had been leaked and published for all the world to see in the anti-administration Chicago Tribune. There was consternation and embarrassment in the administration. An investigation was launched to discover who had been responsible for the leak. Japanese Winds Code Executed War with England, War with the U.S., Peace with Russia On November 28, we had intercepted the November 15 Japanese Winds Code Setup, Tokyo Circular Number 2353, a message announcing special weather code words to be used by the Japanese in case of emergency, danger of cutting off our diplomatic relations, and the cutting off of international communications. By introducing these weather words, each with a hidden meaning, into daily Japanese language news broadcasts, the Japanese would be able to communicate secretly to their diplomatic officers throughout the world, even if they could no longer transmit via their cryptographic channels. Also on November 28, we had intercepted a Japanese message with the schedule of Japanese news broadcasts and the kilocycles on which transmissions were to be made. The significance of the WINS code message became apparent when on December 1 we translated a Japanese intercept ordering the Japanese diplomatic offices in some countries to destroy their codes and code machines. When Captain Safford, director of the security section of Navy Department's communications, read the cable giving the times and frequencies of Japanese news broadcasts in conjunction with the Japanese WINS code message, he put two and two together. According to him, everyone in authority from the president down believed that this, a WINS execute, would be the Japanese government's decision as to peace or war announced to their own officials overseas. We looked on it as our chance of a tip-off, our chance to gain the necessary time to prevent a surprise attack on our fleet. Interception of a winds execute was given top priority. Safford immediately alerted U.S. intercept stations to monitor Japanese language weather and news broadcasts at the scheduled times. It was expected that the message would be transmitted in Japanese Morse code. Those monitoring the broadcast were given cards with the three Japanese phrases listed in the WINS code message. Higashi no Kaze Ame, Kita no Kaze Komori, and Nishi no Kaze Hare, and were instructed to listen closely for an execute, i.e. for an actual broadcast of any one of the three crucial Japanese weather phrases. Our prospects for interception look somewhat dubious, Safford said later. 
The Navy even feared that this wind's execute might have been sent out before the 28th, when we began listening for it, and that we might have missed it entirely. After all, the Japanese message had gone out on November 15, almost two weeks before we decoded and translated it. All these uncertainties made the Navy very jittery. Moreover, radio reception was not only poor, but unpredictable. The radio frequencies used between Japan and the United States were quite erratic in performance. It is not at all surprising that the frequency used by the Japanese to reach Washington, Rio, and Buenos Aires skipped over the West Coast and Hawaii. Even the Japanese themselves in Washington and Rio objected to the new frequency assignments and Rome complained about the poor quality of the Tokyo voice broadcasts. In view of the urgency of intercepting the winds execute and the uncertain nature of radio reception, Navy communications took the exceptional precaution of alerting all stations with any possibility of intercepting this important message. Nevertheless, the Navy Department was very much worried that, even with all the stations which were known to be listening for it, by some freak chance we might fail to catch it. Since reception of Tokyo transmissions was often clearer on the east coast of the United States than on the west coast, Station M at Cheltenham, Maryland was one of several interception stations to which the alert was sent. Station Chief Daryl Weigel put a notation in the supervisor's instruction file, and radio man Ralph T. Briggs, then assistant supervisor on his particular watch, saw the report. Briggs had been especially trained by the Navy in the interception of Japanese communications, and he recognized the three Japanese phrases as weather phrases. They were the kinds of phrases Briggs had often picked up when searching various radio spectrums at random to practice interception and to see what kind of traffic was being transmitted. Briggs wondered why Navy intelligence was all of a sudden targeting weather reports, and being on good terms with his station chief, he asked why. Weigel was reluctant to explain, but he finally showed Briggs the card with the three phrases and their hidden coded meanings. Weigel couldn't give Briggs all the details, but, he said, it's important that we get those. If you get any of them, if any of those shows up in any broadcast, be sure and transmit them immediately to OP20G, Captain Safford's office in Washington, D.C. The only broadcast on which such weather phrases might appear was the Tokyo Scheduled Weather and News Broadcast, transmitted at different hours of the day and on different frequencies to Japanese ships and stations worldwide. The Cheltenham Communication Intelligence-trained radio men began to monitor that broadcast. To each of the five watch sections, Weigel assigned at least one operator who was qualified in katakana, the difficult written form of squarish Japanese characters based on Chinese ideographs as contrasted with the simpler kanji. On December 4, Briggs had the mid-watch from midnight to 8 a.m. Sometime after midnight, probably between 3 and 8, when he was to be relieved, Briggs intercepted in Japanese Morse code a message containing the phrase Higashi no Kaze Ame. He excitedly rushed down the corridor in the OP20G teletype terminal and sent the message off immediately to OP20G in Washington. He then phoned Weigel, who lived on the station, got him out of the sack, and told him what had happened. When Weigel checked the log sheet in the station copy of the intercept later, he confirmed to Briggs that he had gotten the real McCoy. The execute, forwarded by teletype, TWX, from Cheltenham, was received in the Navy Department in Washington by the watch officer, who notified Lieutenant Commander Kramer, who was in charge of the translation section of the Navy Department Communication Intelligence Unit. As soon as Kramer saw the TWX from Cheltenham, he rushed into Safford's office with the long yellow teletype paper in his hands. 
The time was shortly before 9 a.m. on December 4. Footnote 19 reads, Considerable confusion has surrounded the actual time when the Wins execute was received. Safford's recollection, based on the timing of messages he dispatched immediately upon receipt, was that it picked up on the morning of December 4th, continuing Part 8, pages 35 and 86 through 88. Briggs's surmise when he was interviewed by Toland, April 13, 1980, was that he may have intercepted a winds message during his mid-watch at Cheltenham from 0001, 12.01 a.m. to 0800, 8 a.m., Washington, D.C. time on December 2. He came to this conclusion on the basis of missing messages as recorded on his station M log sheet. However, later Briggs' investigations convinced him that the date was actually December 4, as Safford maintained consistently throughout his testimony and interrogations. This is it, Kramer said as he handed the message to Safford. This was the broadcast we had strained every nerve to intercept. This was the feather in our cap. This is what the Navy Communication Intelligence Division had been preparing for since its establishment in 1924, War with Japan. As Safford later recalled, the WINS message broadcast was about 200 words long, with the code words prescribed in Tokyo Circular 2353, appearing in the middle of the message. Kramer had underscored all three code phrases on the original incoming teletype sheet. Below the printed message was written in pencil or colored crayon in Kramer's handwriting the following free translations. War with England, including NEI, etc. War with the U.S. Peace with Russia. Safford immediately sent the original teletype of the Winds Execute with one of his officers up to the office of his superior, Rear Admiral Noyes, Director of Naval Communications. Safford did not explain the message or its significance to the courier. He only told him to deliver this paper to Admiral Noyes in person. If Noyes wasn't there, the officer was to track him down and not take no for an answer. If Noyes could not be found within a reasonable time, the officer was to let Safford know. In a few minutes, however, Safford received a report that the message had been successfully delivered to Noyes. Meanwhile, over at the Japanese embassy in Washington, Japanese petty officer Ogimoto an intelligence officer posing as a code clerk, had been on the alert since November 19 when the government in Tokyo had announced the WINS code. We knew, of course, that the Japanese embassies and legations throughout the world must have been listening for the WINS execute, just as intently as we had been, although we had no way of knowing just what arrangements they had made. However, in the naval attaché room, Agimoto had been straining his ears listening to shortwave broadcasts on their sophisticated radio. At about 4 p.m. on December 4, Agimoto heard what he had been waiting for. East, wind, rain. He shouted, the wind blew. Ogimoto heard the phrase, east, wind, rain, repeated several times. In the next room, assistant naval attaché Yuzuru Sanamatsu heard Ogimoto shout and rushed into the radio room. The room was electric with excitement. The two men looked at one another and said, what had to come has finally come. They immediately started making preparations for the destruction of the embassy secret codes, ciphers, and code machines. Footnote 23 states, Yuzuro Senematsu, Nichibei Johosenki, Tokyo, Tosho Shupansha, 1980, pages 146, 235, 1982, pages 191, 232. This paragraph is based on translations by Kentaro Nakano and Toshio Morata, of pertinent messages in the autobiography of naval historian Sanamatsu. At the time of the attack, Sanamatsu was the ranking assistant naval attaché and chief intelligence officer in the Japanese embassy in Washington. 
After the war, he was tried in the Japanese War Crimes Tribunal and served time in prison. Safford, Naval Communications Security, alerts U.S. outposts to destroy classified documents. Indications were mounting that some form of aggressive action by the Japanese was imminent. But when? Where? Safford was concerned for the safety of the cryptographic equipment and all the classified documents at our mid-Pacific stations. The U.S. Naval Station on Guam was only 60 miles or so from Saipan, one of the islands mandated to Japan after World War I. And, according to war plans, Guam was not to be defended except against sabotage. So Safford thought we should clean house early there. Therefore, when the winds execute came in on December 4, he prepared four messages to our stations in the far western Pacific, which were dispatched that afternoon. The first of Safford's four messages was released by his superior, Noise, and the other three by Admiral Ingersoll. Safford's first message ordered Guam, more than 3,000 miles west of Hawaii, and Samoa, 2,260 miles south and west of Hawaii, to destroy certain codes immediately and to substitute a new code, RIP-66, for RIP-65 then in use. It was sent priority to Kimmel at Pearl Harbor, Hearts in Manila, the commandants of their respective naval districts, and the naval stations at Guam and Samoa. Because military intelligence, that is, the analysis, interpretation, and dissemination of information, was the prerogative of the Office of Naval Intelligence, it was outside the jurisdiction of Safford's security section of naval communications. Therefore, Safford's cable was drafted in technical terms and refrained from interpretation. Safford then drafted a second message ordering Guam to destroy all secret and confidential publications and other classified matter except that essential for current purposes. Be prepared to destroy instantly, in event of emergency, all classified matter you retain. It was directed to the naval station at Guam for action, with information copies to the commanders of the fleets and naval districts in the Philippines and Hawaii who might have occasion to communicate with Guam. It was imperative that Safford's first message get there, as the second message was sent in the new RIP-66, which had just been made effective by the previous message. Noise revised Safford's draft somewhat and softened the degree of warning it contained, and it was dispatched 17 minutes after Safford's first message. However, it was sent deferred priority, thus downgrading its urgency. By Navy regulations or by communication instructions, deferred messages are not expected to be delivered until the beginning of working hours the next morning. In other words, any message which comes in in deferred priority automatically is not going to be considered a war warning regardless of how you stated it. Safford's third December 4th message was sent to Hart in Manila, which lay on the flank of the route the Japanese convoys were traveling. It ordered that the communications room be stripped of all secret and confidential publications and papers which in the hands of an enemy would be of disadvantage to the United States. The fourth message was directed for action to the U.S. naval attaches in Tokyo, Peiping, Bangkok, and Shanghai with an information copy to heart. No copy of this message was sent to Kimmel in Pearl Harbor. This message, also prompted by our receipt of the winds execute, ordered our outposts in the Western Pacific to destroy secret and confidential materials, which in the hands of an enemy would be a disadvantage to the United States. Safford was proud of the Navy crew at Cheltenham for having intercepted the vital winds execute, and he did not forget them. In the midst of the growing tension, he took time to send them a message. Well done. Discontinue coverage of the target. A day or so later, he followed that up with a bouquet of roses, not exactly the traditional gift for one man to give a group of men. 
But Crippies, cryptologists, had the reputation for being oddballs, and Safford was a Crippie. Safford recognized that our interception of the Wins Execute had been due partly to good luck, the fact that the Japanese hadn't transmitted in between November 15, when their Wins Code setup message had gone out, and November 28, when we decoded and translated it. It had been due partly to foresight, the ability of intelligence to put several clues together so as to anticipate it. But our successful interception had also been due to the high quality of the Navy operators and receiving apparatus at Cheltenham. Tokyo to Honolulu, investigate ships in harbor. Tokyo to embassy, destroy codes. Also intercepted and translated on December 4 was a significant J-19 Tokyo-Honolulu cable. Honolulu was asked to investigate comprehensively the fleet bases in the neighborhood of the Hawaiian Military Reservation. The usual procedure for handling Japanese J-19 messages, interception in Hawaii and airmailing to Washington as picked up, still encrypted and untranslated, had been followed in this case. As a result, it was not until two weeks after its transmission from Tokyo that this cable was decoded and translated in Washington. However, it was available there on December 4, well before the attack and it provided confirmation of the ships in harbor messages. In light of the other intercepts, this new reminder that the Japanese in Hawaii had our fleet at Pearl Harbor under close surveillance should have set off flashing lights and piercing alarms among those in military intelligence, arousing them to alert the commanders in Hawaii. Yet no hint of either the earlier ships in harbor messages or of this follow-up was forwarded to Pearl Harbor. A purple December 4 Tokyo cable added to the crisis atmosphere in Washington. This cable instructed the Japanese ambassadors in Washington how to dispose of their codes. The key, or guide to deciphering the code, however, was to be kept until the last moment and then sent to the Japanese ministry in Mexico. Tokyo 2 ambassadors maintain pretense that negotiations continue. Also, on December 4, the Navy translated the Japanese government's instruction to their ambassadors in Washington as to how to quiet Roosevelt's concern, as expressed in his December 2 press conference, over Japanese troop movements in Indochina. The ambassadors were told to point out, while maintaining the pretense that the negotiations were continuing, that the movements in the southern part of the country, as well as in the north, have been in response to an unusual amount of activity by the Chinese forces in the vicinity of the Sino-French-Indochina border. The movements, they maintained, have in no way violated the limitations contained in the Japanese-French Joint Defense Agreement. Nevertheless, the Japanese ambassadors in Washington were still concerned. If Japan's troop movements into Indochina continued, they feared the United States might take steps to close down the Japanese consulates. So they wire Tokyo again. Consideration should be given to steps to be taken in connection with the evacuation of the consuls. FDR and British Ambassador discuss warning Japanese against attacking British Malaya and NEI. Roosevelt followed the Japanese situation closely insofar as it was revealed by the magic intercepts he saw. Judging from the clues to Japan's intentions revealed in the messages we were intercepting, it was apparent the Japanese were preparing to strike. The only question that remained was when and where. Without revealing his reasons, on December 4, FDR asked congressional leaders not to recess for more than three days at a time. He was keeping the door open so that he could address Congress should he decide events and public opinion warranted it. Late that evening, British Ambassador Lord Halifax called on the President to express his government's very deep appreciation for his promise the evening before of armed support. 
The two men discussed whether or not it would be advisable for the British, Dutch, and the U.S. governments to issue jointly a simultaneous warning to the Japanese against attacking Thailand, Malaya, the Dutch East Indies, or the Burma Road through Indochina. FDR was doubtful about including the Burma Road, but otherwise agreed to the warning. However, he did not believe the warning should be a joint one. He thought that each of the three governments should give it independently and that the American warning should come first since he wanted to assure opinion in the United States that he was acting in the interest of American defense and not just following a British lead. FDR had not given up all hope of a temporary agreement with the Japanese. He led Halifax to believe that. Mr. Caruso had let him know indirectly that an approach to the emperor might still secure a truce and even lead to a settlement between Japan and China. Mr. Caruso's plan was that the president should try to act as an introducer between China and Japan with a view to their dealing directly with each other. Roosevelt suggested that the lines of settlement in such an agreement might be the withdrawal of the bulk of Japanese troops from Indochina and a similar withdrawal from North China on an agreed timetable. FDR also told Halifax that the Japanese would have to have some economic relief. Actually, he said, he did not put too much importance on Mr. Caruso's approach, but he could not miss even the chance of a settlement. Besides, FDR believed his own case that the U.S. was negotiating in sincerity with Japan would be strengthened if he had been in communication with the emperor. There was some danger, Halifax believed, in postponing the warning. He even suggested that the communication to the emperor might serve as a definite warning. The president agreed but said he would decide on December 6, after getting the Japanese reply to his inquiries concerning the Japanese troop movements, whether to approach the emperor. FDR told Halifax that he hoped that, if he did contact the emperor, the three-power warning might be postponed until he had had an answer. British forces in Southeast Asia told of promise U.S. armed support. On December 5 in Southeast Asia, December 4 in the United States, the Dominions received from the United Kingdom government information that it had received assurance of armed support for the United States, a. if Britain found it necessary either to forestall a Japanese landing in the Kra Isthmus or to occupy part of the Isthmus as a counter to Japanese violation of any other part of Thailand, b. if Japan attacked the Netherlands East Indies and Britain at once went to their support, c. if Japan attacked British territory. Sir Robert Brooke Popham, British Commander-in-Chief in the Far East stationed in Singapore, had finally received the authority he had been requesting. He was free to launch Matador, the operation intended to forestall a Japanese landing on the Kra Isthmus. However, London's instructions were worded in such a way as to require that he withhold any action until he was absolutely sure that a Japanese expedition was making for the Isthmus of Kra. Such a delay would mean that the chances of its, a British operation, succeeding were greatly reduced for it would be too late to take action. The volume of Japanese intercepts being decoded and translated in Washington during this time was almost overwhelming. The purpose of such cryptanalysis is, of course, to use the intelligence effectively to gain an advantage over one's adversaries. The record reveals that our cryptanalysts and translators were doing a remarkable job. They were intercepting, decoding, translating, and disseminating promptly countless Japanese messages. Thus, a great deal of information was coming into Washington. However, precious little intelligence was going out to the men in the field who might have been able to use it. Chapter 11, Further Indications of Impending Japanese Action Tokyo, 
utterly impossible for Japan to accept U.S. terms. Page 1 of the New York Times reported on December 5 that Tokyo was struck as by a bombshell with the revelation of the substance of the Japanese-American negotiations. Japan's government-controlled news agency, Domei, had announced it is utterly impossible for Japan to accept the stipulations of the American document, presented to the two Japanese ambassadors on November 26 by Secretary of State Hall. Domei was owned by the Japanese government and carefully controlled by the Japanese government. Any Domei report was simply what the Japanese government wanted to have passed on to the public. The terms of the U.S. document were not reported. However, according to the story, a lively debate had taken place the day before at a session of the entire Japanese Privy Council. Furthermore, Domei asserted the document cannot serve as a basis of Japanese-American negotiations henceforth. Hull's statement means that the United States is still scheming to impose on Japan the provisions of old and obsolete principles which are incompatible with the actual Far Eastern conditions, even of bygone days. Japanese Expeditionary Force in the Southwest Pacific The Dutch and British with possessions in the Southwest Pacific were concerned that huge concentrations of Japanese forces were assembling and apparently preparing to move in their direction. The commander-in-chief of all Dutch naval forces, stationed in London since the German invasion of the Netherlands in May 1940, had received information that the Japanese were concentrating an expeditionary force in the Palau, Palau Islands, in the Carolines, only about 600 miles northwest of Dutch New Guinea. The Dutch in London conferred with Anthony Eden, Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. They were seeking some type of a joint declaration of a defense zone by the United States or Great Britain, to assist their defense against the Japanese. Eden cabled Lord Halifax, the British ambassador in Washington, setting forth the British view that the time has now come for immediate cooperation with the Dutch East Indies by mutual understanding. This, of course, relates to the matter of defense against Japan. Halifax asked to see Secretary of State Hull, and he called at Hull's apartment on the morning of December 5 to discuss Eden's cable. Tokyo replies to FDR concerning Japanese troops in Indochina. On December 5, the two Japanese ambassadors called at the State Department to present formally the Japanese government's answer to FDR's question with regard to the reported movements of Japanese troops in French Indochina. The two men handed Hull the Japanese government's reply. It was short. The ambassadors waited while the secretary read. Chinese troops have recently shown frequent signs of movements along the northern frontier of French Indochina bordering on China. Hence, Japanese troops have been reinforced to a certain extent in the northern part of French Indochina for the principal purpose of taking precautionary measures. As a result, some Japanese troop movements have been carried out in southern Indochina, and apparently, an exaggerated report has been made of these movements. However, the Japanese government said no measure has been taken on the part of the Japanese government that may transgress the stipulations of the protocol of joint defense between Japan and France. When Hull had finished reading, he asked the ambassadors whether the Japanese considered that the Chinese were liable to attack them in Indochina. He said the Chinese contended they were massing troops in Yunnan, a province of China on the northern border of Indochina, in answer to Japan's massing troops in Indochina. Ambassador Nomura said that, as the Chinese were eager to defend the Burma Road, the possibility of a Chinese attack in Indochina as a means of preventing Japan's attacking the Burma Road from Indochina could not be excluded. Paul responded that he had never heard before that Japan's troop movements into northern Indochina were for the purpose of defense against Chinese attack. 
This was the first time that he knew that Japan was on the defensive in Indochina. Paul sounded sarcastic. The ambassador said the Japanese were alarmed over increasing naval and military preparations of the ABCD powers in the Southwest Pacific area. They said that an airplane of one of those countries had recently flown over Formosa, then Japanese territory. Nevertheless, Karusu said the Japanese government was very anxious to reach an agreement with this U.S. government, and it felt we should be willing to agree to discontinue aid to China as soon as conversations between China and Japan were initiated. Paul countered by bringing up the aid Japan was giving Hitler. Karusu asked, in what way was Japan aiding Hitler? Paul replied, by keeping large forces of this country and other countries immobilized in the Pacific area. At this point, the Japanese ambassador said under his breath, this isn't getting us anywhere. Nevertheless, the conversation continued. The secretary and the two ambassadors recapitulated their respective positions more or less as they had done many times before with respect to USA to China, the presence of Japanese troops in Indochina, Japan's desire for oil, and the attitude of the United States towards supplying that oil. Paul criticized Japan's bellicose slogans and the malignant campaign conducted in Japan through the officially controlled and inspired press which created an atmosphere not conducive to peace. Karusu pointed out that, on the American side, we were not free from injurious newspaper propaganda. One press report had cast aspersions on him personally, saying he had been sent there to check on Nomura. Paul replied that he had only heard good reports in regards to Mr. Karusu and the ambassador. In spite of the formal pleasantry, the Japanese ambassador's sotte voce remark had been correct. The discussions weren't getting anywhere. The two ambassadors made the usual apologies for taking so much of the secretary's time and withdrew. FDR and Stimson denounced for lack of patriotism those who leaked U.S. war plans. The December 4 Chicago Tribune story on FDR's war plan had aroused the country. At a White House press conference the next day, Roosevelt parried questions of reporters and referred them to Secretary of War Stimson. Almost 200 newspaper correspondents immediately flocked to his, Stimson's, press conference. After reading a short statement, Stimson asked the reporters, What would you think of an American general staff, which in the present condition of the world, did not investigate and study every conceivable type of emergency which may confront this country, and every possible method of meeting that emergency? He questioned the patriotism of the person or newspaper that would publish confidential studies and make them available to our enemies. The newspaper report was about an unfinished study that had never constituted an authorized program of the government. Stimson continued, While their publication will doubtless be of gratification to our potential enemies and a possible source of impairment and embarrassment to our national defense, the chief evil of their publication is the revelation that there should be among us any group of persons so lacking in appreciation of the danger that confronts the country. He denounced those who were so wanting in loyalty and patriotism to their government that they would be willing to take and publish such papers. Stimson declined to answer questions or enlarge upon it, but indicated that more would be announced after he had completed the task of finding out how the leak occurred. Japan anticipates a break with England and the United States. On December 3, the Japanese ambassadors in Washington notified Tokyo by cable, which we decoded and translated on December 5 that the indications were that some joint military action between Great Britain and the United States, with or without a declaration of war, is a definite certainty in the event of an occupation by Japan of Thailand. 
Also, on December 5, we read a December 1 message from Tokyo to the Japanese Embassy in London. Please discontinue the use of your code machine and dispose of it immediately. To acknowledge receipt of these instructions, the embassy was to cable Tokyo, in plain language, the one word, Setuju. When the code machine had actually been destroyed, the embassy was to wire Tokyo, also in plain language, Hasso. Thus, communications and code between the embassy in London and Tokyo were being shut down. Some in U.S. intelligence realized that this was what Japan had been preparing for when it set up the WINS code. Radio reception in those days was not reliable. Routine Japanese news and weather broadcasts, into which Japan inserted the special weather words, with their secret meanings, could not usually be heard in the country surrounding the Pacific. But due to freak atmospheric conditions, they could be heard in the North Atlantic Ocean, the British Isles, and Western Europe. Thus, the primary reason for sending the winds execute must have been to notify the Japanese ambassador in London, after his code machine had been disposed of, that war with England and the United States was coming. This was the only way that Tokyo could get news to him secretly. That same day, we intercepted a December 4 cable from the Japanese ambassador in Berlin to Tokyo. Berlin was asking Tokyo to arrange, in case of evacuation from London, for the transfer to Berlin of certain embassy personnel. Why would the Japanese ambassador in Berlin anticipate the evacuation of the Japanese embassy in London, unless he expected Japan and Great Britain soon to be at war with each other? Confirmation from Batavia, NEI, of Significance of Japan's Winds Code The naval attaché in Batavia, Netherlands East Indies, also picked up the Japanese Winds Code setup message and notified Washington deferred priority on December 4, 6.21 a.m. Greenwich time. December 4, 1.21 a.m. Washington time. The attaché advised the United States that Japan will notify her consuls of war decision in her foreign broadcasts as weather report at end, italics added. Then, the cable quoted the special weather words, each with its hidden meaning. The winds execute, picked up in Cheltenham, Maryland on December 4, was open to several interpretations. It could have indicated simply that Japanese relations with the nations mentioned would be in danger, that Japanese negotiations would be discontinued, that diplomatic relations would be broken off, or that actual war was imminent. Thus, Batavia's explicit interpretation that the transmission of a wins execute would forebode war lend credence to Safford's and Kramer's interpretation that it was actually a portent of war. However, since the cable from Batavia had not been classified urgent, it was not decrypted immediately, but held for the December 4th through 5th night shift of Army's G2 Intelligence Division. When we finally read it on the morning of December 5, it was old hat, for we had already picked up the winds execute. The Navy's December View of the U.S.-Japanese Situation When Navy Director of War Plans Turner heard from Admiral Noyes that a winds execute referring to a break in U.S.-Japanese relations, had been received. He assumed Kimmel in Pearl Harbor had it. At a December 5 meeting, three top Washington Navy officials, Chief of Naval Operations Stark, Assistant Chief Ingersoll, and Turner, concluded that all necessary orders had been issued to all echelons of command preparatory to war and that nothing further was necessary. Chapter 12, December 6, Part 1 Collecting Intelligence and Determining Policy With the perspective of hindsight, it is easy to spot the significant clues that should have given warning that the Japanese might attack Pearl Harbor. Out of fairness to the participants in the drama that was unfolding in 1941, however, we should keep in mind the situation as it appeared to them. 
A massive information was coming into Washington in many forms from all over the world. Bits and pieces of information came from various sources, from diplomatic contacts, from cable intercepts, including magic, from our military and naval attaches, from direct observations, overflights, radio direction findings, and so on. Much of it was not in English, and much of this foreign language material was in code as well. We were able to decode, translate, and read a great deal of that, although not all quite promptly. The coded cable traffic alone was extremely heavy. Thus, the amount of this material that was available toward the end of 1941 was almost overwhelming. Many persons, each with his or her own expertise, played a role in the process of collecting the raw data that go to provide intelligence. There were code specialists, communication specialists, security specialists, decoders, translators, and couriers. There were code clerks who listened to foreign radio broadcasts and could decipher Morse code, linguists familiar with Japanese, and radio technicians who could determine the location of naval vessels and military units by intersecting radio beacons. There were others at our various stations all over the world who picked cable intercepts out of the air and transmitted them to Washington. Each was familiar with only a small part of the total picture. No single person had access to all this information. Few of the many specialists were sufficiently aware of the broad picture to be able to comprehend the significance of the data they accumulated. And no one had any reason to feel a sense of urgency because no one knew what was going to happen on December 7. The responsibility for collecting, analyzing, disseminating, and employing information was divided among various offices and divisions of the military and the administration, each with its own specialized experts. Roughly speaking, data was collected by technical personnel and communications. Raw data was then integrated and analyzed by specialists in intelligence offices or divisions, persons who had the training, experience, background, and knowledge of policy sufficient to sift the wheat from the chaff, to recognize what was pertinent and what was not, to analyze and interpret it, and to decide what information should be disseminated and to whom. These intelligence specialists needed to understand not only military operations, the defensive and offensive capabilities of our forces and of our potential allies and enemies, but also the diplomatic situation and government policy. Once the raw data collected was converted into intelligence, other specialists were responsible for disseminating it and issuing commands to the field commanders. This responsibility was usually in the hands of war plans or operations divisions. Final policy decisions were then made on the basis of the diplomatic and political situation by the government's administrative officials, the president and his cabinet, after taking into consideration the advice of the Army's chief of staff and the chief of naval operations. The various specialists cooperated, but at the same time they were protective of the prerogatives of their own office or division and anxious to prevent outsiders from invading their department's turf. Thus, the jurisdiction of each office or division was carefully prescribed. To avoid conflict, each was careful to follow channels. Communications collected data. Intelligence analyzed and interpreted it. Orders to field officers in line with the administration's policies went out from war plans or operations. Although the system usually functioned smoothly, its operation was sometimes disturbed as changes were made in procedure and personnel. In the Army, the Signal Intelligence Service, SIS, collected information and transmitted it to Army Intelligence, G2. The War Plans Division, G5, formulated plans under the direction of the Army Chief of Staff, ACS. The President, the Commander-in-Chief, was responsible for overall policy but orders to the field were issued by the Chief of Staff, the immediate advisor of the Secretary of War, and the Commanding General of the Field Forces. 
In the Navy, the Office of Naval Communications collected data. Traditionally, the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, had had the responsibility for collating, analyzing, and disseminating this information to officers in the field. However, when Rear Admiral Theodore S. Wilkinson became director of ONI on October 15, 1941, he found that it had been reduced to a fact-gathering agency, and the Navy's War Plans Division had assumed the responsibility for analyzing the information that came in. The Navy's top officer, the Chief of Naval Operations, CNO, was responsible for keeping the Navy's Commander-in-Chief, the President, informed. And orders to the Navy's field commanders were sent out by the CNO. Step-by-step step, as data journeyed through channels from the technical specialists who collected it to the officers with training and experience who interpreted it, it became meaningful intelligence. Intelligence formed an extremely important component of the total 1941 picture. The Army's Chief of Staff, General Marshall, and the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Stark, relied on the available intelligence when advising their field commanders on military strategy. The top administration officials, that is, the Secretaries of State, War, Navy, and the President himself, also strove to keep abreast of current intelligence. In 1941, this meant keeping up to date on the Japanese position through the diplomatic cables and other sources. In the course of assembling, interpreting, and analyzing the data available, the most important intelligence was channeled to the men at the top. Even though each technical specialist involved in the complicated procedure was familiar with only a small segment of the total picture, the president and his top civilian and military advisors, who had the final responsibility for the common defense of the nation and for resolving diplomatic and political differences, had a bird's-eye view of the overall situation. They were also provided with the country's most perceptive military advice. By December 6, they were well aware, as a result of their access to magic and other sources, that a clash with Japan was at hand. Their constitutional responsibility for national defense obligated them to protect this country and its citizens and to see to it that, insofar as possible, U.S. forces wherever stationed were properly provisioned, prepared, and alerted. Their constitutional responsibility did not call for inviting foreign intervention or defending other nations. Pilot Message Alerts Washington to Expect Japan's Reply to U.S. Ultimatum Ever since November 26, when Washington officialdom had rejected the Japanese proposal for a modus vivendi, we had been anxiously awaiting Tokyo's reply. We knew from reading cable intercepts that the Japanese considered our statement humiliating and that relations between our two countries were considered to be de facto ruptured. It was clear to us that U.S.-Japanese relations were at an impasse, but we had also read their government's instructions to the two Japanese ambassadors to keep on talking and not to give the impression that the negotiations are broken off. So we knew their interest in continuing to meet with Secretary of State Hall was merely for the sake of appearances. It did not mean a change in their deadline. On Friday, December 5, Rear Admiral Theodore S. Wilkinson, Director of the Office of Naval Intelligence, had set up a 24-hour watch in the Far Eastern Section and had established a watch of the senior officers of the department. According to Navy Captain William A. Hurd, then in charge of the Foreign Branch, Office of Naval Intelligence, there was an elaborate arrangement for prompt notification to the Director of Naval Intelligence of any matter of interest to him. Captain Hurd had personally arranged for a special weekend telephone line between the Office of Naval Intelligence and the State Department, which included my, Hurd's, telephone communication 
with both military intelligence and with the State Department. On Saturday, December 6, at 7.15 a.m. Washington, D.C. time, the Navy's intercept station on Bainbridge Island, Washington State, across the Puget Sound from Seattle, started picking up a message in purple addressed to the Japanese ambassadors in Washington. This coded message was relayed almost immediately, as was customary by TWX, Teletype Wire Exchange, along with other messages that had been intercepted that morning to Washington, D.C. It was received in Washington that same day at 12.05 p.m. Until a message had been decoded and translated, there was no way, of course, to know if it was important. Army and Navy had only just, on December 1, worked out an arrangement to share responsibility for handling the heavy traffic of Japanese intercepts. The Army had the responsibility for decoding and translating on even number dates, the Navy on uneven number dates. December 6 was an Army day, so when this message from Bainbridge came in, the Navy relayed it to the Army's SIS and an Army cryptographic unit went to work right away. That was fortunate, for this message proved to be Tokyo's announcement to her two Washington ambassadors that Japan's formal reply to the U.S. note of November 26 was on its way. This message came to be known among those familiar with magic as the pilot message. By 2 o'clock, it had been decoded, translated, and typed up in finished form by the SIS men. Presumably, the Japanese code clerks in their embassy were decoding and typing the same message at the same time as were our army decoders. This pilot message stated that the Japanese government had deliberated deeply with respect to the U.S. note and had drawn up a long 14-part memorandum that would be sent to the ambassador separately. The reply would be transmitted in English, so it would only have to be decoded before it could be submitted to Hull. The situation was extremely delicate, Tokyo warned. When the ambassadors received the long memorandum, they should keep it secret for the time being. They would be wired special instructions separately concerning the time of presenting this memorandum to the United States. Around 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon, as soon as the pilot message was ready, SIS sent it to the Military Intelligence Division of the War Department's General Staff. From Military Intelligence, it was distributed at about 3 o'clock, either by Colonel Rufus S. Bratton, then Chief of Military Division's Far Eastern Section, or by one of his assistants to the Army's list of recipients, Hull, Stimson, Marshall, and Chief of War Plans Division, Leonard T. Garrow, G-2. The Navy carrier responsible for delivering Japanese intercepts to the White House and the others on the Navy's list was Lieutenant Commander A.D. Kramer. The White House was usually first on Kramer's list, and apparently Admiral Beardall, Navy aide to the President at the White House, received the pilot message at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, shortly before leaving his office for the evening. Admiral Wilkinson, Director of Naval Intelligence, was planning a party that Saturday evening for some of his fellow staff officers, and he said he received the message in his office at about 6 p.m., just before he left for home. After reading the pilot's message, the top officers in the administration, Army and Navy, anxiously awaited the 14-part Japanese reply. Watching for the long Japanese memorandum was given top priority. Since FDR's naval aide Beardall had plans for the evening, he arranged for a communication watch officer, Lieutenant Schultz, to stand by at the White House to deliver to the President any message that might come in during the evening. The first part of Japan's 14-part English-language message, heralded by the pilot message, began to come into Washington during the afternoon of December 6, and then the decoding began. 
U.S. overflights cite Japanese convoys in South China Sea heading toward Malaya. The steady stream of Japanese messages we were intercepting gave us substantial insight into the deliberations of the Japanese government. However, these intercepts were not our only source of information about their activities. Planes from Manila conducted reconnaissance flights on a regular basis over the South China Sea and reported on Japanese movements at sea. A December 6 cable from Admiral Hart, Commander-in-Chief of the Asiatic Fleet in the Philippines, was received in the Navy Department in Washington at about 8 a.m. that same morning. It reported that two Japanese convoys consisting of 35 ships escorted by eight cruisers and 20 destroyers had been sighted south of Indochina heading toward Malaya. These convoys were dangerously close to the line drawn by the ADB powers, American, Dutch, British, and designated in their secret April 1941 Singapore meeting as the limit beyond which the Japanese could not advance without inviting active military counteraction. Both convoys were south of the southern tip of French Indochina, so they had already crossed latitude 10 degrees north. Since they were heading west towards the Isthmus of Kra and had arrived at longitudes 106.20 degrees east and 105 degrees east, they were expected soon to pass the critical north-south line, 100 degrees east. Hart's message also reported 30 ships and one large cruiser sighted by his scouting force anchored in Kamran Bay off the southeast coast of Indochina, a couple of hundred miles north of Saigon, since renamed Ho Chi Minh City. Shortly after Hart's cable reached the Navy Department, the State Department received a message from U.S. Ambassador John G. Winnett in London confirming that these convoys were converging on waters the ADB powers considered inviolable. It was not clear, however, just where they were headed. The British Undersecretary of Foreign Affairs, Sir Alexander Cadogan, was uncertain as to whether destination of parties is Kra, Malaya, or Bangkok, Thailand. But there could be no doubt that Japanese ships and troops were moving into position for some operation in the vicinity of the Malaysian Peninsula and or the Dutch East Indies. The Dutch were much alarmed at the proximity of such large concentrations of Japanese troops. On December 5, U.S. military attaché Merle Smith in Australia had sent information about these convoys to General MacArthur in the Philippines and to General Short in Hawaii. The fact that Japanese troops were on the move in the Southwest Pacific was taken as confirmation in Hawaii of the word they had received from Washington, that the immediate threat of a Japanese strike was to Southeast Asia. Intercepted messages from Italy, Japanese Embassy, Washington, Tokyo, indicate war is imminent. In Europe, the three Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan, were following the diplomatic events unfolding in Washington. We learned on December 6 that Premier Benito Mussolini had told the Japanese ambassador to Italy that he had been carefully watching the progress of the Japanese-U.S. talks. Mussolini charged the United States with utter bullheadedness and FDR with being of a meddlesome nature. Mussolini told the ambassador that he was in complete sympathy with Japan's desire to create a new order in East Asia. The ambassador then asked, should Japan declare war on the United States and Great Britain? Would Italy do likewise immediately? Mussolini replied, of course. A December 5 message addressed to the Japanese ambassadors in Washington from Tokyo, also decoded and translated in Washington on December 6, provided one more clue to Japan's intentions. This cable was short. Will you please have Terasaki, Takagi, Ando, Yamamoto, and others leave by plane within the next couple of days?
When delivered to the Navy recipients of magic, a penciled footnote identified Terasaki, second secretary in the Japanese embassy, as head of Japanese espionage in Western Hemisphere. He and his assistants, the note read, are being sent to South America. Also on December 6, we translated two other purple messages dealing with the destruction of codes at the Japanese embassy in Washington. One message from the embassy in Washington advised Tokyo that the codes had been destroyed but requested permission, since the U.S.-Japanese negotiations are still continuing, to delay the destruction of the one-code machine. The wire from Tokyo explained that the embassy was to burn one set of code machines but, for the time being, to continue the use of the other. That same afternoon, we intercepted and decrypted another short Japanese message from Tokyo, reminding the embassy in Washington of the importance of preserving secrecy with respect to the aid memoir, the 14-part reply to our note of November 26. Be absolutely sure not to use a typist or any other person in its preparation. Still another significant Japanese intercept from Honolulu to Tokyo was read that day. This message, transmitted in a code not yet decrypted, had been picked up in San Francisco on November 18, and airmailed to the SIS in Washington on or about November 21. It could be decoded and translated only after the cipher was solved on or about December 3, but it was available to our people in Washington on December 6. This intercept reported movements of U.S. naval ships in and out of Pearl Harbor. No hint of its contents or of its existence was relayed to the commanders there. Japanese offices worldwide acknowledge code destruct order. Japanese diplomatic offices all around the world seem to be preparing for an emergency. On December 3, we had translated a Tokyo message to the Japanese embassy in Washington, ordering them to destroy all but one code machine and to burn all codes but the one used with the surviving machine. When this had been done, the embassy was to cable one word to Tokyo, Haruna. On delivering this intercept to FDR, his naval aide Beardall called it to FDR's attention. The president read it and asked, well, when do you think it will happen? In other words, when did he expect war to break out? Beardall replied, most any time. On receipt of this intercept, a young officer at Colonel Bratton's request went by the Japanese embassy in Washington during the night. He saw officials of the Japanese embassy actually burning their codebook in ciphers. On December 6, the Office of Naval Intelligence learned about this and reported to military intelligence that the embassy had complied with the Tokyo order to destroy its codes. Also, on December 3, SIS began picking the word Haruna in messages being transmitted by the Japanese consuls in New York, New Orleans, and Havana. Its significance may not have been fully appreciated at the time, for the cable directing the Japanese embassy in Washington to cable Haruna to Tokyo after destroying their codes and code machines had only been intercepted, decoded, and translated that very day. The next day, we intercepted transmissions of Haruna from Portland and Panama. On December 5, the Japanese consuls in Hollywood, Seattle, and Vancouver, Canada also cabled Tokyo Haruna. Ottawa did the same the following day. Security of U.S. Communications in Pacific in Jeopardy In compliance with U.S. Pacific Fleet Operating Plan Rainbow No. 5, Admiral Kimmel had sent reinforcements to the Mid-Pacific Islands under his command, Wake, 1,994 miles west of Pearl Harbor, and Guam, located 1,334 miles farther out in the midst of the Japanese-mandated islands, 3,340 miles west of Pearl Harbor. 
In Washington, toward the end of the office day on December 5, one of the women employed in the registered publications section realized that the forces which had gone to wake had taken with them a lot of registered publications. Captain Safford, who was in charge of the security section of the Navy's communications division, had warned Guam the day before to destroy all secret and classified publications and other classified matter. Safford now became concerned about Wake. He asked the persons in the registered publication section to make a complete inventory of the sensitive materials there. One or two officers and a couple of civilians in the section worked on the assignment until about one o'clock in the morning. The next morning, they gave Safford an inventory of 150 different registered publications on that little island where, you see, they had almost nothing in the way of defense. And at the time, in Safford's view, war was right around the corner. As communications officer, Safford was responsible for safeguarding the security of our lines of communications. Intelligence was not within his purview. He could not convey to the field his judgment that war was right around the corner. However, the safety of the registered publications on Wake, under the jurisdiction of the Pacific Fleet, was one of his responsibilities. Therefore, Safford drafted a message for the fleet's commander-in-chief, Kimmel, and for the information of the senior officers on Wake. In view of imminence of war, it read, they were to destroy all registered publications except this system and current editions of aircraft code and direction finder code. Before such a message could go out, it had to be approved by Safford's superior, Admiral Noyes, Director of Naval Communications. So Safford took his draft to Noyes. Noyes says, what do you mean by using such language as that? Safford replies, Admiral, the war is just a matter of days, if not of hours. Noyes, you may think there is going to be a war, but I think they are bluffing. Safford replies, well, Admiral, if all these publications on Wake are captured, we will never be able to explain it. Noyes then rewrote the message and left out any reference to Wake Island or the 150 publications exposed to capture, which included all our reserve publications for the next six months. The message, as it was actually released, addressed to Kimmel under date of December 6 for transmission to Wake, read as follows. In view of the international situation and the exposed position of the outlying Pacific Islands, you may authorize the destruction by them of secret and confidential documents now or under later conditions of greater emergency. This ambiguous message was released by Assistant Chief of Naval Operations Ingersoll and sent to Kimmel at Pearl Harbor, who still had to relay it to Wake. Moreover, it was sent deferred precedence, which meant delivery by 9 o'clock on Monday morning, December 8, 1941. British and Dutch on the Key Vive in Southeast Pacific. By November 29, Singapore had begun to go on the alert. All troops away from barracks had been ordered back. British Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham had ordered the second degree of readiness and the volunteers were being mobilized. Soon troops were recalled from leave and other precautions were taken, including the rounding up of Japanese civilians. All Singapore was on the Key Vive. More ships than usual were on the move. Troops were being recalled to duty. Our naval observer in Singapore, Captain John M. Creighton, was busy shuttling back and forth between his two offices, 18 miles apart. He wanted to be physically acquainted with the dockyard so that, if contingents of our fleet came there, he could guide them to all the shops and arrange for them to get repairs on guns, batteries, or anything else. He was also busy routing American merchant ships in that area, and he frequently had to arrange special passes for the many American visitors arriving at the airports with dispatches, money, and sometimes pistols, 
which were not always allowed into the country. A report reached Singapore during the night of December 4 or 5 that a pilot of the British reconnaissance airplane flying from a certain point northeast of Malaya on a regular patrol up towards Siam in the late afternoon had encountered a large Japanese convoy of what looked to him like transports, several old battleships, an aircraft carrier, and attendant destroyers. They were already south and west of Indochina and were headed west and almost south of the south point of Siam. When he went closer in his plane to observe them, Japanese fighter planes came up off the deck of the carrier and went straight at him, making it perfectly evident that they would keep him from approaching the convoy. It was presumed that, after nightfall, they would either continue west to the Kra Peninsula, north of Malaya, or shift northwest toward Bangkok, toward which many threats had been made recently. Two big British ships, Repulse, a battle cruiser, and Prince of Wales, a battleship that was undergoing repairs so as to be ready for sea duty once more had been sent out to Singapore. Admiral Sir Tom Phillips, recently appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Eastern Fleet, had arrived there ahead of the ships and had flown on December 4 to Manila for a conference with Admiral Hart. Their talks ended abruptly with the news of the large Japanese convoy on its way from Kamran Bay toward the Gulf of Siam. As Phillips was leaving for Singapore, Hart told him that he had just ordered four of his destroyers, then at Balikpapan, Borneo, to join Phillips' force. Phillips arrived back in Singapore on the morning of December 7, December 6, Washington time. The entire region was on alert because of the movement of Japanese task forces southward and possibly into the China Sea. A conference was called in Australia early in December by Air Chief Marshal Sir Charles Burnett. Chief of Staff of the Royal Australian Air Force. In attendance were representatives of the British, Dutch, and American governments. Colonel Van S. Merle Smith, U.S. military attaché at the legation in Melbourne. Commander Salm, the Dutch Indies Naval Liaison Officer to the Australian government. Lieutenant Robert H. O'Dell, then Assistant Military Attaché in Australia. And Air Commander Hewitt, the Royal Australian Air Force Intelligence Officer, who came and went during the conference. Upon learning of Japanese naval movements out of Palau, one of the Caroline Islands less than 600 miles north of the Dutch East Indies, the Netherlands Far East Command had ordered on December 6 the execution of Mobilization Plan A-2. War Plan A-2 was a mutual agreement among Britain, Holland, the Indies, America, and Australia in line with the ADB conversations at Singapore in the spring of 1941. The Australians had offered to furnish some aircraft to the Dutch, but then planes reached Kaupang on the island of Dutch Timor, and the Netherlands Command did not consider Australian air assistance necessary. However, the Australian Air Corps chief decided to go ahead just the same and furnish the Dutch with aircraft as planned. With respect to Thailand, or Siam, the situation was complicated. The Thai Prime Minister, who expected an attack within the next few days, asked on December 5 for an immediate declaration from the British, that they should go to war with Japan if the latter attacked Thailand. Churchill proposed to send the Thai Prime Minister a message telling the Thais to defend themselves if attacked and promising to come to their aid. Sometime during the day, December 6, Britain's ambassador in Washington, Lord Halifax, got in touch with Roosevelt to tell him of Churchill's intentions to contact the Thais. The president agreed with the Churchill proposal, subject to a change in wording, and said that he, FDR, intended to send a similar message. Mr. Churchill accepted the President's formula and sent his, Churchill's, message on the night of December 6 and 7. 
Admiral Hart, Manila, learns of U.S. commitment of armed support to British and Dutch in Southeast Asia. In Singapore, Captain Creighton learned that the United States was committed to lend armed support to the British or Dutch in the event that the Japanese attacked in that part of the world. He so wired Hart at 10.26 a.m. on December 6. Creighton reported to Hart that Brooke Popham, commander of the Royal Air Force in Malaya and of the British Army Forces, had been advised on Saturday by the War Department in London that they had now received assurance of American armed support in three eventualities. Number one, if the British were obliged to forestall a Japanese landing on the Isthmus of Kra, Malayan Peninsula, or on any other part of Siam. Number two, if the Dutch Indies were attacked and the British went to their defense. Or three, if the Japanese attacked the British. Moreover, Brooke Popham could put plan in action without reference to London if you, Brooke Popham, have good info Jap expedition advancing with apparent intention of landing in Kra. Second, if the Nips violate any part of Thailand. Also, if the Netherlands East Indies were attacked, he should put into operation the British-Dutch plans agreed upon. Hart was dumbfounded at the news that the British had been assured of American armed support. He had just agreed to send four of his destroyers to join Philip's force. However, this news from Singapore was apparently Hart's first intimation that the United States had a definite commitment to support the British or Dutch militarily if the Japanese should attack either of them at Thailand, the Isthmus of Kra, or the Netherlands East Indies. Any such commitment would necessarily involve the Asiatic fleet under his command. Hart wired Washington for instructions. Chapter 13, December 6, Part 2 First 13 Parts of Japan's Reply to U.S. Note of November 26 U.S. officials assumed the Japanese government had not been bluffing when it wired its ambassadors in Washington setting a deadline after which things were automatically going to happen if they could not reach agreement in their negotiations with the United States by November 29. Thus, special arrangements had been made to assure that our top officials in Washington would receive promptly whatever reply the Japanese might make to our November 26 note, the so-called ultimatum. The Director of Naval Intelligence was to be notified immediately. A special weekend phone line connected Naval Intelligence and the State Department, and a special Deputy Communication Watch officer was assigned duty at the White House on the evening of December 6. The pilot message advising the Japanese ambassadors in Washington to expect their government's reply to the U.S. note shortly had been intercepted, decoded, translated, and delivered Saturday afternoon, December 6. After Commander Kramer delivered it to the Navy personnel on his list, by then it was mid-afternoon, he stopped by the Navy Department to make a final check with a teletype watch to see whether there was anything apparently hot coming in. In view of other developments that we, the United States, had seen taking place in the diplomatic traffic, and otherwise it was apparent things were shaping up to some sort of a crisis. Japan's 14-part English-language reply to the U.S. ultimatum began to come in at Bainbridge Intercept Station on the West Coast very early Saturday morning, December 6. The first part reached there at 5.03 a.m., 8.03 a.m. Washington, D.C. time. From then until 8.52 a.m., 11.52 a.m. Washington, D.C. time, when the 13th part came in, Bainbridge was busy intercepting and relaying the messages by teletype, still in code, to Washington, D.C. The first 13 parts had all been received in Washington, D.C. by 2.51 p.m. on December 6. Part 14 did not come in until more than 12 hours later. 
1941, before the attack on Pearl Harbor, most government offices closed down at noon on Saturdays. The War Department cryptographic unit at that time was observing normal office hours and secured from work at noon on Saturday, December 6, 1941, with the intention of doing no work until 8 on Monday, December 8, 1941. Therefore, just past noon after decoding the pilot message, the Army closed up shop for the weekend. The Navy Department was operating on a different schedule. To keep in touch with developments, Admiral Wilkinson, Chief of the Office of Naval Intelligence, had set up a 24-hour watch in the far eastern section alone. When it appeared that the Japanese advance in the China Sea was becoming more and more critical, he had established a watch of the senior officers of the department, the heads of the branches, and the assistant director, so that responsible officers were on duty in rotation to cover the 24 hours each day. Admiral Beardall himself, the president's naval aide, was on call. So was Captain Kramer. Therefore, the Navy decoders and translators were on duty that Saturday afternoon, even though this work was an Army responsibility on even-numbered dates. When Kramer stopped in at the department at 3 o'clock on the 6th, the message was coming in, which turned out to be a part of the 14-part Japanese reply. The Japanese government was transmitting it in English so that their ambassadors in Washington would not have to translate it before submitting it to Secretary of State Hall. This made the task of the Navy cryptographers somewhat easier. But the message was in purple. It still had to be decoded. Kramer waited and held his team of translators. The Navy cryptographers turned to and began decoding and translating. However, they were soon swamped by the heavy workload. At about 3 p.m., they sent an urgent call to the Army for help and got some of the Army people back and they assisted the Navy throughout the night of December 6th in translating the very long and very important 14-part message. By 9 p.m., Saturday, the evening of the 6th of December, we had received, broken down, translated, and had typed ready for delivery 13 of those parts, several of them somewhat garbled. FDR tells Australian minister he plans to address Hirohito. Late in the afternoon of December 6, Australia's minister to the United States, Richard G. Casey, spoke with FDR. Roosevelt confided to Casey that he was planning to send a special message to Hirohito. If no answer was forthcoming by Monday evening, December 8, he intended to issue Japan another warning the following afternoon or evening, asking that it be followed by warnings from the British and others. Stimson requests inventory of U.S. ships around the world. While the cryptographers were busy decoding the 14-part Japanese message, War Department people, at Stimson's request, were trying to determine the location of U.S. ships around the world. At about 8 p.m. December 6, Major George L. Harrison, an aide to Stimson, phoned the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations, asking for the following information by 9 a.m. the next morning. Compilation of Men of War in Far East, British, American, Japanese, Dutch, Russian. Also compilation of American men of war in Pacific Fleet, with locations and a list of American men of war in the Atlantic without locations. Admirals Ingersoll, Stark, and the Secretary of the Navy were consulted, and the Secretary directed that the information be compiled and delivered to him, Stimson, prior to 1000, Sunday, 7 December. First 13 parts of Japanese reply delivered to FDR. Between October 1 and December 7, 1941, Kramer, attached to the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington, was on loan to OP-20G, Office of Naval Communications. He was a Japanese-language student and headed the translation section of the Communications Security Group, 
then made up of a staff of three civilian translators. Kramer reviewed their translations and did an occasional translation himself. He was also responsible for seeing that the decoded and translated intercepts were delivered to the authorized Navy personnel. As the volume of intercepts increased in the weeks before December 7, Kramer necessarily assumed more responsibility for organizing the intercepts with background material and assembling them for delivery. Before Beardall left for home at about 5.30 p.m. that Saturday afternoon, he turned over his post to the Special Deputy Communication Watch Officer, Lieutenant Lester Robert Schultz, on temporary assignment with the Office of Naval Communications. He told Schultz to remain there that night to receive a special message for the President. Schultz was to take it to Roosevelt immediately. When the first 13 parts of the 14-part answer were in clear form, typed up and ready for distribution, Kramer proceeded at once to the White House, left a folder with Beardall's aides Schultz, with that 13-part message and one or two others with rather emphatic instructions to get to the President as quickly as possible. Schultz immediately left with the locked pouch for the President's study. The President was entertaining at the moment. But when he learned the courier had arrived, he left his guests for his White House study. Schultz opened the pouch and personally handed the president the papers, perhaps 15 typewritten pages, clipped together, which included the first 13 parts of Japan's 14-part reply to our November 26 note. Schultz waited, perhaps 10 minutes, while the president read the papers. Then he, FDR, handed them to his friend and close associate, Mr. Harry Hopkins, who read them and returned them to the president. The president then turned toward Mr. Hopkins and said in substance, This means war. Mr. Hopkins agreed, and they discussed then, for perhaps five minutes, the situation of the Japanese forces, that is, their deployment. The Japanese had already landed in Indochina. Indochina was the only geographical location they mentioned. FDR and Hopkins speculated as to where the Japanese would move next. Neither mentioned Pearl Harbor, nor did they give any indication that tomorrow was necessarily the day, and there was no mention made of sending any further warning or alert. Since war was imminent, Hopkins ventured, since war was undoubtedly going to come at the convenience of the Japanese, it was too bad that we could not strike the first blow and prevent any sort of surprise. The president nodded, no, we can't do that. We are a democracy and a peaceful people. Then he raised his voice, but we have a good record. FDR implied we would have to stand on that record and we could not make the first overt move. We would have to wait until it came. Roosevelt went on to tell Hopkins that he had prepared a message for Hirohito, the Japanese emperor, concerning the presence of Japanese troops in Indochina, in effect requesting their withdrawal. FDR had not followed the usual procedure in sending this cable, he said. Rather than addressing it to Tojo as prime minister, FDR made a point of the fact that he had sent it to the emperor as chief of state. The president must have been thinking also about how he would describe the situation in the speech that had been prepared in the State Department for him to present to Congress if he did not receive a satisfactory reply from Hirohito. FDR tried, unsuccessfully, to phone Chief of Naval Operations Stark. When told Stark was at the theater, Roosevelt said he could reach Stark later and hung up. FDR then returned the papers to Schultz, who left. First 13 parts of Japan's long-awaited reply delivered to Navy and Army. After leaving the locked pouch with Schultz at the White House a little after 9 p.m., Kramer delivered the papers to Navy Secretary Knox at his Wardman Park apartment. After some discussion, Knox told Kramer there would be a meeting at the State Department at 10 o'clock the following morning Sunday. Knox wanted Kramer there with that material and anything else that had come in. 
Kramer then drove to Admiral Wilkinson's home in Arlington, Virginia, where Admiral Beardall and General Miles were having dinner. Beardall and Miles saw the papers then at Wilkinson's dinner party. Wilkinson asked Kramer to have the material plus anything new at the Navy Department the next morning. At about 11.30 p.m., Admiral Turner was rousted out of bed at his home to receive the 13-part message. A courier with the message called at Admiral Ingersoll's home at about midnight. After making his deliveries, Kramer checked in at the Navy Department about 12.30 a.m. to see if anything of importance had come in from Tokyo or Berlin. As nothing had, he went home. In any event, he was on tap any hour of the day and night by GY watch officers. Meanwhile, the Army courier, Colonel Rufus S. Bratton, distributed the locked pouch with the intercepts to Chief of Staff Marshal Secretary, Colonel Bedell Smith, announcing that it was an important document and that the Chief of Staff should know about it. Also, to General Garrow's Executive Officer, Colonel Gailey, and to the night duty officer in the State Department for delivery to Hull. FDR addresses Emperor Hirohito directly. According to Hull, on December 6, our government received from a number of sources reports of the movements of a Japanese fleet of 35 transports, 8 cruisers, and 20 destroyers from Indochina toward the Kra Peninsula. The critical character of this development, which placed the United States and its friends in common imminent danger, was very much in all our minds and was an important subject of my conference with representatives of the Army and Navy on that and the following day. Sometime during the day, December 6, Hall drafted and forwarded to the White House a message for FDR to send the Japanese emperor. Roosevelt had written a draft of his own and preferred it. After a few editorial changes by the State Department, to which FDR agreed, he sent the revised version to Hall with his handwritten OK. In his note to the emperor, the president said that recent developments in the Pacific area contained tragic possibilities. The president desired peace, he wrote, but during the past few weeks it has become clear to the world that Japanese military, naval, and air forces have been sent to southern Indochina in such large numbers as to create a reasonable doubt on the part of other nations that this continuing concentration in Indochina is not defensive in its character. It is clear that a continuance of such a situation is unthinkable. In his message, the president sought to assure Japan that there is absolutely no thought on the part of the United States of invading Indochina if every Japanese soldier or sailor were to be withdrawn therefrom. He continued, I think that we can obtain the same assurance from the governments of the East Indies, the governments of Malaya, and the government of Thailand. I would even undertake to ask for the same assurance on the part of the government of China. Thus, a withdrawal of the Japanese forces from Indochina would result in the assurance of peace throughout the whole of the South Pacific area. Roosevelt did not address Japan's economic problems, which had been aggravated by the U.S. embargoes barring her from world markets. Nor did FDR refer to the decades-long Russian-inspired conflict in Manchuria and China, the source of Japan's difficulties on the Asian mainland. And he offered no assurance that he could or would try to keep the Chinese from stirring up still more trouble. By this time, the American taxpayers were actually furnishing aid to the communist troublemakers in China and the communist forces fighting against Germany and Europe. The message for Emperor Hirohito was transmitted in our non-confidential code at that time, the Gray Code, which was perfectly open to anybody. It left Washington at 9 o'clock in the evening of December 6. Our ambassador in Japan, Joseph C. Grew, was instructed to communicate the president's message to the Japanese emperor in such manner as deemed most appropriate by the ambassador and at the earliest possible moment. A copy went also to Chiang Kai-shek in China. 
Roosevelt announced to the press and the world that he had sent a message of peace to the emperor. However, the text of his message was not released at the time. Saturday night, December 6 through 7 at the White House. A meeting of FDR's inner circle was held late Saturday night, a meeting which must have lasted from about midnight into the wee small hours of December 7. With the president on this occasion were Stark, Marshall, Knox, Stimson, and Hopkins. These five men spent most of the night at the White House with FDR, all waiting for what they knew was coming after those intercepts. As far as we know, no record was made of their conversation. In view of the intelligence they had been receiving of a massive buildup of Japanese forces in the Southwest Pacific, apparently headed for Thailand, Malaya, or British or Dutch territory, we can only imagine what they discussed. The six men in the White House that night must surely have speculated on how to respond if the Japanese attacked the Isthmus of Kra in Malaya, Thailand, the Dutch East Indies, or British Singapore. What action should the United States then take? What should FDR say to Congress? Should we go to the aid of the British and Dutch militarily, as FDR had promised British Ambassador Halifax? If we did, how would FDR and his associates justify to the American people this military intervention so far from the shores of continental United States? On the other hand, if the U.S. did not give the British and Dutch the armed support that they had been promised, how would the administration explain to them and to the world the failure of our president to honor an agreement he had made? With a crisis developing in Southeast Asia, it looked as if the United States was losing the opportunity to take the initiative, as Stimson had suggested a week earlier, namely to maneuver them, the Japanese, into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Of course, it was still possible that the three small vessels outfitted, as FDR had directed, as minimal U.S. men of war, might get to sea before a Japanese strike. If they did sail in time and arrive at the paths of the Japanese convoys, they could still provoke an incident without too much danger to ourselves. But events were crowding in around us, thick and fast. Chapter 14, The Morning of the Faithful Day New York Times, December 7, 1941 reports, Navy Secretary Knox says, U.S. Navy superior to any. While the authorities in Washington had been deeply concerned for months behind the scenes with the significance of the Japanese intercepts being decoded daily by U.S. Army and Navy cryptographers, they were also sensitive to public opinion, especially so since the leak on December 4 of the government's secret war plans. On December 6, Secretary of Navy Knox released the July 1, 1940 to June 10, 1941 annual report of the Navy Department, which included a statement on the current state of the Navy and its enlargement on a basis indicated by operations in the last fiscal year. The New York Times headlined its page one announcement of this Navy report on Sunday, December 7, 1941, Navy is superior to any, says Knox. According to the news report, the United States Navy, now in the midst of a record expansion program and recently placed on a war footing with full personnel manning the ships of three fleets, has at this time no superior in the world. On any comparable basis, the United States Navy is second to none. Knox was proud to report that the American people may feel fully confident in their Navy. In view of the uncertain international situation, our aim must always be to have forces sufficient to enable us to have complete freedom of action in either ocean while retaining forces in the other ocean for effective defense of our vital security. Anything less than this strength is hazardous to the security of the nation and must be considered as unacceptable as long as it is within our power to produce and man the forces necessary to meet these requirements. 
In substance, the department's report announced that the U.S. Navy was second to none and that it was capable of operating in both the Atlantic and Pacific. Moreover, it was being further strengthened and expanded. Thus, the public was assured on the morning of December 7, 1941, that the U.S. Navy constituted an effective and reliable arm of our national defense. Part 14 of Japan's Reply to U.S. Note The 13 parts of the Japanese reply to our November 26 note, received in Washington late on Saturday, December 6, were a fairly sober review of the U.S.-Japanese negotiations to date and the various points of agreement and disagreement. Notably, the economic restrictions imposed on Japan, the embargo, the freezing of assets, the fact that the United States was assisting China, and the United States' determined insistence, A, that Japan withdraw from China, and B, that she refused to honor her mutual assistance pact with Germany and Italy. Part 9 of Japan's reply was more inflammatory. It asserted that the United States may be said to be scheming for the extension of the war, aiding Great Britain in preparing to attack. Germany and Italy, and exercising pressure on Japan by economic power. After seeing these 13 parts, the top administration, army, and navy officials were anxious to learn the content of the 14th part. Part 14 was picked up by Station S at Bainbridge Island on the West Coast on Sunday, December 7 at 3.05 a.m. Washington, D.C. time, and was in the hands of our decoders, still in code in Washington, D.C. by about 4 o'clock. Like the earlier 13 parts, it was in English. It was decoded, completed, and ready for delivery to Commander Kramer at 7 a.m., December 7. In Part 14, Japan charged that it was the intention of the American government to conspire with Great Britain and other countries to obstruct Japan's efforts toward the establishment of peace, keeping Japan and China at war. Therefore, Japan's attempt to preserve and promote the peace of the Pacific through cooperation with the American government has finally been lost. The Japanese government regretted to have to notify hereby the American government that in view of the attitude of the American government, it cannot but consider that it is impossible to reach an agreement through further negotiations. This strong language left little room for doubt as to Japan's intentions. According to Wilkinson, these were fighting words. He was more impressed by that language than by the break-off of negotiations, which of itself might be only temporary. Those would be hard words to eat. Another message in Tokyo to the Japanese ambassadors was also intercepted and teletyped from Bainbridge at the same time as Part 14. It was received in Washington during the watch that ended at 7 a.m. Sunday morning, passed to the Army for translation by the Navy, and then received back in the Navy at about 7.15 a.m. There it was held for Commander Kramer, the only person authorized to distribute translations to higher authorities. This message in Japanese specified the precise time, 1 p.m. Washington time, December 7, at which the ambassadors were to deliver their government's 14-part reply to the U.S. government. The ambassadors were to hand the Japanese reply, if possible, directly to the Secretary of State. Because of the time specified, this cable came to be known as the 1 p.m. message. Admiral Hart, Manila, inquires about U.S. commitments in Southeast Pacific. Two other important messages also arrived in Washington during the night of December 6 through 7 from Admiral Hart in the Philippines. However, as a result of the heavy intercept traffic, they were not decoded immediately and did not become available to our officials in Washington until the following morning. One of these messages consisted of five parts and was signed jointly by Hart and by the British Commander-in-Chief, Eastern Fleet, Admiral Tom S. V. Phillips. The other was a frantic plea from Hart for advice from Washington. 
Hart had just learned of U.S. promises to support the British militarily in the event of a Japanese strike in Southeast Asia. Phillips had flown from Singapore to Manila to meet Hart and discuss with him the problems with which we are faced in the Far Eastern area. Their joint cable was dispatched from Manila at 3.27 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, GMT, December 7, 10.27 p.m., December 6, Washington Time, and received in Washington about 11 p.m. on December 6. Hart and Phillips had conferred about preparations for the war with Japan they both anticipated. They assumed that the initiative must inevitably rest with the Japanese. The two commanders considered it important to coordinate British and U.S. operations, but they agreed that each would retain strategic control of his own forces. Hart expected that his fleet's operations would be in accordance with Plan Rainbow 5, the plan prepared as the basis for U.S. offensive operations, the same plan under which Kimmel and Hawaii had been directed to operate. Their joint message discussed the disposition to be made of British ships in the Far East and recommended that Manila be made available as a base for the British battle fleet. As soon as Phillips heard of the Japanese convoy setting out for the Gulf of Siam from Kamran Bay, on the eastern coast of French Indochina, he left Manila to return to Singapore. As he was leaving, Hart told him that four of Hart's destroyers, then at Borneo, would soon be joining Phillips' forces. In spite of Hart's willingness to cooperate with the British, he was startled by the news he received just after Phillips' departure from U.S. Naval Observer John M. Creighton in Singapore. Creighton reported that Brooke Popham, commander of the Royal Air Force in Malaya and of the British Army Forces, had been advised on Saturday by the War Department in London that they had now received assurance of American armed support in three eventualities. Number one, if the British were obliged to forestall a Japanese landing on the Isthmus of Kra or on any other part of Siam. Number two, if the Dutch Indies were attacked and the British went to their defense. Or number three, if the Japanese attacked the British. Moreover, London had advised Brooke Popham that if he had reliable information that the Japanese were advancing with the apparent intention of landing on Kra or in Siam, he need not consult London to put his operation plan into action. London also advised him that the British-Dutch plan was to be put into operation if the Netherlands East Indies was attacked. If the United States was committed to helping the British militarily in the event of a Japanese attack in Southeast Asia, it could not be long before we could be asked to fulfill that promise. The immediacy of a possible call for U.S. armed support led Hart to wire Washington about Creighton's report, saying he had received no corresponding instructions. Hart's message left Manila three and a half hours after the one sent by Hart and Phillips jointly, 6.45 a.m. GMT, 2.45 p.m. December 7, Manila time, or 1.45 a.m. December 7 in Washington. It reached Washington during the night of December 6 through 7, but wasn't decoded immediately. An information copy went to Kimmel in Hawaii, further reinforcing Kimmel's impression that it was Southeast Asia that was threatened by Japanese attack. Under our Constitution, the only justification for having U.S. military outposts is to protect U.S. citizens and U.S. interests within and around our national borders. Yet Hart was being told by our naval observer in Singapore that the U.S. government had agreed to go to the aid not of U.S. territory or U.S. citizens, but of British military forces should they decide to take action against Japanese soldiers landing in Thailand, the Dutch East Indies, British Malaya, or Singapore. President Roosevelt had apparently committed U.S. forces to helping the British thousands of miles from any U.S. territory. This was news to our top naval commander in the Far East. Part 14 of Japan's Reply Delivered to Navy Personnel this particular Sunday morning, anticipating he would have to deliver some messages earlier than usual, 
Navy courier Kramer went into the Navy Department at around 7.30. According to official records, both Part 14 of the Japanese reply and the 1 p.m. message were available before Kramer reached the department. However, when Kramer set out on his first delivery trip of the day, the 1 p.m. message, which required translation, was apparently not included in his locked pouch. With the receipt of Part 14, the text of the Japanese government's reply to our note of November 26 was complete, so Kramer left on his rounds. Kramer's first delivery that morning at about 8 a.m. was to the Navy Department, to Commander McCollum, head of the Far Eastern Section, Navy Intelligence. Kramer soon left McCollum's office, but returned very shortly with a copy of the entire 14-part message for McCollum's boss, Rear Admiral Wilkinson, Director of Naval Intelligence, who had just arrived. Wilkinson sent for McCollum, and for 15 or 20 minutes, the two men discussed the Far East situation. Then they heard that Admiral Stark, Chief of Naval Operations, had arrived in the Navy Department. It was quite unusual for Stark to come into the office that early on a Sunday morning, and they went down to talk with him. When Kramer arrived at Stark's office with the 14 parts together with the other new material, it was about 9 o'clock Sunday morning or possibly earlier, nearer 8.30. Wilkinson and McCollum were there discussing the situation with Stark. McCollum stepped out of the office for a moment and was handed the final note to be delivered on the United States by the Japanese ambassadors. Other Navy officers of the Division of Operations began to appear in Stark's office. Admirals Ingersoll, Brainerd, Noyes, and Turner, possibly Captain Sherman also, as well as a few others. All joined in the discussion. McCollum himself was in and out of Stark's office at about 0900 or 0930, and on one of his entries into Admiral Stark's office, he met General Marshall coming out of the office, accompanied by his aide, Colonel Bratton. Kramer left to continue on to the State Department, anxious to arrive before 10 a.m., when Secretary of Navy Knox's meeting with Secretaries Hall and Stimson was scheduled to begin. He did not take a car to cover the 8 to 10 blocks, but walked almost on the double, at least trotted part of the way. Kramer arrived in time almost exactly 10 minutes to 10. He had a brief discussion with the Army courier. He thought it was Bratton and Mr. Hall's private secretary. Kramer returned to the Navy Department and then went to the White House with Part 14. Roosevelt's aide, Beardall, immediately took the magic pouch to the president who was still in his bedroom. As FDR read the intercept, he commented, It looks like the Japanese are going to break off negotiations. Beardall returned the pouch to the Navy Department around 11 to 11.30 a.m. As far as he knew, no other deliveries were made to FDR that morning. Delivery of 1 p.m. Message to Navy Department after delivering Part 14, Kramer returned to the Navy Department to assemble several other intercepts that had been received in the interim. It was about 10.20. Undoubtedly, the most important intercept he found there was the separate 1 p.m. message advising the Japanese ambassadors in rather emphatic language that delivery of the 14-part Japanese reply be made to the Secretary of State at 1300, that is, 1 p.m. Washington time. Among the other newly received intercepts was one that, directed final destruction of Japanese code still on hand. There was another message thanking the ambassador for his services, another addressed to the embassy staff, and one or two others of like nature. A fourth intercept was a circular telegram addressed to Japanese diplomatic offices around the world concerning relations between Japan and England. These new messages made it obvious that the Japanese government was giving up all thought of negotiating further with the U.S. government, breaking relations with England, winding down its operations in Washington, and abandoning the embassy staff to their own devices. Because the circular telegram closed with the telltale English word stop instead of the usual Japanese awari, 
Kramer realized it was an emergency dispatch containing code words. The Tokyo, Washington Circular number 2409, containing the setup for this message and defining the hidden meanings of the code words, had been translated by the Navy on December 2. Presumably, it was distributed to the usual recipients of magic, but it was not a subject on which witnesses were questioned during the hearings. Despite the urgency to deliver the 1 p.m. message promptly, Kramer thought, that delay to get this one, the circular intercept, into that folder was warranted. Otherwise, delivery probably wouldn't have been made until afternoon, since the meetings then in progress at the State Department and in CNO's office would probably have been adjourned and the recipients not accessible, out to lunch or one thing and another. Therefore, Kramer dictated on his feet while the book concerning the 1 p.m. delivery and other late urgent messages was being made up. His translation of the crucial sentence in this cable read, Relations between Japan and England are not in accordance with expectation. Kramer delivered this new material, including the 1 p.m. message, within 10 to 15 minutes to Admiral Stark's office in the Navy Department building. Stark's meeting was still going on, so Kramer sent word in that he had something more of importance. According to McCollum, he held a short discussion with Lieutenant Commander Kramer as to the significance at the 1 p.m. delivery time, and he it was who pointed out the times at Honolulu at 7.30 and in the Far East as dawn, and so on. McCollum took the 1 p.m. message into Stark. The significance of the 1 p.m. delivery time was discussed. McCollum pointed out that 1 p.m. Washington time would mean about 8 in the morning Honolulu time, 7.30, very early in the morning out in the Far East, that is, out in the Philippines and those places. We didn't know what this signified, but that if an attack were coming, it looked like it was time for operations out in the Far East and possibly on Hawaii. There was no way of knowing just where the Japanese might strike. But, McCollum reasoned, because of the fact that the exact time for delivery of this note had been stressed to the ambassadors, we felt that there were important things which would move at that time. Stark immediately called the White House on the telephone. McCollum thought Stark also phoned Marshall. There was considerable coming and going. Not everyone was there all the time. There is no record of what these top naval officers talked about in Stark's office that morning in light of the crucial intercepts they had just received. In any event, no special notice or advice of impending conflict was sent out by CNO Stark to the field commanders. Delivery of 1 p.m. Message to State Department Kramer was anxious to get to the State Department before the Hall-Knox-Stimson meeting broke up. When he, Kramer, arrived at Hall's office with the 1 p.m. message, he talked not with Hall, but with a State Department Foreign Service officer who regularly handled this material for Mr. Hall. He explained the importance of the material he was delivering and pointed out that the directive for delivery of the Japanese note at 1300 was a time which was 7.30 at Pearl Harbor and was a few hours before sunrise at Kotabaru, British Malaya. In talking with the Foreign Service officer, Kramer made a point of inviting the attention of Mr. Knox to the times involved. He thought that Mr. Knox, being a civilian, even though Secretary of Navy, might not have seen at first glance the implications of the times. So he simply pointed out the coincidence of those times to the secretary. The officer then took the folder into Mr. Knox together with Kramer's remarks. Kramer proceeded across the street to the White House for a second delivery that morning. Kramer handed the new intercepts to a senior assistant to Beardall, possibly Lieutenant Commander Leahy. When Kramer returned to the Navy Department this time at about 12.30, he discovered that in his haste to translate the circular message containing code words, so as to be able to deliver it along with the 1 p.m. message and the other Japanese intercepts, he had failed to note an important code word, Minami, meaning United States. 
Thus, the sentence he had translated as, relations between Japan and England are not in accordance with expectations, was wrong. It should have read, relations between Japan and England and the United States are not in accordance with expectations. Kramer made a few phone calls, but it was lunchtime and he found his recipient scattered. No retranslation was made and delivered, as was usual when messages were garbled or misinterpreted. That afternoon, after the attack had occurred, Kramer realized it would be pointless to send out a corrected translation. Delivery of 1 p.m. Message to Army Personnel The Army courier, Colonel Bratton, drove into Washington at about 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, December 7th, with Colonel John R. Dean. Bratton was in charge of the far eastern section of military intelligence. He went at once to his office in G2. Dean proceeded to his office in the munitions building right across the hall from the office of Army Chief of Staff Marshall. Because of the furor created nationwide by the Chicago Tribune's publication on December 4 of the secret U.S. war plans, Congress had called on our top military officials to answer some questions. Marshall was scheduled to testify on December 8, and he had asked Dean to compile a one-page summary statement on the number of planes, anti-aircraft guns, etc. in the United States, together with basic information on the war plans. FDR had also asked Marshall to have this information available all on a single sheet when he came to the meeting the president had called for 3 p.m. Sunday. That was why Dean went into his office early. Prior to December 7, there was no officer on duty around the clock in the office of the Army's chief of staff, no 24-hour-per-day duty officer, DO, so his office was not officially open. However, Dean opened his office in the munitions building. As soon as Bratton reached his office in G2, he received the 1 p.m. message from the Navy Department. It was immediately apparent to Bratton that this message was of such importance that it ought to be communicated to the Chief of Staff Marshal, the AC of S, Assistant Chief of Staff Military Intelligence, Miles, and Chief of WPD, War Plans Chief Garrow, with the least practicable delay. It was then about nine or shortly before. Bratton was immediately stunned into frenzied activity because of its implications, and from that time on, he was busily engaged trying to locate various officers of the general staff and conferring with them on the exclusive subject of this message and its meaning. He washed his hands of all other matters, turning them over to his assistant, Colonel Dusenberry, and proceeded to take steps with a 1 p.m. delivery message. Braddon could not locate in their offices any of the generals for whom he was looking. He phoned Marshall's quarters at Fort Myer. Marshall had three orderlies, one of whom was always on duty when Marshall was out, to answer the telephone, to be there until Marshall got back. When Bratton phoned that morning, one of his orderlies answered the telephone and informed Bratton that the general had gone horseback riding. Well, Bratton said, you know generally where he has gone. You know where you can get a hold of him. Yes, I think I can find him. Please go out at once, Bratton continued. Get assistance if necessary and find General Marshall. Ask him to... Tell him who I am and tell him to go to the nearest telephone, that it is vitally important that I communicate with him at the earliest practicable moment. The orderly said he would do so. Bratton then called his boss, General Miles. Bratton told him what he had done and also recommended that he, Miles, come down to the office at once. One of them telephoned Garrow to summon him to the office. Miles arrived at his office about 10 a.m. and Bratton joined him there. They discussed this whole business. Thus, General Miles was thoroughly conversant with the entire matter before the two men met with Marshall later that morning. Bratton held on to Marshall's copy of the 1 p.m. message, waiting anxiously for the general to call back. Marshall did phone, finally, sometime between 10 and 11. Bratton told Marshall that he had a message of extreme importance which he, Marshall, should see at once.
Braddon offered to take it out to his quarters and could be there in 10 minutes. But Marshall told him not to do that, to report to him in his office as he was on his way there. There were two doors into Marshall's office. One opened directly into the hall, the other from the anteroom, the secretary's office. The anxious Bratton waited in the anteroom while watching the hall door. Marshall finally arrived through the hall door. According to Bratton, it was 11.25. Bratton immediately reported to him. Miles arrived shortly thereafter. 1 p.m. message spurs action. Finally. When Bratton and Miles walked into Marshall's office, Marshall had this 14-part message arranged in a book in front of him and was reading the 14 parts. Since Bratton and Miles were both concerned about the deadlines implied in the 1 p.m. message, they attempted to interrupt General Marshall to get him to read this 1 p.m. message. But Marshall continued reading the fairly lengthy 14-part message, rereading parts of it and reflecting on it, which took a while, even though Marshall said he read much more rapidly than the average man. When Marshall had finally finished, Bratton handed him the short 1 p.m. message, which Bratton had been trying to deliver to Marshall since about 9 a.m. Only then did Marshall read it. He then asked General Miles and Bratton what they thought it meant. Both men were convinced it meant Japanese hostile action against some American installation in the Pacific at or shortly after 1 p.m. that afternoon. At about this time, General Garrow and General Bundy came into the room and there was some discussion of the 14 parts, which were then regarded in the light of an ultimatum and of the 1 p.m. delivery message. Marshall asked each of the men in turn, starting with Miles, for an evaluation of the situation. They thought it probable that the Japanese line of action would be into Thailand, but that it might be into any one or more of a number of other areas. Miles urged that the Philippines, Hawaii, Panama, and the West Coast be informed immediately that the Japanese reply would be delivered at 1 o'clock that afternoon, Washington time, and that they, the commanders in the areas indicated, should be on the alert. After the men had all concurred in urging that our outlying possessions be given an additional alert at once by the fastest possible means, Marshall drew a piece of scratch paper toward him and picked up a pencil and wrote out in longhand a message to be sent to our overseas commanders. When he reached the bottom of the page, he picked up the telephone and called the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Stark. General Marshall, in a guarded way, told Admiral Stark what he had in front of him and that he was going to send a warning to Hawaii, Panama, and the Philippines, and so on. After some conversation with Stark, Marshall put down the phone and said, Admiral Stark doesn't think that any additional warning is necessary. Stark said that all the forces had already been several times alerted. They had sent so much that he feared that that, another warning, would tend to confuse them. More discussion. Marshall again phoned Stark. He read Stark the message he had just written. This time, apparently Stark concurred and asked Marshall to add a phrase to the effect that the naval forces be also informed. To safeguard the codes, messages to Army officers in the field frequently included a request that the Navy be notified and vice versa. Since two similar coded cables containing essentially the same message made the task deciphering a code that much easier, Marshall and Stark tried to avoid both sending a message about the same things to the various commanders concerned at Panama, Western Department, Hawaii, and the Philippines. So Marshall penciled a short sentence at the bottom of his message, Notify Naval Opposite. During their second conversation, Stark asked Marshall if he would like to use the Navy's more powerful transmitting facilities. It's 25,000 kilowatt versus the Army's 10,000 kilowatt radio station. The Navy station had little difficulty transmitting messages, while the Army's was normally out of service with Honolulu between 11 and 1 o'clock. Atmospheric conditions over the Pacific at that time of the year were poor. 
Marshall declined Stark's offer. Marshall's handwritten message read, Japanese are presenting at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today what amounts to an ultimatum. Also, they are under orders to destroy their code machines immediately. Just what significance the hour set may have, we do not know, but be on alert accordingly. Inform naval authorities of this communication. Marshall gave his handwritten message to Bratton and told him to take it to the message center and see that it was dispatched at once by the fastest safe means. When Bratton was about to leave, the question was raised as to whether Marshall's message shouldn't be typed. Because time was an important factor. However, Bratton was asked to take it in its draft form to the message center. As he was leaving, Garrow called out, If there is any question of priority, give the Philippines first priority. Bratton took the message down the hall to the Army Message Center. As he handed it to Colonel Edward F. French, the signal officer in charge, Bratton said, The Chief of Staff wants this sent at once by the fastest safe means. French found the penciled message rather difficult to read. Neither he nor his clerk could interpret Marshall's handwriting. So French asked Bratton to help him get this into readable script. Bratton dictated it to a code room typist, which took perhaps a minute, then verified and authenticated the message and put it into code. According to Bratton, it was then about 11.58 a.m. French started processing the message immediately, giving the Philippines first priority. He went to the signal center himself and had the operator check the channel to Honolulu. Due to atmospheric conditions, Honolulu had been out of contact since about 10.20 that morning. Transmitting the message to Honolulu via Army facilities would not only have slowed it down, but would have run a risk of garbling when it was copied and retransmitted in San Francisco. The Army's normal method when atmospheric conditions prevented sending messages via its own radio station was to use commercial facilities that were available in the Army Signal Center. Western Union to San Francisco, tube relay across the city, and then RCA to Honolulu. So French decided the quickest method of dispatch would be via commercial service, especially as RCA had just installed a teletype circuit to Fort Shafter, Army headquarters in Hawaii on the western outskirts of Honolulu. When Bratton returned to Marshall's office, Marshall asked him to go back to the message center and find out how long it would take for his message to reach its several addresses. Bratton returned, talked with French, who told him, that the messages would be encoded in about three minutes, on the air in about eight minutes, and in the hands of the addressees in about 30 minutes. With respect to the message to Honolulu, French estimated that it would reach there within a half hour to 45 minutes. Bratton looked at his watch at that time, and as he remembered it, it was about 11.58 a.m. Bratton reported back to Marshall. Marshall's message was in code by 11.52 a.m. Washington, D.C. time, and was dispatched to Panama at noon, to the Philippines at 12.05, to the Presidio in San Francisco at 12.11, and to Hawaii at 12.17. It was Marshall's understanding that his message went right through to the Philippines, Panama, and San Francisco. The only problem came in raising Hawaii. By noon, Dean had finished the one-page statement he had been preparing for Marshall to use that afternoon at his meeting with FDR and or for testifying the next day before Congress. Marshall called him into his office and he handed Marshall his memorandum. As Marshall read it, he said to Dean, it looks as though the Japs were going to issue an ultimatum about 1.30. Dean had not known the information that administration and top military officials had been learning during recent months from Magic, so was not aware of the significance of Marshall's announcement. Sunday morning at the State Department Paul went to his office that Sunday morning as he had done almost every Sunday since he entered the State Department in 1933. Because of the Japanese situation, however, this one was a little out of the ordinary. 
Paul talked first with the department's Far East experts, Stanley K. Hornbeck, advisor on political relations, Maxwell M. Hamilton, chief of the Division of Far Eastern Affairs, and Joseph W. Ballantine, an expert on Japan. Paul had asked Stimson and Knox to meet with him at the department at 10 a.m. to discuss the situation created by the movement of the huge Japanese armada southward and westward of the southernmost point of Indochina. The administration officials were striving to ascertain the full significance of those military movements, their probable destination, etc. Stimson, Knox, and Hull were all well aware that that day was the day that the Japanese were going to bring their answer to Hull and everything in magic indicated that they had been keeping the time back until now in order to accomplish something hanging in the air. Hall was very certain that the Japs were planning some deviltry. The three secretaries were all wondering where the blow will strike. The messages they were receiving now indicated that the Japanese force was continuing on in the Gulf of Siam. Hall, Stimson, and Knox discussed whether we would not have to fight if Malaya or the Netherlands were attacked and the British or Dutch fought. We all three thought, recalled Stimson, that we must fight if those nations fought. If Britain were eliminated, it might well result in the destruction or capture of the British fleet. Such a result would give the Nazi allies overwhelming power in the Atlantic Ocean and would make the defense of the American republics enormously difficult, if not impossible. All the reasons why it would be necessary for the United States to fight, in case the Japanese attacked either our British or Dutch neighbors in the Pacific, were discussed at length. The main thing, Stimson wrote in his diary, is to hold the main people who are interested in the Far East together. The British, ourselves, the Dutch, the Australians, the Chinese. According to Stimson, both Hull and Knox held that the Japanese military advances in the Southwest Pacific represented a threat to the United States that should be countered by us on grounds of self-defense. Hull expressed his views, giving the broad picture of it. Knox also had his views as to the importance of showing immediately how these different nations must stand together. Stimson had both men dictate their views to a stenographer. Paul stated in his proposed statement for the president that the Japanese government, dominated by the military fire eaters, was deliberately proceeding to acquire military control over one half of the world with nearly one half its population. Defense of life and commerce and other invaluable rights and interests in the Pacific area must be commenced with the South Sea area. According to Knox's typed-up suggestion, we were tied up inextricably with the British and Dutch in the present world situation. Any serious threat to the British or the Dutch is a serious threat to the United States. We should therefore be ready jointly to act together. Paul, Knox, and Stimson stayed together in conference until lunchtime, going over the plans for what should be said or done. Japanese Ambassadors Request 1 p.m. Appointment with State Secretary Hull Ambassador Nomura telephoned Hall about noon to ask for an appointment for himself in Kurusu at 1 p.m. Hall agreed. Nomura phoned again shortly after 1 p.m. to ask for a postponement until 1.45. Hall agreed to the time change. Sunday morning at the White House The morning of December 7 was a busy one for FDR. He had been up late the night before with Marshall, Stark, Stimson, Knox, and Hopkins, discussing until the early hours of the morning the crescendo toward which the situation in the Far East was building. At about 10 a.m., FDR's naval aide, Beardall, delivered to him in his bedroom the final 14th part of the Japanese reply. It is possible that FDR's busy day began even earlier when Stark phoned, giving him advance notice of that morning's two crucial Japanese intercepts, Part 14 of Japan's final reply and the extremely important 1 p.m. message. In any event, when the magic pouch containing the 1 p.m. message was delivered to FDR later that morning, 
He learned firsthand about that as well as the other urgent Japanese intercepts. FDR's personal physician, Dr. Ross T. McIntyre, was one of the president's closest associates. He admired FDR greatly and faithfully kept his secrets, both medical and non-medical. From the day of FDR's first inauguration until the day of FDR's passing in 1945, McIntyre saw the president each morning and again in the evening. December 7, 1941 was no exception. McIntyre was, with him, FDR, on that Sunday morning from 10 to 12 o'clock, while Mr. Hull was waiting over in the State Department for the Japanese envoys to bring their government's reply to the American note. According to McIntyre, FDR thought that even given the madness of Japan's military masters, they would not risk a war with the United States. They might well take advantage of Great Britain's extremity and strike at Singapore or some other point in the Far East, but an attack on any American possession did not enter his, FDR's, thoughts. In McIntyre's view, the president clearly counted only on the usual evasions from the two ambassadors. FDR was also in touch that Sunday morning with the British ambassador, Lord Halifax. Halifax had sent to the White House for Roosevelt's comments a copy of the British government's proposed message to Japan. He was waiting at the British embassy for a phone call from Roosevelt. China was also very much in FDR's thoughts. The Chinese government had appreciated his efforts to strangle Japan economically. As a result, Chinese Ambassador Hu Xi and FDR had developed a close and confidential relationship. Roosevelt had tried to get in touch with Hu the day before, but he had been in New York. On his return Sunday morning, he returned FDR's call and the president summoned him to the White House for a confidential chat. Hu arrived about 12.30. FDR showed him the statement he had sent the Japanese emperor. His very last gesture toward peace, Roosevelt said. If Hirohito didn't respond, well, it would be war. FDR told Hu about the Japanese envoy's insistence on a 1 p.m. appointment with Hull. Roosevelt expected either an answer from Hirohito or a nasty move from the Japs before Tuesday morning. He fully expected foul play. He had a feeling that within 48 hours, something nasty might happen in Thailand, Malaya, the Dutch Indies, and possibly the Philippines. In between these several interruptions, FDR was working on the draft of a speech, which had been prepared in the State Department that he had contemplated delivering to Congress the following Tuesday or Wednesday, if he received no response to his message to Emperor Hirohito. Phrasing what he wanted to say was a difficult proposition in view of his pledge to the American people that he would not send our boys to fight on foreign soil, except in case of attack, and in view of the constitutional provision that only Congress could declare war. Eight months of U.S. negotiations with Japan in the attempt to reach a peaceful solution had ended in failure. FDR had decided he would present the issue as one of national defense. He would compare Japanese aggression with those of the Nazis in Europe. He would describe Japan's conquest and exploitation in China and point out that she was now threatening the Philippines and British and Dutch territories in Southeast Asia, as well as trade routes of vital importance to them and to us. Japan's practice of aggression and conquest sets up a continuing and growing military threat to the United States. Within the past few days, large additional contingent of troops have been moved into Indochina and preparations have been made for further conquest. We cannot permit, and still less can we support, the fulfillment by Japan of the aims of a militant leadership which has disregarded law, violated treaties, impaired rights, destroyed property and lives of our nationals, inflicted horrible sufferings upon people who are our friends. How to respond to the current crisis in light of FDR's pledges to the American people and his assurances of armed support to the British and Dutch was difficult. FDR relied on the advice of his three secretaries, Knox, Hull, and Stimson. 
And that was, as Stimson put it, what we were at work on our papers about that morning. Roosevelt would not ask for a declaration of war, but he would conclude by announcing his intention to embark on a de facto war. As commander-in-chief, I have given appropriate orders to our forces in the Far East. In addition to working on his proposed speech, Roosevelt must also have been thinking about the White House meeting of his war cabinet he had called for 3 p.m. that afternoon. He apparently wanted to discuss his intended address with his advisors and to talk with them about the possible showdown that might follow in the Far East. At about 12.30, after being reassured that his warning message to his field commanders was on its way, Marshall left for lunch at his quarters. Hull's meeting with Knox and Stimson wound up in time for lunch. Knox and Stimson left the State Department, Knox for his office, and Stimson for lunch at his spacious estate, Woodley. When Knox returned to his office in the Navy Department, he found a message from Admiral Stark who wanted him to phone. Knox immediately called Stark, and the Admiral went over to Knox's office. Captain, later Admiral Turner, came too, and the three men met for about an hour. After Dr. Who's departure at 1.10 p.m., FDR retired for lunch and to prepare for the 3 p.m. meeting with his advisors. To the outside observer, peace and normality appeared to reign. Yet beneath the outer calm, official Washington was uneasy. It was obvious that a blow was coming, but they didn't know where. If it fell on British, Dutch, or Thai territory, as seemed likely, what should the United States do? Should it implement the administration's secret and unconstitutional agreement to furnish the British and Dutch with armed support, as it seemed FDR was planning to do? Would the people of this country be willing to support such a venture? Or would they reject the idea of U.S. involvement in a Japanese conflict with the British, Dutch, or Thai in Southeast Asia, thousands of miles from our shores? Chapter 15. Air Raid, Pearl Harbor, This Is No Drill Intelligence supplied Hawaiian commanders was limited. Unlike the top administration and military officials in Washington, the armed forces in Hawaii did not have a purple machine or access to magic. The Hawaiian commanders did not even know of their existence. They knew Washington had information not available to them and had to rely on Washington to be kept informed. When they asked for information so as to be able to make informed decisions in the field, they were usually assured that they were being sent what they needed to know. As a matter of fact, it was Washington policy not to forward diplomatic intercepts to the forces in the field, so as to safeguard magic. The large department staffs in Washington were considered better qualified to evaluate the bits and pieces of data in relation to the political situation than were the smaller staffs in the field, and the field commanders were assured that they would get what they needed at the time they needed it. The commanders in Hawaii received some advice by way of telegraphic reports from Washington and the Philippines, but otherwise the information available to them was what they gleaned from intercepting all Japanese naval traffic and of attacking all the Japanese naval systems contained in that traffic with the exception of one system, which was being worked on in Washington and in Cavite. They had a radio intelligence unit whose duties were to obtain all information available from the Japanese naval traffic by means other than cryptanalysis, and they had a mid-Pacific direction-finding unit. They also received reports from observers, analyzed directional radio beams, and decoded the translated Japanese messages transmitted in PAK2 and certain lower-classified, non-diplomatic codes. It was obvious to the Hawaiian commanders from the cables they received from Washington, as well as from accounts appearing in the Hawaiian press concerning the Japanese-U.S. conversations, that relations between the two countries were tense. On November 27, General Short was advised that negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated to all practical purposes. Short was asked, 
to undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as necessary but not to alarm civil population. To minimize the damage that might be done by local Japanese who were antagonistic to the United States, Short alerted for sabotage and so advised Washington. Hawaiian commanders warned of Japanese threat to Philippines, Thai, Krau Peninsula, Borneo. On November 27, Fleet Commander-in-Chief Kimmel in Hawaii was sent a war warning advising that Japanese troops were apparently preparing an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines' Thai or Krau Peninsula or possibly Borneo. The same cable also went to Fleet Commander-in-Chief Hart in Manila. Both commanders were told to implement WPL-46, the U.S. war plan then in effect, which provided for preparing to take offensive action. Then, on November 28, Short was advised that all precautions be taken immediately against subversive activities to provide for protection of your establishments, property, and equipment against sabotage. He took this as Washington approval of his earlier sabotage alert. With all clues pointing to a war with Japan erupting in Southeast Asia, Short and Kimmel expected their primary concerns would be to defend the mid-Pacific U.S. outposts, Guam, Wake, and Midway, and to carry out WPL-46 by attacking the Japanese-held Marshall Islands. They continued drilling their men and preparing for war. Kimmel was directed from Washington to reinforce Wake and Midway with men and planes. So on November 28 and December 5, he sent out from Hawaii two task forces under heavy security, and in a state of combat readiness, with reinforcements for Wake and Midway. War in the West Pacific appeared imminent indeed to readers of page one of the Sunday, November 30th Honolulu Advertiser. A banner headline read, Kurusu bluntly warned, nation ready for battle. The story that followed quoted a former State Department advisor warning the Japanese ambassador that the United States was ready to fight if Japan did not mend her aggressive ways in Asia. Another story on the paper's front page suggested that it might be the Japanese encirclement of the Philippines that would spark the war. Still another story, datelined Singapore, reported that a Japanese strike was expected there and that in the interest of preparedness, all troops had been called back to barracks. But then the situation seemed to ease. Nomura and Caruso in Washington asked the U.S. government to continue their conversations. U.S. officials in Washington who were reading Magic knew this was merely a ruse to permit Japan to stall for time. They had read Tokyo's November 29 instructions to the two Japanese ambassadors to, please be careful that this does not lead to anything like a breaking off of negotiations. But the Hawaiian commanders did not know this. The lengthy meeting of Secretary of State Hall with the two Japanese envoys on Monday, December 1, was reported in the Hawaiian press, giving the impression that the crisis was over, at least for the time being. An Associated Press story in the Honolulu Star Bulletin, dateline Tokyo, December 5, reinforced this impression. A Japanese government spokesman expressed the belief today that the United States and Japan will continue with sincerity to find a common formula for a peaceful solution in the Pacific. A December 6 story was headlined, New Peace Effort Urged in Tokyo, Joint Commission to Iron Out Deadlock with U.S. Proposed. In Hawaii, it looked as if the immediate crisis had passed, even though another December 6 story struck a more ominous note. Jap Press Asks for War On the basis of radio intelligence, Commander Joseph John Rochefort, officer in charge of the Combat Intelligence Unit at Pearl Harbor, noted two significant factors. The Japanese, who usually change their radio call signs no more often than once every six months, introduced new call signs on December 1, just one month after their last previous change. 
Rochefort considered it ominous also when he realized he had lost track of the Japanese aircraft carriers. It was considered possible that they were still located in home waters, communicating with radio waves too weak to be picked up in Hawaii. However, Rochefort thought that they might be moving eastward. As a matter of fact, he had located practically the entire Japanese fleet that attacked Pearl Harbor in a negative sense. He had lost them. He didn't know where they were. Rochefort called the loss of contact with the Japanese carriers to the attention of Commander Edwin Thomas Layton, Fleet Intelligence Officer and Combat Intelligence Officer. Layton showed the location, to the best of his knowledge, of the major portion of the Japanese fleet on his Communication Intelligence Summary. He shared this report with Kimmel on December 2 at his usual 8.15 a.m. briefing. From Layton, almost a complete blank of information on the carriers today. We haven't seen the carriers except Cardiff 3, Carrier Division 3, and sometimes Cardiff 4. I felt apprehensive. I did not list Carrier Division 1 or Carrier Division 2 because neither one of those commands had appeared in traffic for fully 15 and possibly 25 days. Kimmel responds, What? You do not know where the carriers are? Do you mean to say they could be rounding Diamond Head and you wouldn't know it? Leighton replies, If they were, I hope they would be sighted before now. Dawn on Sunday at Pearl Harbor It was clearly recognized in Hawaii that the way to assure against the surprise air attack was to conduct long-range air patrol reconnaissance. But Hawaii had nowhere nearly enough planes, trained pilots, fuel, or spare parts. As Admiral Patrick Bellinger, Commander Patrol Wing 2 at Pearl Harbor later testified, to be reasonably sure that no hostile carrier could reach a spot 250 miles away and launch an attack without prior detection, would have required an effective daily search through 360 degrees to a distance of at least 800 miles. Assuming a 25-mile radius of visibility, this would have required a daily 16-and-a-half-hour flight of 50 PBY-5 planes. This, in turn, would have necessitated a force of not less than 150 patrol planes, adequate spare parts, and ample well-trained personnel. We had 81 patrol planes in the whole Hawaiian area, including Midway. Because of the shortage, the Hawaiian patrols were operating on a shoestring. The fleet operating areas were searched daily, and as planes were available, rotational sweeps were conducted of those sectors thought to be most dangerous. The planes accompanying the task force is sent out from Hawaii to Wake and Midway were also scouting morning and afternoon over 60-degree sectors to 300 miles on either bow. On the morning of December 7, three patrol planes were in the air over the fleet operating areas at Pearl Harbor, and four other planes were aloft carrying out exercises with submarines. This was in addition to the three task forces at sea that were conducting a regular wartime search by aircraft and destroyers as required by fleet orders. During the early morning hours of December 7, the USS Ward, captained by Lieutenant William Woodward Outerbridge, was steaming back and forth at low speed patrolling the sea lanes converging on Pearl Harbor. Outerbridge's orders were that any submarine operating in the restricted area, not operating in the submarine areas and not escorted, should be attacked. Two minutes before 4 a.m., a blinker signal from the minesweeper Condor informed the ward that it had sighted a suspicious object, believed to be a submarine, apparently heading for the entrance of Pearl Harbor. Outerbridge immediately ordered the ship to general quarters. The ship sprang to life. For nearly an hour, she combed the wide area in the dark, conducting a sonar search. Nothing was located, so the men aboard the ward relaxed. But then, at 6.37 a.m., Outerbridge was again aroused from his bunk. This time, he saw the U.S. target ship Antares towing a raft to Pearl Harbor. 
Between ship and raft, the lieutenant saw a smaller object which had no right to be there, a submarine conning tower, unlike any submarine silhouette with which he was familiar. In view of his orders to attack any unauthorized submarine in the area, Outerbridge did not hesitate. Load all guns and stand by to commence firing. The first shot was a near miss. Number three gunned opened up on the pointer's fire like a squirrel rifle with a point-blank range of 75 yards. The projectile was seen to strike the conning tower and the submarine disappeared from view. The ward then reported its next move. We have dropped depth charges on sub operating in defensive area. Then a few minutes later, a follow-up message. We have attacked, fired upon, and dropped depth charges upon submarine operating in defensive area. It was 6.53 a.m. Hawaii time. In 1941, the Army was in the process of installing three large fixed radars on high ground in Hawaii and six mobile radar units. This new radar service was operative daily from 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. only, the hours short considered the most dangerous time for an air attack. But on Saturday, December 6, the Signal Corps obtained permission of the control officer to have all stations operate from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. only on Sunday, December 7. However, on that morning, Opana Radar Station actually happened to stay open a little longer. Private Joseph L. Lockard, out of personal interest and a desire for experience, and Sergeant George E. Elliott, who wanted to learn plotting, had volunteered to experiment overtime. Shortly after 7 a.m., Locker detected on the radar screen a large flight of aircraft bearing north at a distance of about 136 miles. He was confused by what he saw. A few minutes after 7, when it got down to about 132 miles, he called the information center, but no one was around. It was the largest group he had ever seen on the oscilloscope. Then we continued to follow the flight and to plot it till it got within about 22 miles, 20 to 22 miles of the island, at which time we lost it in this blacked-out area. At that time, radar was still rather primitive, basically experimental. There was no proper identification system to determine friend from foe, so these planes could not be identified. At 7.20, Lockard reached Lieutenant Kermit A. Tyler on duty at Aircraft Warning Center and reported his sightings. Tyler discounted the report for several reasons. The plane sighted could be from our own two task forces at sea, they could be from Army's Hickam Field, or they could be B-17s en route from the West Coast to the Philippines and due to arrive about then in Hawaii. Reassured that his sighting was not anything of importance, Lockard and Elliott closed down the radar installation and left for breakfast. Air Raid Pearl Harbor, stop, this is no drill. At Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the sun rose at 6.27 a.m. At 7.33, Marshall's last-minute message announcing the instructions to the Japanese ambassadors to deliver their government's reply at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time, 7.30 a.m. Honolulu time, had arrived, in code, at Western Union in downtown Honolulu. It had to be sent for decoding to the Army's cryptographic center at Fort Shafter, four miles away before it could be read. At 7.55, 1.25 p.m. in Washington, D.C., the first Japanese planes swooped down simultaneously at Hawaii's Army Air Base at Hickam Field and at Hawaii's Navy Air Base on Fort Island in the middle of Pearl Harbor. Almost immediately, the first Japanese torpedoes struck their targets in the harbor. At 7.58, Vice Admiral Patrick Nelson Lynch Bellinger, commander of Patrol Wing 2 at the Naval Air Station on Fort Island, broadcast to all ships in the area, Air Raid, Pearl Harbor, stop, this is no drill. 
With the emergency, the Naval-based Defense Air Force immediately became functional, and orders to planes in the air were sent and received by 805. Within minutes of the attack, Kimmel cabled the Navy Department. Official notification of the attack was received in Washington at 1.50 p.m. Washington time by dispatch as follows. Air raid on Pearl Harbor. Stop. This is not drill. The attack news reaches the Navy Department. At about 1.30 p.m., as Navy Secretary Knox, Chief of Naval Operations Stark, and possibly Admiral Turner were coming out of a meeting at the Navy Department, the first news of the attack on Pearl Harbor arrived. The air raid message delivered by Commander Fernald from Navy Communications was handed to Knox. Knox's immediate response was, My God, this can't be true. This must mean the Philippines. No, sir, Stark said. This is Pearl. Stark knew, This is no drill, were agreed upon codewords to indicate an actual outbreak of hostilities. The attack news reaches the White House. On hearing the news, Knox immediately called on the White House phone and spoke to the president. It was 1.40 p.m. Knox simply stated what was in the message. Knox had no further details, and FDR would be kept advised. Roosevelt was finishing a late lunch with Harry Hopkins. The president couldn't believe what he had heard, nor could Hopkins. He didn't think Japan would dare to attack Honolulu. There must be some mistake, he said. But there was no mistake. FDR immediately began telephoning. He called Hull, he called Marshall, he called Stimson. And FDR began receiving phone calls too from persons all around the world. Winston Churchill was among the callers. It was Sunday evening in England when Churchill heard the news on a small wireless radio in his dining room at Shakers, the Prime Minister's residence just outside London. With him at the time were U.S. Ambassador John Winnett and Avril Harriman, then a special representative of the president with ambassadorial rank. Churchill immediately placed the call to Roosevelt. Mr. President, he began, what's this about Japan? They have attacked us at Pearl Harbor, FDR replied. We are all in the same boat now. Winnett spoke briefly with FDR, and then Churchill got back on the line. This certainly simplifies things, he said. God be with you, or words to that effect. According to Churchill, Winnett and Harriman took the shock with admirable fortitude. They did not wail or lament that their country was at war. They wasted no words in reproach or sorrow. In fact, one might almost have thought that they'd been delivered from a long pain. The attack news reaches the War Department. A very few minutes after the news was picked up out of the air on the West Coast, the news reached the War Department in Washington via the Navy. At about 1.30 p.m., a Navy enlisted man, all out of breath, rushed into Marshall's office. Colonel Dean was there trying to round up men so as to have the office open on a skeleton basis by 3 p.m. that afternoon, as Marshall had directed. The Navy messenger was carrying a penciled note, supposedly a message from the Navy radio operator at Honolulu. Pearl Harbor attacked. This is no drill. Dean immediately telephoned Marshall at his headquarters at Fort Myer, where he was having lunch, and told him of the message. Marshall directed Dean to contact Hawaii if possible to verify the report. Dean tried to phone, but the operator questioned his authority and refused to put the call through to Pearl Harbor, even though Dean was calling from Marshall's office. By this time, a more official report came in confirming the attack. The attack news reaches the State Department. In line with the instructions from his government, Ambassador Nomura phoned the State Department at about noon to ask for a 1 p.m. appointment with Secretary of State Hull. Hull had read the Dakota Japanese intercepts that morning, the 14-part reply to our note of November 26, and the 1 p.m. message. So he knew what to expect. 
However, the two ambassadors didn't appear at one o'clock. Rather, they phoned again a few minutes after one, asking to have their appointment postponed until 1.45. Hall agreed. He was still waiting for the ambassadors when the president telephoned from the White House shortly after 1.30. There's a report that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. FDR's voice was steady but clipped. In view of his impending appointment with the ambassadors, Hull was especially interested. Has the report been confirmed? Not yet, the president said, but it would be checked. The ambassadors arrived at the State Department and were in the diplomatic waiting room, even as Hull and the president spoke. Hull kept them waiting while he consulted his advisors. Green H. Hackworth, legal advisor, and Joseph W. Ballantine, a foreign service officer who had participated with Hull in most of his conversations with the Japanese. The president has an unconfirmed report, Hull told them, that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. The Japanese ambassadors are waiting to see me. They are going to turn us down on our note of November 26, he said. Perhaps they want to tell us that war has been declared. I'm rather inclined not to see them. Hull thought over the situation and finally decided that, since the president's report had not been confirmed and there was one chance out of a hundred that it was not true, he would receive the envoys. Hull summoned the ambassadors to his office. When Nomura and Caruso entered, Hull received them coldly and did not ask them to sit down. Nomura handed Hull his government's note. Hull naturally could give no indication that he already knew its contents, so he made a pretense of glancing through it. When he had finished skimming the pages, he eyed Nomura. I must say, Hull said, that in all my conversations with you during the last nine months, I have never uttered one word of untruth. This is borne out absolutely by the record. In all my 50 years of public service, I have never seen a document that was more crowded with infamous falsehoods and distortions. Infamous falsehoods and distortions on a scale so huge that I never imagined until today that any government on this planet was capable of uttering them. Nomura's face was impassive. He seemed to be under great emotional strain. Hall thought Nomura was about to speak, but Hall stopped him with a motion of his hand and nodded toward the door. The ambassadors turned without a word and walked out, their heads down. The attack news reaches Secretary of War Stimson. The president telephoned Stimson at his home at just about 2 p.m. Stimson was still at lunch. In a rather excited voice, the president asked, Have you heard the news? Well, Stimson replied, I have heard the telegrams which have been coming in about the Japanese advances in the Gulf of Siam. Oh no, the president responded, I don't mean that. They have attacked Hawaii. They are now bombing Hawaii. Well, Stimson thought, that was an excitement indeed. His reference to the Japanese advances in the Gulf of Siam was to the British patrol sighting of large Japanese forces south of Indochina and moving up into the Gulf. It had appeared that these forces were going to land probably either on the eastern side of the Gulf of Siam, where it would be still in Indochina, or on the western side, where it would be the Kra Peninsula or probably Malay. The British were very much excited about it, and our efforts this morning in drawing our papers was to see whether or not we should all act together. The British will have to fight if they attack the Kra Peninsula. We three, Stimson, Hull, Knox, all thought that we must fight if the British fought. That was the reason for their Sunday morning meeting at the State Department and for the position papers they had drafted, to see whether or not we should all act together. But now, Stimson confided to his diary, the Japs have solved the whole thing by attacking us directly in Hawaii. The Afternoon in Marshall's Office Dean had phoned Marshall immediately after receiving the news of the attack. It was about a ten-minute drive from Marshall's quarters at Fort Myer to his office in the War Department. 
Although it had taken Marshall a couple of hours to respond to Bratton's frantic phone call that morning, this time Marshall reached his office within 10 or 15 minutes of receiving Dean's telephone call. Marshall had many phones in his office, all hung on the side of his desk. He had no sooner arrived than they all began to ring at once. A regular stream of phone calls started coming in. Dean gave Marshall one instrument and then another phone would ring. Roosevelt called on the direct line from the White House, asked Marshall what he knew, but Marshall had to admit that he didn't know much. At that point, another phone on the side of Marshall's desk rang. Dean answered, and when he finished talking, he inadvertently hung the phone on the Roosevelt connection on the side of Marshall's desk, temporarily closing off the Roosevelt-Marshall conversation. Dean quickly shifted it, but he later recalled that his first act of the war had been to cut off a telephone conversation between the commander-in-chief and the army chief of staff. Marshall sent word of the attack out to all the core area commanders and all our people throughout the world, particularly in the Philippines. Roosevelt asked Marshall to come over to the White House right away, and Marshall immediately dashed over. The first call that came in after Marshall left was from a drunk in St. Louis who had just heard what those bastards had done and offered to come to Washington to help Marshall out. Dean thanked the caller and said he would relay his offer to Marshall. To Dean, this incident illustrated how ill-prepared the chief of staff's office was for the emergency. A call from a plain citizen had gotten through to Marshall's office without any trouble. Yet Dean had had difficulty trying to call Pearl Harbor on behalf of the chief of staff. According to Dean, the War Department personnel that next week were all at sixes and sevens, totally unprepared for what had happened. Stimson's Afternoon After hearing the news and finishing his lunch, Stimson returned to his office. He started matters going in all directions to warn against sabotage and to get punch into the defensive move. Armed guards were stationed at the War Department building and also at Stimson's estate. He offered to provide guards for the White House, but it was decided the FBI should stand guard there. Stimson attended FDR's meeting at the White House. Then at 4 o'clock, he joined McCoy and the chiefs of the armed services, giving them a little pep-up talk about getting right to work in the emergency. He spent most of the afternoon in conference with Marshall, Brenville Clark, Miles, Patterson, McCoy, and their assistants, Lovett, and General Gullion, the provost Marshall general. The main topic of their conversation was the form the declaration of war should take. Brenville Clark had drawn up a copy based largely on the Woodrow Wilson one. They all thought that it was possible we should declare war on Germany at the same time with Japan, but that was an open question. However, Stimson thought there was now no doubt about our declaring war on Japan. When Stimson had first heard the news of Japan's attack, his first feeling was of relief that the indecision was over and that a crisis had come in a way which would unite all our people. Yet the news that came in from Hawaii during the afternoon was very bad. The Japanese seemed to have sprung a complete surprise upon our fleet and to have caught the battleships inside the harbor and bombed them severely with losses, hit our airfields there, and destroyed a great many of our planes, evidently before they got off the ground. It was staggering, Stimson wrote, to see our people there who had been warned long ago and were standing on the alert, so caught by surprise. Nevertheless, his dominant feeling continued to be one of relief, in spite of the news of catastrophes which quickly developed. He felt that this country united has practically nothing to fear, while the apathy and division stirred up by unpatriotic men have been hitherto very discouraging. Sunday Afternoon at the White House Soon after receiving the news of the attack, the White House became a beehive of activity. At 2.28 p.m., FDR had a phone call from Stark telling of the heavy losses suffered by the fleet during the first phase of the attack and reporting some loss of life. 
Stark discussed the next step with FDR, and the president wanted him to execute the agreed orders to the Army and Navy in event of an outbreak of hostilities in the Pacific. At 2.30, Knox ordered all ships and stations to execute WPL-46 against Japan. Knox reached the White House almost immediately after Stark finished talking with the president. As Knox later confided, he found the president in the Oval Office, seated and as white as a sheet, visibly shaken. The extent of the disaster, news of which was beginning to trickle in, really shook FDR. Knox thought Roosevelt expected to get hit by the Japanese, but that he did not expect to get hurt. It was not the attack himself, but the amount of damage that shocked him. FDR called in his secretary, Steve Early, and dictated a news release that Early was to give to the press immediately. A half hour later, FDR dictated to Early a second press release. Roosevelt's oldest son, James, a captain in the Marine Corps Reserve, was on assignment in Washington at the time as liaison between Marine headquarters and the Office of the Coordinator of Information. He was off duty that Sunday afternoon when the White House phoned him at his home in the suburbs. His father wanted him at the White House right away. He got there as fast as he could. As he entered his father's office, the first thing FDR said was, Hello, Jimmy. It's happened. As Elliot Roosevelt, James's next younger brother, wrote later, it was the target, not the attack, that amazed him. Mrs. Roosevelt heard of the attack from an usher as her 30 luncheon guests of the day were leaving. FDR was occupied all that afternoon and evening with meetings, and Eleanor didn't have a chance to talk to him until later. When she and the president did speak together briefly, it was her opinion that, in spite of his anxiety, Franklin was in a way more serene than he had appeared in a long time. She thought, it was steadying to know finally that the die was cast. One could no longer do anything but face the fact that this country was in a war. From here on, difficult and dangerous as the future looked, it presented a clearer challenge than the long uncertainty of the past. FDR had a previously scheduled meeting of his principal advisors for 3 p.m., and they soon began arriving. Hall, Stimson, Knox, Marshall, and Stark. In anticipation of this meeting, Marshall and Stimson had prepared papers on the status of U.S. military preparedness. The atmosphere at the conference was not too tense. The participants all looked on Hitler as the real enemy. They thought that he could never be defeated without force of arms, that sooner or later we were bound to be in the war and that Japan had given us an opportunity. FDR discussed at length with Marshall the disposition of the troops and particularly the Air Force. Marshall said he had ordered General MacArthur to execute all the necessary movement required in event of an outbreak of hostilities with Japan. Many matters were dealt with at the meeting. Those present agreed that some type of censorship had to be set up at once and the president ordered the Japanese embassy and all the consulates in the United States to be protected and ordered all Japanese citizens to be picked up and placed under careful surveillance. When a move required the president to sign an executive order, he instructed the person to whom he talked to to go ahead and execute the order, and he would sign it later. In view of the crisis, the president, at Hopkins' suggestion, decided to call a special meeting of his entire cabinet for 8.30 that evening. He then asked also to have the congressional leaders come to the White House to confer with the president after the cabinet meeting was over. CNO Stark replies to Admiral Hart in Manila. For weeks, especially during the last few days, Washington's attention had been riveted on the Western Pacific and the likelihood of a Japanese landing in Thailand, the Krah Peninsula, Singapore, Malaya, or the Dutch East Indies. If the Japanese struck at any of those areas, the British and Dutch were expected to fight. And if the British and Dutch fought, the United States was committed to helping them militarily. In view of the fact that our commitment was not only secret but also unconstitutional, 
the administration had been faced with a dilemma. The question had been, as Stimson stated on November 25, how we should maneuver them, the Japanese, into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. But if the Japanese attacked us, we would be justified in responding. Thus, the attack at Pearl Harbor had let us off the hook. The Hart Phillips cable asking how Hart should respond to Creighton's news from Singapore was a reminder of the U.S. commitment to the British. The cable had reached Washington during the night of December 6 through 7, but because of the rash of Japanese intercepts, it had not been decoded promptly. It became available only on the morning of December 7, and it was not until after the attack that Stark had a chance to reply. His answer referred to the incoming cable paragraph by paragraph. It was encoded and transmitted December 7 at 11 p.m. Washington time. Stark agreed with Hart that the Japanese would be able to take the initiative in a war starting at that time, and he agreed also that the most important thing was to prevent any Japanese movement through the Malay barrier. Stark approved of the defensive strategy suggested by Hart and Phillips, but reminded them of the possibility that the major Japanese attack against Philippines may come from the eastward, that the Japanese might strike from the bases they had been constructing on their mid-Pacific mandated islands, the Marianas and the Carolines. As a matter of fact, Stark said, a Japanese concentration may be established in Halmahera, an island of the Dutch East Indies between the Philippines and New Guinea, or Mindanao, the southernmost island of the Philippines itself, approximately in accord with ideas expressed in WPL 44. Stark approved of the Hart-Phillips proposal for coordinating U.S. Army and Navy operations and for U.S.-British cooperation. He said Marshall approved as well. Washington also okayed the idea of permitting the British battle fleet to use the naval base in Manila and asked what additional personnel material and minor forces were required for the projected fleet base in Manila or alternatively in Mindanao. This reply was sent for action to Hart for information to the Secretary of the Navy and to Kimmel. Copies went also to the British Admiralty Delegation and to the U.S. Army's War Plants Division. Hart was to inform the British and Dutch. The U.S.-British plans for cooperation conceived months before in London, Washington, and Singapore, when the United States was still officially neutral, were now being put into operation. A message from the U.S. Naval Attaché in Australia, Merle Smith, the transmission of which had been held up 17 hours at the request of the Australian authorities, was also received in Washington on December 7. It reported on the threatening movement of the Japanese in the South Pacific. A strike from the Japanese island of Palau aimed at Minado on the northern coast of Celebes, Dutch East Indies, and or at Ambom appeared imminent. The Dutch had ordered execution of Plan A-2 calling for joint operations by the Australians and the Dutch, and the Dutch Indies forces were mobilizing. FDR's Evening Meetings with Cabinet and Congressional Leaders As the Cabinet officers entered the Oval Office for the 8.30 p.m. meeting, the President was seated at his desk. He nodded to everyone as they came in, but there was none of the usual cordial personal greeting. This was one of the few occasions he couldn't muster a smile. However, he was calm, not agitated. He was concentrated. All of his mind and all of his faculties were on the one task of trying to find out what really happened. The members of the cabinet faced him in a semicircle. FDR's secretary, Steve Early, sat at his side. Knox's face was drawn and white. Before the meeting started, he confided to Stimson that, we had lost seven of the eight battleships in Hawaii. As Stimson wrote in his diary, this, however, proved later to be exaggerated. FDR opened by saying that this was the most serious meeting of the cabinet that had taken place since 1861. 
He began in a low voice looking down at the dispatches before him as he talked. You all know what's happened. The attack began at 1, actually 1.25 p.m. Washington time. We don't know very much yet. Someone, probably Attorney General Francis Biddle, spoke up. Mr. President, several of us have just arrived by plane. We don't know anything except the scare headline, Japs Attack Pearl Harbor. Could you tell us? The President asked Knox to tell the story, which he did, with interpolations by Stimson, Hall, and Roosevelt. Dispatches were being brought in every few minutes during the meeting, and FDR enumerated the blows that had befallen us at Hawaii. He had hastily drawn a draft of the message he was planning to present to Congress, and he then read it to us slowly. It was very brief. The cabinet meeting lasted for at least three quarters of an hour. Then the congressional leaders who had been waiting below were called in. Among those who appeared were Vice President Henry A. Wallace, Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Tom Connolly, Senator Warren R. Austin, Senator Hiram W. Johnson, Senator Albin Barkley, and Senator Charles L. McNary. And representatives, Speaker Sam Rayburn, Foreign Affairs Chairman Saul Bloom, Charles A. Eaton of New Jersey, Majority Floor Leader John W. McCormick, Minority Floor Leader Joseph W. Martin, Jr. The President began by giving them a very frank story of what had happened, including our losses. The effect on the congressmen was tremendous. They sat in dead silence, and even after the recital was over, they had very few words to say. The President asked if they would invite him to appear before the Joint Houses tomorrow, and they said they would. He said he could not tell them exactly what he was going to say to them because events were changing so rapidly. The White House meeting didn't wind up until after 11. As the cabinet officers and congressional leaders were filing out, Postmaster General Frank Walker said to Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins, I think the boss really feels more relief than he's had for weeks. She agreed. Mrs. Perkins wrote later, A great change had come over the president since we had seen him on Friday. Then he had been tense, worried, trying to be optimistic as usual, but it was evident that he was carrying an awful burden of decision. The Navy on Friday had thought it likely it would be Singapore and the English ports if the Japanese fleet meant business. What should the United States do in that case? I don't know whether he had decided in his own mind. He never told us. He didn't need to. But one was conscious that night of December 7, 1941, that in spite of a terrible blow to his pride, to his faith in the Navy and its ships, and to his confidence in the American intelligence service, and in spite of the horror that war had actually been brought to us, he had, nevertheless, a much calmer air. His terrible moral problem had been resolved by the event. Looking back A few weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, FDR and his confidential advisor Hopkins dined alone together. On that occasion, the president told Hopkins about several talks with Hull relative to the loopholes in our foreign policy in the Far East, insofar as that concerned the circumstances on which the United States would go to war with Japan in the event of certain eventualities. All of Hall's negotiations, while in general terms indicating that he wished to protect our rights in the Far East, would never envisage the tough answer to the problem that would have to be faced if Japan attacked, for instance, either Singapore or the Netherlands East Indies. The president felt it was a weakness in our policy that we could not be specific on that point. The president told Hopkins that he felt that an attack on the Netherlands East Indies should result in war with Japan, and he told Hopkins that Hall always ducked that question. Hopkins had talked with the president many times over the previous year and it always disturbed him, FDR, because he really thought that the tactics of the Japanese would be to avoid a conflict with us, that they would not attack either the Philippines or Hawaii, but would move on Thailand, French Indochina, 
make further inroads on China itself and possibly attack the Malay Straits. He also thought they would attack Russia at an opportune moment. This would have left the president with a very difficult problem of protecting our interests in the Far East. He always realized that Japan would jump on us at an opportune moment and they would merely use the one-by-one -one technique of Germany. Hence, his great relief at the method that Japan used. In spite of the disaster at Pearl Harbor and the blitz warfare with the Japanese during the first few weeks, it completely solidified the American people and made the war upon Japan inevitable. Judging from reports of a number of the president's intimate associates who saw him on December 7, after he had learned of the Japanese attack, he was unquestionably more soothed than surprised by the news. He was truly flabbergasted at the actual sight of the attack, and he was shaken by the large unexpected losses to his beloved Navy. However, it came as a relief to him that Japan had not bypassed American territory to attack the British or Dutch. FDR had faced a domestic dilemma. The New Deal had failed to end the Depression. Unemployment in 1939 was as high as when he took office in 1933. Only selective service in the war orders of France and England had succeeded in eliminating unemployment. Increased employment in the United States had been financed first by the French and British gold, and then, under Lend-Lease, by inflation and increased public debt. Without such continued war production, the New Deal, on which FDR's great popularity rested, would have been revealed as an illusion, and the economic catastrophe it really was. Roosevelt continued to improvise new policies and new programs to prevent such a revelation. To put off the day of reckoning and divert public attention from his domestic failures, he had become more and more involved in foreign affairs. As Japan struggled to protect her Asian markets and sources of supply from ever-increasing communist disruptions, FDR had taken step-by-step -step actions to support China and to strangle the Japanese economy. He had also joined in parallel actions with the British and Dutch to blockade Japan and to prevent her attempts to extend her trade and influence on the Asian mainland. Because of her straightened economic circumstances, Japan was under pressure to obtain from Southeast Asia, by fair means or foul, the oil and other products she needed, but which we refused to let her buy. Time and again, Joseph Grew, our ambassador in Japan, had warned FDR that our embargo was starving Japan economically and that he feared it would eventually lead to war. Yet his warnings went unheeded. Moreover, FDR had given secret assent to naval and military agreements to provide American armed support to the British and Dutch if Japan should strike their Southeast Asian territories, which seemed likely as Japan drove south for the resources she needed. Several clues were available in Washington from the reading of Magic, which indicated that the Japanese were planning aggressive action against the United States itself. Yet these indications were largely ignored, or at least not recognized by the authorities as serious enough to warrant taking decisive measures, except to plead for more time to prepare for war. As a result, the military commanders in the field remained inadequately alerted to the impending threat. As the extent of the Pearl Harbor catastrophe trickled in, the enormity of Washington's negligence began to become apparent. The authorities then tried to conceal their responsibility and to cover their tracks. The tale of the subsequent investigations and the attempted Washington cover-up is dealt with in part two of this book, The Fruits of Infamy.